everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 416. I'm your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bixen Span. And Bix, we have a big show this week, a 2004 show, but before we get to that, let's talk about our latest Patreon show, shall we? Yes, we shall. Yes, as we are doing part one of two on our look at the WCW discrimination lawsuits, and um, which mainly focuses in the in the early 2000s, but has its roots going all the way back to the 1992, with Ole Anderson giving a deposition about uh, about the situation in WCW. Well, not exactly. And, it's not under oath, but yeah. Well, whatever. Saying it, it's whatever. He still seems very truthful, though, is the point. It's basically, it's basically a deposition. I mean, yeah. it's like what what would take place during one. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, so that's where it begins, and then we go from there. I mean, we have uh, all sorts of interviews, including a Vince Russo interview with Ben Miller on a sports line, which uh, will become a, a pretty big part of this whole show. And Russo is unhinged so to speak, and you get a full grasp of his thought process at the time regarding wrestling and foreign wrestlers, which leads to an interview later on the show with Ben Miller, with uh, attorney Kerry Hector of the the defense team, and Sonny Ono. And uh, it is quite explosive. So, folks, you definitely want to um, take part in this. Because you're going to hear a lot of stuff that you probably have never heard before. Because it's stuff from 23 years ago now. And um, it's stuff that wasn't in the newsletters. These interviews were not in the newsletters. We have newsletter stuff in the show. But this stuff was not in there. And we got, you know, all kinds of other stuff in there. Um, You know, the crux of the whole lawsuit. Filed by Harvard Bobby Walker, Harbody Harrison, Sonny Ono. Thunderbolt Patterson, which you could be surprised at some of the stuff Thunderbolt Patterson says in this show, um, and all kinds of other things. I mean, we 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 get you know we set the table for part two really well in this show. So um, this is going to be some of the best work we've done on a topic that basically gets forgotten about a lot, and you get a lot of understanding of what what the deal was behind the scenes at WCW. But on this first show, one thing you're going to learn, too, is how, and I bring this up a lot during the show, how they're they're fighting two cases here, the case in the courtroom and the case of public opinion. At this point in time, and we're doing the show, they're not doing someone in the public opinion case. Yeah. So part two will change all that, you know, eventually. But, yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a lot of interesting stuff here on this show. Yes, yes. You know, we get into the Charlie Norris lawsuit a bit, too, as we're setting the table, you know, and what he alleged as far as, you know, the thing we've referenced in the past about Greg Gaughan, you know, trying to teach a uh, rain dance to him and all that. Um, You know, know, we go over uh, the media coverage, both in the sheets and in the newspapers, Besides also that maybe Carrie Ictor and the other lawyers or the plaintiffs are not necessarily doing the best job. Although Ictor makes a much better account for himself in the Ben Miller interview. Um, 
the newspapers aren't exactly giving it the most serious treatment a lot of the time, and the newsletters, whether it's they're not aware of the full scope or they're just going by what's in the newspapers or whatever, don't really seem to quite get what's going on yet either. That'll change in part two. But yeah. there, there's yeah, a lot there's going a lot, on, though. A lot going on. So $5 a month, patreon.com slash twin sheets. Get you access to listen to that. And um, you'll want to do it again for part two, believe me. So um, get on that. And there's so much more audio on there, too. Not just these shows. We got almost seven complete years of the Patreon. As we've got eight complete years of this show. We're starting year nine now on this week's show. So um, just a lot of audio. Well worth that money. So patreon.com slash between the sheets. Five dollars a month. Yes. And they're... Should be at the end of the show, and if there's no room, then in the feed at some point during the week, a free preview clip of this, which uh, may, well, maybe or will probably be a, a, a snippet of the Ole Anderson thing, but we'll see. So, Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. Yes. All right. Well, let's get going, shall we? As we're discussing the week that was July 26th through August 1st of 2004. And we start with World Wrestling Entertainment, and we got a lot going on that doesn't involve actual wrestling. And what's become a sad situation of either amazing duplicity on one hand, or, I mean, or one hand, not knowing what the other one is doing, the WWE, in promotion of Ric Flair's book, has managed to put the damper of other marketing efforts of the company. But the controversial strategy may have helped book sales. A lot of people close to the situation, including involved with the book in different forms, have been unhappy over the past week with direction of the promotion of the book. Instead of focusing on the career and accomplishments of Ric Flair, the company has decided to take the low road and focus the promotion on a few pages. Flair's knocks at both Mick Foley and Hulk Hogan, and even more so, Bret Hart. Two company sources have said Flair was instructed from the top on his race promotional tour of Canada to go as hard as possible against Bret. He certainly did that. Whether Flair needed impetus to do so is questionable because he re- relished the idea of knocking Brett after Brett's comments on Flair last week. He continued knocking Brett, claiming he tried to use his brother's death for a vendetta against OE because he was so bitter about ni- the 1997 Survivor Series match. He went as far as to say he must have ha- has Alzheimer's for mixing up two plane crashes in the 70s. The Florida one, where Bobby Shane died in 1974, and the 1975 cl- crash in the Carolinas that Flair was involved in which in the career of Johnny Valentine, which are routinely mixed up by people in wrestling, and which Brett corrected himself on within hours of his statement. And Flair said this on the score, the Canadian All Sports Network. However, Flair book rose number seven among all books on Amazon.ca, the Canadian branch, in a country where Brett is considered by me as a national sports hero. That was far better than number 47. It was rated the same time in the U.S., which is still hanging in very strong, well ahead of the pace of me wrestling book in three years. Number five ranking on the New York Times chart came, that came out in, in uh, July 25th. And number seven that is expected for August 1st were both based on sales during the weeks before this new marketing effort hit on the July 19th Raw show. So it's possible at this point to say if it's been beneficial for sales in the United States. On TSN's Off the Record on July 27th, Flair said he liked Hogan, didn't like Bischoff, and when asked who the greatest of all time was, he immediately stated Hogan. Because Hogan drew more money than he did. He did qualify it by saying he answered that way because he considered Hogan the biggest star in wrestling history, but he was a better wrestler than Hogan. 
This was in response to Michael Lansford trying to use the hockey debate of Mario Lemieux, Bobby Orr, Wayne Gretzky's greatest, saying the wrestling debate is Hogan or Flair. The funny thing is, there is no Hogan and Flair debate among the, anyone who knows anything about wrestling. Hogan's the biggest draw to two, but Flair's the better wrestler. Yeah, I mean, that's the difference in sports. You know, I mean, sports, you go by statistical achievements, you know, blah, 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 blah. And wrestling, you know, when you talk to wrestlers, more often than not, a lot of them are going to say, you know, the guy that drew the most money. You know, in sports, that'd be like the guy that played, you know, on, you know, the, the team that, that, that sold the most tickets. But there would be like the, uh, a Yankee or Dodger or whatever would be automatically the number one guy in baseball history, no matter what. You know, so that that's there's that difference in, in, in trying to rank somebody in sports compared to trying to rank somebody in wrestling. He said Foley was a major star who drew money, but said bitterness over the letter Foley sent him at the WrestleMania. Funny thing is, Flair was not figured in the WrestleMania except as the manager Randy Orton and Batista in the original plan to face Rock and Foley. Exactly how Flair was added to the match, Dave's not quite sure. But Foley was involved in getting Flair more involved in the angle because it was fair that Orton, never anything that high profile, may freeze under the pressure, and Flair, with Flair always there, there would be no problem in getting the points across. At 55, with a broken neck, just a few weeks earlier, Flair was added to the match a few weeks before the event. Stole the match, and outshine Ross' turn after not being in the ring for a year. And Foley's first match in four years. Foley wrote Flair saying it was the, his influence that got Flair off the sidelines to be a major part of what Foley considered the biggest event in the history of wrestling. Flair again stated he didn't believe Foley could wrestle for an hour, although a number of hour matches nowadays, Dave's not sure whether it's relevant to today's wrestling. They've guessed if you could compare anyone to that, they could wrestle like Steamboat, Dory Funk, Jr., and Jack Briscoe. It is. But Dave Dallas, even if Foley would place himself as a technical wrestler anywhere near their level, as it was in his first two match four years of backlash, he went 23 minutes in a match that was considered by most as been an excellent Triple H versus Chris Moore versus Shawn Michaels battle among three of the four men, along with Kurt Angle, that Flair sees as the best performers in the profession today. His point that Foley's style of willing to take amazing risks to get his matches over led to a mentality in wrestling, which led to a lot of injuries, are valid. At first, Foley was upset enough with the company published in Flair's book, but seemed almost totally over it, aside from his feeling the criticism of Brett pertaining to the death of Owen had no business in the book. It was enough of a point to him that he found the editors of Simon & Schuster and wanted it out of the book, as did author Keith Greenberg, but that Mark Madden Vincent Mann and Ric Flair kept it in. While saying he was over, he wasn't thrilled as being labeled a kiss ass to the writers by Flair. He noted Flair wouldn't say anything negative about those in the company who wield real power. Undertaker Triple H for far more critical publicly of Flair in the late 90s when the wrestling world was hot than Foley ever was. And for that matter, more than Brett ever was once he apologized to Flair for what he wrote in early 1998. He noted the time, spending his time with the writers was because the angle was his angle. And he wanted to make sure the writers got it down right. He said if he was going to be an ass kisser, it would hardly be Brian Gowertz. Then he did a great job writing for the Jenny McCarthy show or saying that Michael Hayes is a great singer on the Bad Street album. But he'd be doing so to Vince himself. He noted that to this day, even on the company's own DVD, he always maintained that Vince was in the wrong and screwed Brett Survivor Series, which is a view almost no matter wrestling because of the touching nature of the issue and who Vince is will say publicly, other than he will privately. Regarding the Flair book, he tried to be quiet about it, and not want to feel more controversy. 
Now, I know this. When the book first came out, he was a little mad at first that he wasn't giving a heads up. But then it might have been Flair using the book to get a program with him going. When he called John Laurinaitis to see if that was the case and told him it actually wasn't, it soured him on doing a program with Flair. Right now, his feelings are more that he, in a sense, feels that it's an honor to have become such an important part of Flair's book. Because first time he saw Flair wrestle live, the famous 1984 Metal match with Ricky Steamboat, those two guys are so far away above the level of any wrestling he'd ever seen. Growing up watching WF Live, 20 years later, he finds a flattering the person he saw at that level write a book where he would become a significant part of his promotion. He called Vincent Man two weeks ago, and everything's fine between the two of them. He also has to go to the Democrat National Convention. Feeling that wrestling kind of gives a conservative value slant and presentation when the audience is more mixed, particularly since the TV is so strongly a minority these days. He'll be returning to TV in the fall to promote his children's book, which is going to turn October 4th release. Most likely won't be doing the program with Flair that had been planned for his return when all the controversy started. He doesn't rule out 100% as there'll be such thing as a right offer, although it doesn't expect to happen. It isn't how to shoot angles when you don't inform one of the parties. It's an angle. Now we go to Brett. Another marketing idea certainly damaged all this are negotiations with Bret Hart. At the same time as Vincent Mann was encouraging Flair to bury Brett in Canada, Shane McMahon was negotiating with Brett. Shane was part of the meeting with Brett and Vince in Florida more than a year ago. In negotiations last week to get Brett to return, he said the company wanted to publish and promote Brett's book, do a Brett DVD, and he thought to do a DVD to capitalize on the real store in Montreal. He also said the company wanted to come out with a new line of Brett merchandise, sign to a contract as a company spokesperson, where he'd do advanced publicity and make appearances at shows, particularly in Canada and Europe, where he maintained a lot of popularity. Either Shane didn't like that Brett didn't jump at the idea, or he felt so embarrassed that another arm of the company undercut his negotiations so badly, he doesn't want to continue the talks, because nothing has happened since. Brett has expressed interest in the DVD of his career, but taking any other step would be a lot harder. Perhaps the same man, who historically pushed so many buttons of his top stars to personally not like each other, thinking it makes for better storylines, or is simply following on the reputation Jim Barnett had when he was in power of playing the silver-tongued peacemaker while at the same time manipulating squabbles. The company's trying to sign deals with certain legends of the past for both promotion of the future and old matches, as well as marketing legends of wrestling collectibles instead of with a signing of superstar Billy Graham, and offers on the table to the likes of Ricky Steamboat and Bruno San Martino. More on that later. It's sad because I didn't mean for all this to happen, Flair said on article this week in the Edmonton Sun. I said what I think and I'm what I feel. Obviously, there are, a lot of, there are only a couple of us in the business who can look back on the past. I've been in this business for 30 years. I can say who was good and who wasn't. I wrestled everybody from Bruce Brody to The Rock, Dustin Rose, Wahama Daniel, Buddy Rogers, Gene Kaneski, Hulk Hogan, Ronnie Piper, Randy Savage, Christine Boat. I know who was good. I know who wasn't. Brett was a great worker, a great technician. He wasn't a great performer. He didn't have a lot of great and didn't have a lot of charisma. Several times, reporters, when Flair made comments on Brett, would bring up Chris Benoit, the current WWE World Champion, has excellent technical ability, but less charisma and is less of a draw than Brett. He's got charisma, Flair responded. It just doesn't ooze out of him, but he's catching on. It's just he's never been given a chance. He's a shy guy who doesn't refer to himself in the third person as the best ever was. Another point of difference was Benoit wasn't his own biggest fan. Hogan's only comment on Flair's book regarding Flair being mad at with how he whipped David with a belt and W seven angle was that was so weird. I beat the shit out of his kid. The only person I beat that bad was Randy Savage. And he really beat me. I was ready to cry on run from the ring. I did beat the hell out of his kid, and I talked to Flair first about it because that belt hurt like a bitch. Flair said to break a man right and light him up. I did go a little too far, but when I was done, Flair gave me a big hug at the end. 
Now, seven years later, he's got to sell books. But shit, he didn't tell the truth. Shit, I didn't tell the truth all the time in my book. But at least I kept it close. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Being that Dave is clearly attributing most of the rest here, this is Hogan talking to Dave, right? Gotta be. Especially the bluntness. That is not yeah. something Hogan would say in a mainstream interview. Yeah. Uh, I wish Dave was better about this in The Observer, because, like... <sighs> Like, yeah, I mean, that has to be Hogan talking directly to Dave, right? I would think so. Unless this was above the love sponge thing and Dave's not. I mean, yeah, Dave's not attributing anything in particular, so. But he's yeah, attributing well. the other comments to people in particular, into outlets in particular. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, it's I wonder Dave, if I Google so you never part. really know. Yeah, he's not great at this specific thing, no. Um, I'm googling one of the quotes. I mean, I'm not finding the flares said to break him in and light him up anywhere on Google, at least. So who knows? I miss possible, but <laughs> I didn't tell the truth in my book. But right. get the close. <laughs> Did you? Did you, Terry? Um. Alright, on off the record when Presby could do it all over again, would he have? Flair said he wouldn't have. Said it wasn't worth all the pain he caused his family by playing Ric Flair. But he said, had he not done it, he could not have been Ric Flair. A successful wrestler could not have made the money, would not have the best-selling book, and would not be able to be on TV shows like the one he was on. He said the business it was in those days, working with so few days off, weekend double shots and all the driving, made it impossible to have a family life and still excel in it. Looking back, he couldn't have done both. He thinks there's still bitterness among his oldest children, they never saw growing up because how much his, how much better his youngest children had it. He said you could have done it then, although you could now because guys do get at least three days off most weeks. Although Flair's on a hard grind right now. Oh, Chris. Well, he has I searched the Google Drive. It's an Alex Marvez Wrestling Observer.com slash newspaper syndication interview. Okay, there you go. With Hogan. That explains although, why Dave didn't entirely. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, Flair's on the ground right now to the point he hasn't any time to train, and at 55, that becomes more of a factor in the ring than a younger wrestler. Lance said it was a horrible business, and then it has improved. Flair said aspects of the old business were bad, so the schedule and the lack of medical coverage, but the camaraderie among the wrestlers was much stronger in those days, and the wrestling product itself that the fans got was great in those days. He may have been being an alcoholic in the past. In the past. And said in his heyday, his lifestyle was to wrestle uh. a long match event. Get out of the arena around midnight, party hard till 6 a.m., drink kamikazes all night, and then be in the gym at 9 a.m. the next morning and drive or fly to the next city. Another one strong performance on the show was still more by his spending so much time on Brett. He said the only reason Flair was Canadian... Okay. This can't be right. Okay, he said the only reason Flair was Canadian sports hero, it's supposed to be Brett, was because all the top Canadian sports heroes like Wayne Gretzky went to the U.S., which didn't exactly get over well. His description of Brett's career was he was a mid-card wrestler in the 80s when Hogan was running wild. He never drew when he was put on top, and Vince wanted to get rid of him. Even after he was the company's most successful draw for nearly a five-year period. Enough to where Vince offered him a 20-year contract more than three years after he supposedly knows the company. And Eric Bischoff was stupid enough to sign him to a $2.5 million per year deal. He never drew in WCW either. When Landsberg brought up that when Brett was champion, WF was out drawing WCW, and brought up Wimbledon Stadium, still the largest paid attendance in company history, Flair credited to Man Machine. 
you can't have both ways. That when it didn't draw, it was Brett, and when it did, it was the company. What? Well, here's the thing: who was working on WF at the time? Well, Ric Flair, but <laughs> Ric Flair also doesn't have a match on that show, even if he's key to the storyline of the other main event. I know, but I mean, he's there. You know, mm. as long as he doesn't know the deal. Um. When Lancer tried to get Flair to create a Brett's wrestling, wrestling ability by saying, would you say that Brett was technically a brilliant wrestler? Flair's response was, yeah, but what's I got to do with it? There's a lot of technically brilliant wrestlers. Lansbury brought some series and Flair was mad about what Brett did as a business traditionalist. Lansbury here clearly had no idea that unlike Brett, in a similar situation in 1991, Flair left his company without dropping the belt. Although as noted before, Dave doesn't hold him at fault to that from management called Force's hand. He said it wasn't mad at all. They lost respect for him for doing so. But he lost more respect when Brett was so negative about Vince after Owen's death. He said his views on Brett being more mad about what happened in Montreal than Owen's death and using Owen's death for the views of many in wrestling. Which is true, Dave says, but few would say so publicly, and they are wrong. He said Brett was the only family member to come out against McMahon after Owen's death. Lancer said it may seem that way because he was the one who everyone asked about it since he was a celebrity of family. The reality of the post-Owen death is this. This was someone who told me and the family in the days that followed. Davey was about to sign a contract with WF, and wife Diana defended Vince from the start. Ellie made some negative quotes in wire service stories, and then changed her tune when her husband, Jim Nyanhart, was given a six-figure contract with WF, even though the company had no intention of using him as a wrestler. Nyanhart was like, go right before the lawsuit was settled, as was Davey. Mm-hmm. Over the first week, it'd be a contest who was madder between Martha, Helen, Bruce, and Brett. Although the strongest quotes came from Bruce. Ross is also negative, as was Keith. Now, Stoffel, Flair knows any of this, and they sure isn't repeating what he had been told. As time went on, Keith, Brett, and Martha ended up on one side. Georgia, mother of Teddy Hart, and Allison tried to stay neutral, as did the parents, although it was an impossible task. Ross and Bruce switched sides when they won the promoted Stampede shows, using their father and brother's name to garner top WF talent like Chris Benoit and Chris Jericho, who had so much loyalty to the family for starting them out, even though those efforts fell apart in all the controversy. Flair said he was taking a power drive next week, break his neck and die. He wants his wife and four children to go to the ring on Raw and tell the fans, thank you for all these years, and it made possible for Rick to lead this great life. Landsberg felt there was a difference between Brett Flair dying in the match and what happened to Owen. Then Flair goes back to bashing Brett. Flair said the only place Brett ever headlined the big-time basis was one territory, where he wrestled on top of draw sellouts and more arenas and faced every great star of the past 30 years on top. When asked about the greatest match of all time, he couldn't give an answer, but said the greatest match today were Sean against Triple H. If he had a potential great match, it would be Angle against Sean. Because they never wrestled each other. There is so much here. Where do we... I mean, I, I know there's a lot more, but still, like... <laughs> I'm not done yet. I know. On the score, he claimed he spent more money on spilt liquor than Brett did in his wardrobe. In an interview with Kevin McKenzie at Trivia Magazine, he said when it was brought up that Brett said his style was repetitive, he said, how could Brett Hart possibly qualify to talk about me in the ring? He was a non-charismatic, very technical wrestler, rigid with no charisma, but he didn't, he didn't draw any money. As smart as Vince was and is, he couldn't seem to find a way to get Brett out of his contract. Only the idiot Bischoff would come along and give him $2.5 million. He goes to WCW, and what did he do there? Fell miserable. Interview Flair also complained publicly for the first time regarding Keith Elliott Greenberg, who was his writer. The guy I wrote it with me, I guess he thought he was artistic and took some liberties because he'd take what I said and just write whatever he wanted to write. First two versions of this book I just threw out. I was so wound up over them. And it's not a thing I said. He was taking artistic liberty. Every other word was the F word. You know, like Freddie's book, Freddie Blassie's book. 
it was terrible. It wasn't me. I mean, I, if I say the F word in a sentence to you, that's not how I talk in front of women. That's not how I talk to people in everyday life in front of children. So you read the word was the F word, like the Freddie Blassie book. And the company upset me. How could they compare Freddie Blassie to me? That was their logic for this guy having run the book. He did the Blassie book. They don't let the guy wanted to have Mark Madden write the book. He, Greenberg, is a hippie from Greenwich Village. He grew up on Bruno San Martino. That was the greatest of wrestling to him. Mark made it. He edited it. He made it. He really did. Keith's a nice guy. And he wrote his ass off, but he didn't sound like me. Okay. Where the hell do we start? I guess start with um, start with Foley. One thing, honestly, that Dave did not really explain clearly enough in the middle of everything, I mean, I guess he did a little, was that, like, the receipt that Flair said he was giving to Foley was just for Foley saying he didn't think Flair was a good booker in his first yeah. book. That's it. Yeah. That was the only negative thing he said about Ric Flair. So yeah. it was a bit excessive. A bit disproportionate in the response. Um, but, but, as Dave is saying here, doesn't it seem, though, like it's it's like the company using Flair to go off on Foley for some stupid reason, which I always want to yes. go off on Foley. Yes, to some degree, yes. And yeah, I mean, look, with the Brett stuff, like, there was the whole debate over keeping the Owen bullshit. So, like, and clearly that was, like, a Vince thing. So you could potentially extrapolate that to Foley, too. Um it's just stupid. It's just stupid that they built it all around this. I mean, I guess maybe it helps sell the book more, although it was already doing well. So maybe not. Um, as, okay, as far as Keith Elliott Greenberg, have you read the Blassie book or the Flair book? I own the Flair book. Have you ever read the Blassie book? No, I have not. Okay. <sighs> Obviously, the you can't compare what we've read because the Flair book had Madden do his edit. Um, based on the Blassie book, I felt like he did a fairly good job putting it in Freddie's voice overall, but it has some of those obvious, like, wrestling historian ghostwriter flourishes in it, especially the type that are clearly, like, shoehorned into a WWE book. Like, there's this line that I remember seeing people point out where he's like, you know... You know, nothing, you know, like he was comparing struts and he, sh and there's like a Mr. McMahon walk reference, like shoehorned in. And, you know, like other like historical stuff that gets kind of added to give context. It's clearly like in the Ghost Rider's voice. Well, I mean, that, but that happens with a lot of people. But the thing is that Flair's complaining about it, it's not that. He's complaining about the language in the, in the Blassie book and then him doing that language in the Flair book when Flair doesn't use that language like that. Well, it's part of the larger complaint, though, that he doesn't think it sounded like it was in his voice. Well, that's, uh, exactly. And that's, the, and that's supposed to be what the author's job is if it's another author, not the person that's actually writing the book themselves. Yeah. I mean, you know, honestly, you know, if you think about the people who did various wrestler ghostwriting – and I, when I say this, I have not read much of the Kenny Casanova stuff, so I don't know how his stuff has come out overall. I feel like Scott Williams was by far the best at putting it in the wrestler's voice. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a big difference. I mean, you read somebody's book, so I know that this this is not Ric Flair saying this. Right. I'm not slating Keith or Greg Oliver or anyone like that as a writer or historian overall, but it, ghost writing is so hard. You know, and like, it's like, it's, that some of that is what Flair is reacting to. Um, I mean, look, he had already had the deal with some other publisher that they bought out with Madden, and that, and he didn't want Greenberg in the first place. He wanted Madden, so I'm sure there's baggage going back a few years over it. But I don't know if they were willing to have Madden involved anyway. It seems kind of dumb, but also Keith, I believe, was a full time employee for them at the time, so it's probably also a budget thing as much as anything. Yeah. Um. So I mean, that's that as far as other stuff. I mean, we well, Brett. I mean, Dave has a good point that by this, by the point the book was being written, everything was kind of resolved. Flair really opened the wound and everything and the drama back up. But it sounds like it's through prodding events. Seems that way. Yes. <laughs> That's the thing. He wants Brett back, but he also oh. wants to get his shots in on him. When did the Brett TV? When was the Brett TV? Oh, five or oh six? It may have been oh six. Because I'm trying to remember the timeline for um for whatchamacallit, for remember how the whole deal was originally. Um, that they started shooting for something called Screwed the Bret Hart Story and doing interviews that would be a hit piece. And this is after the Warrior DVD. So you know they'll do it. But then eventually they made the deal with Bret. So I'm trying to remember the exact timeline. Um, I don't know. It just, it, the whole Bret relationship is just so weird on so many levels. Uh, let's see here. Alright, so we're talking about the best there is, best there was, or best there will be, right? Yes, when did that come out? November 15, 2005. Okay, so we're not that long before the process begins on Screwed. You know? Yeah. So this place is right before that. I'm trying to see when Self-Destruction of the Ultimate Warrior came out, too. Self-Destruction of the Ultimate Warrior... Do we have the actual release date? Was September twenty seventh, oh five. Okay, so that wasn't. So that had only that only just came out right before Brett's DVD then. Mm-hmm. So, but it was known that it was coming out for longer. Um, it's just it's Vince being an asshole. It's Vince being Vince. Yeah, it's just that simple. It's Vince being Vince. Mm-hmm. Can't help himself. And just the thoughts about Brett as a as a wrestler and just talking all this stuff about the Owen thing and I mean know. the Owen stuff is just dirty pool that's just that's not good but, but Dave also prefaced this though saying that well there are other wrestlers that feel that same way that say it privately but won't say it publicly and as Dave points out though they're wrong yeah but still there's that feeling among them so you know, kind of wonder though, in his heart of hearts, do you think, no pun intended, you think Flair thought that? Maybe. I don't know. Well, 
just, it just seems like he's being pushed. Like I said, he's being pushed to say this stuff more than anything else by events. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> a lot of interesting stuff here. I'll tell you that. Um, it's about his family life, you know? Oh, and also, he would never say fuck to women. <laughs> and, you know, how it, you know, he, he has regrets, but he also knows that if it was for all that, he wouldn't be where he's at. Whatever. <laughs> Which is, well, he's right. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's part of the sacrifice of doing what you did, you know? So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, again, it's, it just, a lot of it comes off as Flair being used as, as a kind of a puppet to spout out agendas. So. Yeah, that's uh, definitely something. Anything else before we move on to the next topic? No, let's go to Bruno. Yeah, speaking of people that's uh, got uh, issues with WWE and Mr. Man, Bruno San Martino was at Raw in Pittsburgh on July 26th for more than just to work on a documentary about his life. But he also has been offered as a, a role as an announcer for the new 24-7 channel. It would have been an incredible shock if you must have things have gotten this far due to hard feelings. It's not clear where things stand right now. Other than Bruno had a cordial meeting with Vincent Mann at the show, which would be the first time the two would have spoken on a public confrontation on stage at the Phil Donahue show in 1992. San 69, the company had been on since 1987, when San Martino's contract with the TV announcer expired and he left the company. Unhappy with how wrestling had changed. In particular, San Martino noted the drug culture, both steroids and recreational drugs, that had changed the business since his heyday as the company's biggest star for most of the period from 1963 until his retirement in the initial retirement in 1981. At the time, he was also set the same time his contract expired. The company fired his son, David, and after altercation where he punched the fan. David and Bruno were later strange over many issues, including David's admitted steroid use as a wrestler. Seventeen audience had bitterness with Vince and the family. You know, each side made the other wealthy. The sides had one negotiating session involving Jim Ross, Jeremy Devin, San Martino, and his reps on June 22nd. According to those close to Bruno, he made a lot of requests, some of which the company couldn't possibly meet. But also the word was that money would end up being the deciding factor. Bruno doesn't want to talk publicly about negotiations for fear of it getting in the way of a deal, but as of right now, he's waiting for a contract offer from Vince to decide on and right now, there's no written contract offer, nor an agreed-upon deal. If Bruno had his way, he'd also be used by the company in a public relations standpoint to give anti-steroid speeches, which opens up a can of worms The steroid use is still so prevalent within the company. Those inside the company were expecting the deal to happen. It's been clear in recent years that Vince, now 58, has tried to make amends with his most vocal and high-profile critics, signing Superstar Billy Graham. Although Graham at the time was destitute with heavy medical bills, and his wife Valerie and Jess Ventura both tried to get Vince and him together, as he was Vince's favorite wrestler in the 70s, and used as a prototype for the Hulk Hogan character. Brought back Hulk Hogan twice, attended a numerous case from Bret Hart. There was also a recent attempt to bring Ricky Steamboat back. Steamboat, who too had left WWE on bitter terms, twice. Particularly the second time, when Steamboat told him he wanted to retire, then refused to do a three-minute TV squash job for the Undertaker on the way out, only to resurface for his last run WCW for another series of matches with Flair and screening a few with Steve Austin. Steamboat turned down the offer. If San Martino signs, it's likely the company will at least attempt to publish his new autobiography as well as marketing DVD on his career. 
since both were brought up in the June 22nd session, as well as potentially involve him in a video game and other marketing ventures. The company's also talked about having Bruno appear on occasion on the main television shows. Nostalgia such as retro jerseys and 70s televisions in vogue. Definitely can attest to the jersey thing on my on a personal standpoint. While Bruno had a hold of audiences in the Northeast, particularly because of him being a real-life superhero they believed in, who always won the end, like no other wrestler and older fans who grew up on him will never forget him. Marketing history is something wrestling has ever done. While Ric Flair, who has never left the public eye and started was a decade later, has had more success than expected in DVD and book form, as a huge percentage of the wrestling audience has no knowledge of before 1984. Flair was also national television from 1979 onwards, whereas Bruno and Billy Grant, to a far lesser extent, were part of a history only remembered by a very small number of people interested in history in one part of the country. Vince asked Bruno to stay for the show and wants to triple H Christmas one main event, but he left the building around 4.30 p.m. The door swinging signs were opened by Jeremy Devlin when Bruno gave favorable testimony to them in the Larry Zbysko lawsuit over the Living Legend nickname, which W.E. had used on television for Chris Jericho, and of late once or twice for Randy Orton. Sarantino had given key testimony against the company in a lawsuit by wrestler Chuck Austin, in which the jury awarded Austin $25.7 Later settled out of court to win appeal for a figure far less. Would lead to be around $10 million. Austin's of a quadriplegic have taken a rocker dropper and moved now called the famous by Billy Gunn from Marty Gennetti during the 1990 tag match in Tampa when he took the bump wrong and landed on his head. Ironically, it's on the comments in Rick Flair's book room, Brett Harnstein, that hurt his chances of similar reconciliation that Shane McMahon was attempting to negotiate. These talks come on the heels of Flair's comments on Bruno, where he's critical of Bruno for his moment knocking the business that made him famous. Friends of Bruno said he was furious at Flair. Man and Mark Madden for the comments in the book when it first came out before he left on a recent trip to Italy. Regarding the Bruno Ric Flair deal backstage, two of the sources there have given a different version. They said Bruno refused to shake Flair's hand. Bruno's version is he saw Flair from 20 feet away. Walt towards him, but Flair ducked out, and he never saw Flair again. <laughs> well, here's this this time here they're trying to get with Bruno, which fails. You know? Yeah, it takes almost a decade. And it takes Triple H. It takes Triple H handing negotiations personally, yes, and being like, I was trained by your friend Walter. It, it just makes you wonder, you know, if Triple H isn't involved, does Bruno even have that reconciliation with, with the company? No. Probably not. I mean, the, the Dr. Maroon side of it would help, I think. It would, because that was really what led to him making the decision. Along with the big payoff that he felt he was owed, but still, I don't. It doesn't seem like he would have done it without those two factors in the first place. That Maroon was his back surgeon, and he trusted him so much to say, like, "Oh yeah, we cleaned up the steroids." Yeah, but uh, it's just Bruno was one of those guys that was so staunch in what he thought and believed in that, you know. It it took a miracle basically for that to to happen for them to get back together again. How about that? Thought it would happen. How about that? The door got opened in the first place by Bruno's deposition in the stupid Zabisco lawsuit being favorable to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is that in there. That's funny. But how about Bruno leaves Raw before the show when they're going to do a, a sixty minute Iron Man match? Yeah. Well, given the finish, maybe that was a that was for the best. <laughs> like if they just yeah. did a straight Iron Man match with a clean finish, 
I, I, I think maybe it would have been intriguing to him and maybe would have been something to try to get him to stay for. With all the Eugene bullshit, I don't think uh, they needed to have him there. Yeah. Wish we wouldn't get into that in just a minute. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely, uh, it's definitely something to just to read this, you know, after all those years of, you know, hatred on both sides. Yep. That the, the ice was stalling. And Vince, Vince always did that, though. There are very few enemies that Vince ever had that he never reconciled with. Oh, yeah. Freak out, freak out. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Well, after several ideas to do so in the 80s, the first truly national televised live 60-minute match took place on July 26th in Raw from Pittsburgh. It was the wrong city. Really? Yes, Pittsburgh. <laughs> not, a, not a famous wrestling uh, – well, not a famous crowd to, for uh, heat and reacting and all that stuff. Well, on WWF, WWE shows, uh, as we've seen more recently uh, – they will react just fine to other styles of wrestling. It just depends on the fans to build. Yeah. Some people ahead of time was going 60 minutes may have been the wrong strategy. It was a good match, although for many reasons, a lot of which weren't to follow the competitors. Nick come off as strong as a 60-minute match from last month between Samoa Joe and CM Punk. Chris Wall retained the WWE World Title, winning four falls to three over Triple H in a match, which saw outside involvement of Ric Flair, Batista, and finally UG did the final 10 minutes. According to many live reports, television both minimized the strengths and weaknesses of the crowd. During the first half hour, things were bad. While the only channel audible on the air was Here We Go Steelers, Here We Go, which is the noble chant in the sports events when things are boring. Noble during several dull WWE matches and all over the second, it was infamous Ken Shamrock Dan Severn UFC match. Live reports also indicate some boring chants, several We Want Eugene chants, and even a few refund chants. It was said when the crowd was really about to turn on a match, the wrestlers got them back in. The second half was different. Reports for the crowd, particularly the end, was far harder than it came off. Although the biggest pot was the appearance of Eugene and not anything the wrestlers did in the match. Although Benoit being victimized by a three-on-one with no wrestler that built the heat up for the pop. From a television standpoint, the show did a 3.58 rating. Well below what it usually does. It's lowest rating for a raw episode since the June 7th show did 3.39. On the bright side, the show drew 8,000 fans to the Mellon Arena. Well, but what the expectations are for Raw in a bad city like Pittsburgh. And a lot of the tickets were sold late. Any game people did buy tickets to see this match. So the TV viewers per household were up to 1.41, which Brandon had been doing much of the summer. After the, after the, the audience tuned out in droves about 10 minutes to the match, it didn't come back until the final 10 to 15 minutes. A full 13% of the audience, 630,000 viewers, tuned out after the 12-minute mark of the match. They trickled back in slowly over the next 40 minutes, even from the 40 to 55-minute 55 minute mark of the match to a 3.53 rating, well below the show average. The big audience came back in the last five minutes as 786,000 viewers came in to end the show at a good 4.24 rating and 5.27 million viewers. It was the same pattern as last year's Kerning O'Brien Lester match. The same pattern we warned them all week about. In contrast, both the Flair Steam match of the first clash of the Champions in 88 and Flair Steam of next year, both going head over WrestleMania as competition, saw the audience grow from start to finish. The reason is, in both cases, the masses were not aware when the finish was coming. Iron Man matches are not necessarily good draws of pay-per-view. But Triple H and Rock did lower it in 2000, and most of the Triple H Rock matches at the time were doing. But they're not strong television. And then that 60-minute match is a kind of different story. 
In fact, 1988, Flair's Steam match saw it open with a 5.0 and ended at 7.8. And the most successful as far as growth to this day, one of the most memorable cable television wrestling matches in history. Okay. That's, that's the thing about doing these Iron Man matches. You know yeah. when the end is. Exactly. Yes. Like, as we've seen with the AEW matches that have gone long, they don't always necessarily grow from start to finish, but at a minimum, they're consistent. You know? Adam Page, Brian Danielson held the audience. Bullet Club Gold FTR held the audience. If they did an Iron Man match across an hour, it would be much different. Now, they had the 30-minute Omega Pack match early in Dynamite, but that's only across, like, two or just over two quarters, so I don't know if you can really compare it as well. No. But, I don't know. I mean, the Iron Man match gimmick... What are your thoughts on it? Like, do you feel like it is self-defeating as far as drama because of the reasons we just talked about? Or do you think it's contingent upon the wrestlers to figure out how to use the stips to make the drama? And that's more what it's about. Uh, both. I think I think that's fair. It's also it's who in the, the audience wants to the sit wrestlers? there for a long match. Yeah, right. yeah, but the wrestlers have to find a way to make it interesting, keep it interesting. And the way... And the psychology of how the match goes. Yeah. That's up to the wrestlers and the, and the riders. Yeah. I mean, the reason that, you know, until a few months ago, there was a very good argument for Triple H versus The Rock being the best 60-minute Iron Man match was that they made the best use of the stips and keeping the story moving. Yeah. You know, like, you, you did see Danielson in MJF, right? Yes. I mean, do you agree with the consensus that it is the greatest, at least, hour-long Iron Man match? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I do, too. I mean, it, I, of the half-hour ones, what would even be the best contender? Rude Steamboat? Which is a great match, but I don't think it's quite the same level. It's different because it's only half. Yes. The other thing is, though, you can't do it that often. I mean, to do two a year apart, too, or less than a year apart was a bit much as well, even if they were on the separate shows and brands. But, because the thing is, is, like, yeah, we, I mean, there is creativity within the rule set that you can have, but the tropes that make the most of the rules are gonna still be fairly similar from match to match if you're maximizing it. You know, heal, sacrificing a DQ to do damage and pick up falls, that whole thing. Like, so you, you shouldn't do it that often, because to maximize it, there are going to be noticeable similarities between the matches. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, if you're going to do that match, and, and again, people know what the what's going to happen, you, they know you're going 60. I mean, you just have to keep it interesting and, ma- and make it count. You know, you got to get that drama in there. Yes. And, you know, though it was... Pay-per-view, you know, Danielson and MJF did a good job as any, at least as holding the crowd. That crowd was on fire for, at the end and for that overtime, you know? And, you know, Triple H and Rock held the crowd very well, too. You know, like, it, you know, it was interesting, because I had written this up, like, Mercedes Martinez did a podcast interview a few weeks back, where she said her favorite match of all time was Brett and Sean, and that she studies it to watch how they held the crowd, which I found fascinating, because they really didn't. The crowd back got back into it at the finish, but they didn't really hold the crowd at all. 
you know, people were leaving the buildings in droves. They weren't really reacting. So I, I found that kind of interesting, especially as someone who is a very well-respected wrestler saying that. But, you know, it's to me, it's you go to the ones where they're really gaming the rules and there's a lot, the heel is carefully gaming the rules. Those are the best, those are the best Iron Man matches, you know, because you're making a story out of it. I mean, I mean, Brett Sean is a much better match if they work basically the same match and it's not an Iron Man match. Yeah, the thing is, I like, I like the Iron Man match that doesn't have any falls. Because, I mean, it's like, what do you do? You know, especially at that point in time, it's like, well, what do we do now? Well, we're going to have to go to overtime. You know, I mean, is it going to be a draw? Is it not going to be a draw? What do we do? It was a good, it, it was a good finish for setting up Brett, Brett leaving for months and all that. Yes. But it didn't work for other reasons. Yeah. All right. So Dave goes into the match now. So let's, uh. Start with that. The match itself started with a noticeable lack of crowd interest early in negative chance. Benoit won the first fall 10-15 by doing first in the crossface, dropping the move and maneuvering to a cradle. Benoit's mouth was all bloody, unplanned, but it did add to the drama. Still negative crowd reactions at this point, particularly groans for the lone major missed spot. As Benoit missed the diamond headbutt after the three German suplexes, Triple H even ended up to 28 feet two mark with a pedigree. Benoit rolled out of the ring after the fall, and Triple H whipped him into the ring steps. And Benoit was counted out 31-10. Triple H continued to come, dominate with a vertical suplex on the ramp, went up 3-1 after an arm injury tribute spine buster in 38-01. Benoit came back with a sharpshooter in 44-12. Triple H stayed in the move for a long time before tapping. Benoit evened it up with a crossface 47-50. Psychologically, it was a strong match with Benoit having to come back from the deficit. There were a chance both pro Benoit pro Triple H turn the match as well as you tapped out stuff for Triple H. Finish saw Flair and Batista come out the start of the seventh for final fall. Orton didn't come out, which is either brilliance and long-term planning or luck. But one thing with Orton having lost twice to Edge in recent weeks, which would be also a good argument not to turn to Edge till they play out the program in the fall, he doesn't need to be part of any failure leading into SummerSlam unless it's a TV loss for a future contender. Second, since Triple H and Orton is a long-term direction, the question about Triple H of where Orton or was, particularly if he wins the title, unless that plan changes, makes for a good small tease for the long-term goal. Similar to the small tease that led to the Hogan-Savage split in the company's biggest manias in 1989. Batista supposed to have been one who juiced heavily, while most of the rest of the match was expected cliches of rep bumps, heel interference, and the face saves that happened in most main events and pretty much was expected. The time was really good, and the finish worked great. Triple H closed line referee Mike Yoda. Benoit used cross-face with no referee. As Benoit went to Batista, flare through a chair in the Triple H. Triple H's chair had Benoit beat when Eric Bischoff ran in. Jack Doan the count. But Benoit kicked out. Triple H decked Doan, which was actually too much of a cliche. But needs some for the overt triple team and Benoit to set up Eugene run in. Eugene gave a stun on the flare, a rock bomb Triple H, a one o'clock and Triple H with a chair, and Benoit scored the final pin in 59-54. Dave went right rated near the level of the Flair Steamboat, Brett Sean, Triple H Rock, Angle Lesnar, the Chono Nagata, 60-minute matches. Although this did have a better finish than Angle Lesnar. He got three and a half stars. Some because of the background, but it also hurts from the real heat in the match. That's two guys when an hour was set by Flair and Batista and blown up by Eugene. And overall, Dave thought both Randy Orton and Edge made each other look good and better. Made each other look good better than last week's Raw Man event. Dave just saw Punk and Joe. In comparison to any things earliest in their execution of the spots would have been exposed by W standards. They were also benefited by having a smaller but more intimate crowd that was more into the wrestling. 
But they still rate the Ring of Honor six-man matches better. Triple H far more polished as a worker than they are, and been once in a different league. But Buck and Joe managed to get a feeling of a classic into their last 10 to 20 minutes, and this match didn't get near that level. The RKO uh, match, ROH match, excuse me. It's RHO. The ROH match, but the intensity and realism of the finish of this match could touch. The ROH match made this made the belt seem important, while this match made the championship seem secondary to the players on the outside. The ROH match had the crowd on its feet for the last 30 minutes, and this match was really just a build for one pop, and that was for a participant not in the match. When it was over, Triple H shoved out of the ring to a mix of you tapped out and applied applause and appreciation of how hard he worked. This innovation, such as it was, was more the result of Flair and Batiste on the ramp starting to clap themselves. So it was something the crowd did based on reaction to the show as opposed to on its own. However, almost all of the famous WWE stand innovations have really been led rather than started on their own. Well, you want to play the finish of this? Let's just see how it goes here. See how 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 it finished out. It's Eugene. What? It's Eugene. What is Eugene doing here? Eugene has has come to the ring and double clothesline and a right hand on Batista. Eugene is is dismantling evolution. You didn't say anything. Nope. Oh, wait, or you did message me. Okay, I didn't get the notification. We don't even need to go through the whole thing here. You get it. He throws the referee in. One. Yeah, two. I couldn't even see none of it anyway. So. Well, we were experimenting. For the listeners, we were experimenting. Like I was listening to the radio. We were experimenting with using Peacock. We had tested it before we started recording because I know there 
some versions of Peacock have anti-screen recording things. So I figured well, the screen share. Was. <laughs> well, but it worked when we tested it earlier. Yeah, but it quit. Well, I guess we, we, we do have to stick with the network then. Yeah. It's like I was listening to a radio. But that's weird, though, because it was like... We did test it. We had a video playing before we started recording to see if it would work because we. It I was played thinking, the intro of the show. I doubt the copy protection suddenly started after the first thirty seconds. Well, it just it did the intro. Okay, you want to see them? Let's see. If I play the signature right now, do you see that? No. See, I told you. So who knows? Who knows? Well, I guess that's a reason to keep the legacy network then, because you. But you see where it says Monday Night Raw, where I'm moving my cursor. Yes. Yes. And and season twelve, episode thirty, and all. Yeah, that. I see uh, everything there, but the actual but the picture. picture. Okay. So who knows why it worked earlier? That's very weird, because it's not like you know using audio hijack to record the audio is not going to have anything to do with that. So I have no idea. I don't get why it worked earlier. Obviously, we at least I made sure to test it. It's not I'm not an idiot, so who knows? Well, but anyway, hey. so the match I mean, it was good. The finish was ridiculous, and you know what we need to talk about too, though, because we never really have before, and it's key to this. Triple H and Eugene. That's really the most important thing to talk about here, because it's not like we've done a lot of O four shows. I mean, it was the dominant angle of Raw. But that's not even what I'm getting at. Eugene has not been on TV long at this point. But the gimmick got over hard. Yes, and then Triple H came along and ruined it. Yes. So, for those who weren't around or don't remember, you know, we start seeing this gimmick, Eric Bischoff's special nephew, played by Nick Dinsmore... And everyone's very eh, skeptical at best because of how this is being played. But then they do these skits with Regal, and they're shifting towards this idea that Eugene is this wrestling savant who can outchain wrestle Regal. And suddenly it's like, you know, it's you wouldn't do it today if you tried to do something similar at all. But like, in the context of 2004, you're like, okay, this could work. Then Eugene starts to get over, and then for some reason, top heel Triple H, feeling threatened by this, decides he has to feud with him. Although they already planted the seed that he was Eugene's favorite wrestler, and when they were they were hinting at like a long term thing where he would try to manipulate Eugene, it was good. But by the time they turned into this, it was so quick. Yeah, I mean his first appearance was April fifth. Yeah, WrestleMania. Yeah, like. <sighs> And then Triple H just buries him. It's it's honestly, of all the weird Triple H political shit, this is the weirdest, because you're a heel, you're clearly comfortable being a hero for the foreseeable future. Why are you threatened by this mid-card baby face who just showed up and got over, who's never going to be competing for your spot? Um, Maybe he, maybe he just didn't like the gimmick. Maybe the gimmick in his mind that gimmick was supposed was not supposed to get over like it did. I can see that. This is not a main event gimmick. But he that he didn't like it was getting felt like it was getting over at main event level. Yeah. 
I guess. That doesn't justify anything, but it was just, it was such a weird thing to follow in this real is a, time. This is comedy. It's not supposed to be at that level. But it doesn't even come off like him wanting to work with the hot act and benefit from working with the hot That's act. That's what I'm trying to yeah, say. Yeah, I know. Vic. So he's trying to get, kill it. I mean, that's the only reason that makes a lick of sense as far as he, why you'd want to kill it off, which it certainly came off like. So, yeah, I guess. And Ben, yeah, and Ben was also just such a lame duck champion too. I mean, he's not main eventing most pay per views and stuff. So, yeah. He, I mean, he he's CM Punk. Yeah, when Punk got the title. You know, years later. I mean, multiple CM Punk runs. I know, but champion. the big one. You mean the 2011 2013 one. Yeah. yeah. Coming Where, with a hot deal, which Benoit winning was a hot deal. Him yeah. and Eddie closing out Mania together with the belts and all that stuff. I mean, it was something ridiculous. Like, what was it? Cena headlined like 90% of the pay per views that Punk was on as champ, defending champion. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but again, that's basically, I mean, the basic Eugene deal is Triple H felt that it was not something that he, that was a main event deal and he needed to kill it because of again what the character was not necessarily because it was comedy but what it was because he didn't do that with too cool and Rikishi and, and maybe it's because they maybe Triple H felt like that that type of gimmick shouldn't have been in wrestling maybe making fun of somebody with special needs as well. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm just throwing things out. I don't know. Alright, well, besides the one-hour match, first hour of Raw contained one of the worst segments in Raw history. Dave, so I'm not referring to the opening the Battle Royal for the title shot at SummerSlam. That had all the wrestlers in the promotion. It was better booked than most Battle Royals. They tried to feature Batista Strong. That's going toe-toe with Kane. However, Rhino got the goal of Batista for a big pop after it was established. Jericho and Edge worked together to dump Batista. And then Jericho knocked Edge off the apron. This is not what he's calling the worst, one of the worst segments of all time, by the way. We're no, going to get there. Which, let me see if this is on YouTube. Otherwise, I think we'll need to do some editing magic so I can pull up the network. But go ahead. This set up a potential Edge versus Jericho tension. Orton and Jericho went 346. Most of Jericho continued hanging off for dear life, but never being eliminated. They even teased the Roman finish of Jericho in the Benoit role and Orton in the Big Show role, but Orton blocked elimination. Finally, Orton hit the RKO. Jericho again teased hanging on, but Orton did a slide and knocking Jericho off the apron to win. Next, we get the worst segment. <laughs> and it's on YouTube, yes. In Raw history. One of the worst segments in Raw history. We have the Diva Search. This thing is feeling like mid-season of the XFL and that it's dying but there's more depth to come. The idea for this skit was for the women to verbally seduce Kamala. It was playing for about five seconds, but it never ended. And then nine women almost did the same thing while Kamala did his jungle sounds. The live crowd didn't turn on them, but didn't cheer anything either. All right. Um, go ahead and, let's go ahead and play this, because I'm, I'm going to search out Brian Alvarez's uh, review of this segment. <laughs> That remember, you have 20 seconds, 20 seconds to verbally seduce a former WWE superstar. We want you at your seductive best 
Michelle, we start with you. Here we go. Who is it, JR? Okay. If you come over, right over here with me, please. Taking them Stand a separate right room so the women have no here. idea what's happening. Face the curtain. Okay. Your 20 seconds begins right now. Woo. Woo. I have no idea how innocent I am, but I am a teacher, so maybe you can come to my classroom and teach me a thing or two. Why? I have no idea what those sounds oh, were, but Christy. Yet. You are next. Are you ready? Oh, so they can't hear him from the next room. Well, now we have Christy Hammy. Okay, stand right here for me. Right here. Face the curtain. Your 20 seconds begins right now. I was wondering if you could show me how a body slam works. I'm new at wrestling. Can you show me? Body slam? It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. She played with his belly. Now remember, you gotta let yourself. That's not verbally, by the way. All right. All right. Go ahead. Who's Camille? All right. Follow me right over here. Camille, right over here. She didn't right last long. All right. Stand right here for me. That, wait. How many weeks in are we? This is early because there's nine, nine of them. Yeah. So this definitely predates Dish the Diva because I don't remember Camille oh, and Dish the Diva. You in mind? Right oh, here. Yeah, face, we're, we're, face we're the curtain. Yeah. All right, your 20 seconds begins right now. Hi. I'm Hi. Hi. Oh, you beautiful man. Uh, again. You're gorgeous. Uh, oh, do that again. I like it. Now, ladies, she's the only one that's actually doing a decent job, at least flirting so far. She's trying, yes. Yes. And here's the thing, like, did they even give them an idea of what they were going to have to do before they got there? Probably not. So is this an improv test? Like, what? Hey. I have no idea. Now we've got to do better than this. Okay, now you're up. Here we go, Maria. Maria. Your seductive best. Remember. All right, here we go. Right over here in front of the curtain. Right over here in front of the curtain. Right here. Face the curtain. Your 20 seconds begins right now. Remember now, okay? Verbally seducing. Okay, you're up we next. Crazy. Here we go. All right, right over here. Right over here, quickly. All right, face the curtain. I don't. Face I have right no here. idea who this is. Your Twenty seconds begins right now. Boom. Hercules. Hercules. Right, 
Carmella, now that's a tough act to follow. Here we go. Oh, Jesus Christ. Follow me right here. I have no recollection yep. of how right, Carmella right, right. Caesar quick, reacts we gotta to this. Move. We got to move right here in front of the uh, curtain. Which also, we need to remind everyone, like, she makes it to the end because she is the most conventionally pretty. But, uh, but go ahead. And was playing into the year, but she's also the one who by far comes off the most as feeling like she's above everything. She was the most hateable of all of them, too. Yeah, so it's a weird dynamic. Because she clearly has enough support to get to the end, but it's also clear that a lot of the audience does not like her. Don't be scared. Don't, don't be scared. Go ahead. Right there. Trust me. Just trust the coach. Please stand right there. Right here. Your 20 seconds begins. Look at the curtain. Right now. <laughs> can you give a straight face? No, I'm can. So sexy. <laughs> Yeah, she's just, she's just giving up. She right, gave up. Now, Carmelo's... Uh, and she's also not a performer. No, there's that too. She at least seemed genuinely amused. She reacted better than I thought she would. She's not over the top. Yeah. Full taken back. Chandra, you're up next. Are you all set? Uh, okay. Chandra. All right, here we go. And the th- remaining three ladies just bumped chests, too. Yes. In solidarity, which I'm guessing someone told them to do. Here we go. Whoa, don't trip yourself. Don't trip yourself. All right, follow me over here. Follow me over here. Right over here. Right over here. Here we go. Everyone knows that little scribble's in style. Turn yourself. There you go. Your 20 seconds begins verbally seducing him right now. Kind of. <laughs> Chandra's uh, tube top is barely staying up. Yes. And she's a terrible actress. Okay, we're down to two. Amy, are you up for it? She embraced it more than the others, though. Amy Weber. She, I mean, but she went there. Yeah, but uh, we'll get. We're gonna do all of it, and then I'm gonna talk about you know I'll, get, I'll do Alvarez thing, and then I'll say I'll talk about what they should have done. But go ahead. Oh boy. Well, yeah, at least Amy Weber has like comedy acting experience, so let's see. Are you sure? Okay, here we go. All right, here we go. I guess comic acting. Step over yourself. There you go. Woo. All right, here we go. Right over here, Amy. All right, right here against the curtain. Stand right here. All right. Yeah. Your 20 seconds begins right now. Oh boy. You are the last one, Joy. Joy Giovanni. Right, oh, it's Big Show special friend. Uh, All right, go to the right here. Legendary right Joy Giovanni. Oh, legendary Joy Giovanni. Right here, to the, here you go. Right here, right here, right here, right here. Yes. All right, you look great, but turn around. All right. Yeah, she does. Your 20 seconds. <laughs> turn, turn, turn. Your 20 seconds begin right now. Oh, oh my gosh. Are you from Hawaii? Oh, hula baby, hula baby, hula baby. Oh, can I touch your belly for a moment? Oh, can I slap it? 
So only one woman's been eliminated at this point. Yeah. And you know what, JR? They're going to be out here in bikinis next. Live. Get ready to vote. Oh, I guess we got to see that. Well, no, that's, that's going to be on the YouTube video. Oh. Yeah. All right, here's what Brian Alvarez said. Oh, boy. The goddamn fucking diva shit continues. <laughs> They had all the divas going to a room at one time and sent to verbally seduce Kamala. I am not making this up. Keep in mind there were nine divas. The only good thing was about this was the only good thing about last week. Carmella. She didn't even try to speak. Which won her 10 million points in my book. Overall, I'll rank this below last week in terms of worst ever segments because this was designed to be as big a train wreck as humanly possible. And I have to respect that. In fact, I don't even think I'd rank it in the top ten of all time. So Brian is kind of breaking off with Dave here. But here's the thing about this segment, though. What was the object of this segment to do? What was the goal of this segment? That to seduce him. That, that was not any type of seduction. No. If you're going to try to seduce him, I mean, you need to go in there and be talking real low and touching on him and stuff like that. Well, verbally, I think that the fact that they said verbally threw everyone off, too. Yeah, it, it was just the, the exact wrong way. They were trying to, dan- uh, you know, get him to dance and rub his belly and stuff like that. That's not seduction. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But boy, yeah, that was terrible. <laughs> Oof. Well, terrible. Not as well remembered as uh, what Brian would dub the "come sucking gutter slut" challenge, though. But, but and he talks about the week, the first segment, the week before, how shitty it was. So when we cover that week in the future, I definitely can't wait to hear that again. See that? But my God, that was terrible. That was terrible. And ooh, I mean, two thousands, mid two thousands, late two thousands wrestling. My God. Yeah. <laughs> Looking back in hindsight. Oh, my God. Woof. Yeah, outside of ROH, Noah, uh, CMLL, AAA, and maybe Dragon Gate, they're, uh, it's grim. I mean, there's a lot of bad comedy and bad booking and just, my God. Woof. Well, what came after this? In the craziest bit of irony, they went to the Democrat National Convention. <laughs> And after the most demeaning portrayal of women possible, they went to Linda McMahon and Stacey Keebler trying to be taken seriously. Keebler did her best trying to intelligently talk about issues like well-paying jobs for people coming out of college. And then they brought out the nine survivors in the bikinis again, and nobody cared. The winner of this contest is exactly half the company's annual budget for developing new talent. <laughs> Dave says, I know it's been written before, but each week it sounds more criminal. Is he being literal there, or is that a joke? He may be literal in this one. At that time, because I, I mean, I remember that the developmental the time, talent contract bullet was bullet budget was under a million, wasn't it? It was well under a million. Yeah. So, uh, and that uh, Brian mentioned that uh, Linda said in the segment they're trying to reach the eighteen to thirty year old demographic as far as uh, voters. Yeah. 
Raw did a 3.58 rating, 3.53 first hour, 3.63 second hour, 4.4 million viewers. You know, they advertised the match starting at the top of the hour, which wasn't a lie, but everyone was under the assumption they meant the first hour. Fat was the show opened at a poor 2.82 rating. Growth of the Battle Royal was tremendous, ending 1.24 million viewers, making it the second best segment in Raw of the year. Divas and Kamala had 41,000 viewers, which is poor for that time slot. Divas and their bikinis coming out second time lost 49,000 viewers, which is even worse for early in the show. The growth of the ring intro's first 10 minutes of Benoit Triple H was 179,000, which is well below usual for the top of the hour. The 25-minute mark lost 630,000 viewers, which is terrible. From 25 to 40, they gained back 174,000, which is good for that point in the show, but it's still only a 3.41 rating because they lost so much the segment before. From 40 to 55 minutes, they gained 198,000 viewers, also good, but again, only a 3.53 rating. The overrun for the finish gained 786,000 viewers and peaked at a 4.24. So, yeah, not what they were, but shit. That's still, in, in today's eyes, it's extremely impressive. <laughs> well, yes. All right, SmackDown. SmackDown notes from July 27, Cincinnati. Show started with eight different guys. Booker, Kenzo, Suzuki, Rene Dupree, Luther Reigns, Billy Gunn, John Cena, and RVD coming out saying they want the U.S. title. Vince came out and then introduced Teddy Long as a new general manager. Oh, that's historic. So, there's that. Tag team Booker match, was, one-on-one with The Undertaker, holla holla, etc. Booker was happy thinking he'd get a title shot. <laughs> but Teddy said Booker's been haterizing on SmackDown, so he's a Bayface general manager for now. And then an eight-man elimination match for the title. Spike pin Rey Mysterio to win the Cruiserweight title. Devon distracted the referee and Bubba tripped Rey, allowing Spike to use the Dudley doll for the win. Spike didn't realize he was being helped. When he found out about it, he apologized to Rey. Long rehired the women that had been fired and said they would no longer be un- underutilized. I'm trying to think who these are, who these women are. It is 2004, because I- I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Kurt and Teddy met up. Kurt said Teddy was the first blood German manager in WWE history. And Long said that thinking was so 1985. He told Angle he wanted him wrestling, but Angle kept coming with excuses why he couldn't, settling on he didn't bring his gear. Long fined him $1,000. So now he's Cowboy Bill Watts. He wrote in the wrestle next week. Paul Lennon and Billy Kidman beat the Dudleys to keep the tag titles. That's right. Paul Lennon and Billy Kidman were tag team champions at one point in this company. Ray Druck hit the chair in the Bubba's face and Lennon pinned Devon. Eddie Guerrero showed up having stolen all kinds of things from Kurt Angle's office and daring him to come out. It was a bunch of comedy until he pulled out the gold medals. He tried to auction them off for $1, which brought out Angle. Angle then tried to steal Eddie's lowrider. Eddie said he had an anti-theft device, but Angle laughed at him. Angle turned on the car and got powdered in the face. Spike and Ray vs. Dudley was announced for August 3rd in Houston. JBL did another politician promo. Booker did win the eight-man and got the title anyway. Gun pinned Charlie Haas with a Famouser. Luther Reigns pinned Renee Dupree with a Netbreaker deal. Kendall Suzuki hit Cena with a belt for the DQ. Cena pinned Billy Gunn. Cena pinned Luther Reigns. Finished the RVD hit a frost splash on Cena. Booker jumped on Cena first for the pin. Then the RVD with a ass kick to win the title. SmackDown was a decent show, Dave said. There were only three matches, but all were fine. So these were the notes from the taping. Now Dave's watched it. Probably the best being Kidman in London over the Dudleys. Angle was far better back as a heel. Teddy Long can talk, but have to wait a few weeks for being able to judge if he has stand power. He would. JBL's political campaign segments will probably turn in babyface by the end of the year. Vince is said to be in love with those vignettes, probably because of his hatred for politicians. 
The show was surprisingly ineffective when it comes to building up SummerSlam. It was two weeks away. There was no Undertaker, and the JBL campaign package never related to the match on Undertaker, so they did nothing for their main event. Angle and Eddie was pure comedy, which did nothing to build heat for a pay-per-view match. Eight-man U.S. title went more than th- 23 minutes TV time. You could already see the beginnings of teases for Kenzo's babyface turn. In the early sequence when Booker insulted Kenzo, he made reference to a sushi bar. There was nothing to hate on the show, but it couldn't have been that good because Dave got a lot of reading done. Smackdown drew a 3.2 rating. 3.55 realistic rating. 4.74 million viewers. show did a 4.3 in New York, 4.0 in LA, 3.9 in Chicago, 2.3 in Philly, 4.1 in San Francisco, which may be a season high, 2.7 in Boston, 3.6 in Dallas, 2.0 in DC, 2.6 in Detroit, 3.3 in Atlanta, and 6.4 in Houston. In the segment rundown, Ray lost spike, gained 66,000 viewers, which is good for earlier in the show. Angle and Teddy gained 62,000, which also is good for earlier in the show. Kidman in London and Dudley's gained 6,000. Eddie's promo and Angle coming out in the low right with Star 7 in the show, gaining 498,000 viewers. JBS political package gained 157,000 viewers. Eight Limit Man Elimination gained 6,000 viewers. Terrible for Man Event. Then went 23-23, peaking at 3.40. The show was up 11% from last week among teenagers, but offset by a 17% decline by those over 35. But the one thing I'm noting here is every segment game, Bix. Hmm. No loss. Interesting. Any thoughts on SmackDown here? Not really. Just the... Um, one thing that was always weird about that London Kidman team was how, like, with the jackets they gave them and all that, it seemed like the idea was to have them be, like, the new young stallions. Well, Billy Kimmon did like Paul Roma. I guess. I mean, it's just like, I mean, basically, we're just throwing the, it's an old school WWF babyface tag team deal. Well, let's just throw these two guys together and make them a team. Which they did forever. That's how they built their babyface tag teams. Mm. Just put two guys together. Now you're a team. I mean, it just didn't, it didn't work here. And not only those guys' fault, but I mean, it just didn't work. Yeah. But yeah, I wasn't watching SmackDown this time, so I have no real opinion on the show. So there you go. Alright, let's go to the torch. Eddie Guerrero's out of action for several weeks, letting a minor tear of his hamstring heal before his big SummerSlam match with Kurt Angle. He's been pulled from all the house shows till he recovers. He'll be rested for at least two weeks, and perhaps a couple weeks longer. He has a lot, though, the wrestling English SummerSlam, since his resting now is more precautionary than absolutely necessary. If he had been matched for every Sunday, he could wrestle, but he'd be limited in what he could do and at great risk of another injury. Friends of Eddie said he was driving himself nuts with the same guess of how things were going and what he was doing a job as champion. It really adds to his anxiety issues lately. So WWE believes the time off should do him more good, more than just physically. Eddie said to be very upset and he was asked to lose the title. He's still not making an issue out of the locker room, but Eddie feels he's been blamed for the lack of success SmackDown has had through his title reign. And he's paranoid of his own shadow, says one friend. I feel sorry for him. He was always worried. That's the way he is. I love him, but he's a little mad at the press. Friend, huh? To the torch. NWE at this time. The office may or may not blame Eddie for poor attendance, but that's certainly not the opinion of the wrestlers who see him as one, only one of the things good about the SmackDown brand. Eddie's telling friends he plans on the rest of his entry until SummerSlam. He has a long-term contract at WWE is secure and he'll be a top attraction in WWE without the world title. So he's in no way has any reason to worry about his job security or push. No, he didn't, but 
Somebody like Eddie, and God knows, Eddie went through so many injuries the latter end of his career. He, he never could really sustain great momentum because he's always getting hurt. But also, as far as t- carrying the title and all that, it, it felt like he was kind of being blamed for it. But on the other hand, like, they took the title off of him because they were worried he was going to relapse was the other thing was that yeah. he was taking the pressure too hard of not drawing, which is like, here's the other thing with that, though. Regardless of how well JBL grew into that role, even if he didn't exactly draw when he was champion, but as a performer, it was so out of the blue, Eddie was set up to fail. They put all the heels that were active on, you know, on Raw, or they were injured like Angle. It just wasn't going to work. And so what, what do you think is going to happen? Of course it's not going to draw. He had no heels. And the one heel you gave him was someone who had been a mid-card tag team wrestler for so long. Yeah. Did he do a great job with it in terms of his performance? Yes. JBL. But, uh, like, of course Eddie wasn't going to draw his champion. No. I mean... I mean, all of his really stuff... That, drawing, though, at that time anyway, though, if you think about it. But all of his stuff that, like, made them want to put the belt on it, like, was he had better feuds and that were drawing ratings and helping draw in Hispanic markets on house shows before he won the title. It happens, though. That's the thing. You, sometimes, and this has happened quite a few times in wrestling history, guy is so hot and getting the build for the title, then he gets the title, and he doesn't do nearly as good as he did in the chase. Yeah, that's why a lot. Of, that's that's why so many promotions over the years mainly want to use heel champions for that reason. Okay, what would you say that Sting? All right, here's an example: Sting as world champion in 1990. Which, I mean, I know he he was hurt for all those months before he got the title. Yeah. But still, when you say this thing was a hotter attraction before he was champion than he was when he was champion? Yes, but part of that was also that they overexposed him while he was hurt. Well, there's, there's that too, but still, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's all on the chase. And the guy finally wins, and it's... You know, it's, it's it just doesn't hit the same after he wins. Okay, but they also didn't really do a real chase with him. Like he was gonna win the no, belt at Wrestle War with no chase, and then he's out for months in his first match back. Mac, Mac, first match back, he gets the title shot where he wins the belt. That's a different thing. Part that's a different difference in, in, in a chase though, and what because I mean he had the buildup of coming back. Now he's coming back. He's won the title. So now he wins the title when he comes back. And now, you know, he's back full time. He's champion. And again, it's not his fault. A lot of that because a lot of it's shitty booking that was going on. And so that's, that's another thing that goes into it as well. You got to know how to book champion after they, they have this chase to win the title. You got to know how to book him once they get it. Yes. To make him interesting. Yeah. Even though it wasn't for long, he was booked much better as champion on, in, on, um, in 92 under Dusty with Fry and Watts. Yeah, but, but yeah, I mean, he just—I don't know. Just, and he—he w- he was hurt by not having a chase there too. 
And Benoit too. Benoit and Eddie both in the same boat. All right, we're staying with the torch. John Bradshaw Layfield has converted some members of the locker room. Wrestler once opposed to the idea of giving the, the WWE title to a wrestler of his talent level are now defending him and praising his approved work rate. In his latest comment, W.com, Dr. Tom Pritchard wrote, I feel that Jay Bell has proven his worth as a champion and is getting more comfortable in that role as time goes on. Words that reflect most opinions from WWE regarding how he's handling his surprising elevation to be a main eventer. Meanwhile, not everyone's thrilled the idea of Undertaker being brash off of a WWE title SummerSlam, even short term, especially those who have a stake in house show business. Taker's only a part timer now, and there are some within WWE with power who strongly believe they can't afford to have a part time champion, even for a short stint. Others, though, believe SmackDown needs a top star to hold the title for a while to resource credibility for the SmackDown title with casual fans. I mean, that's a conundrum they're in at this time. They're trying to rehab the, the championship in their mind because Eddie wasn't as successful as they were hoping. But, uh, I mean, sometimes you have to sacrifice and see what happens, you know, and uh, see if, if, if JBL was going to stick his champion. Yeah. You know, let, him, let him go out there. All right, so let's see. This is the World Heavyweight Championship at the time, or just WWE Championship? This is WWE Championship. This is the canonical belt. All right, so let's see. All right. Um, where's the list of champions at here? Here we go. List of WWE champions. Right, so JBL, because I have no recollection of how long he held the title. JBL won the title on June 27th. And he held Sylvania. Yeah. It may end this year, so Undertaker didn't beat him. No. So they, they gave him the, the chance, and it worked. Yeah. Um. Now, as far as casual fans and why they're talking like this at the time, let's go to – what's the date on this? Because I had tweeted this, and I knew to look it up after that, after you said that. Uh, okay, the, the issue of Variety from the week of September 13th to 19th, of four. So month – like a month and a half after this, okay? I'm not going to read the whole thing, but they're talking about some of the stunt booking and soap opera stuff as of late, and then we get this. Try anything scenarios like these have cropped up because the ratings of the two weekly two-hour primetime extravaganza WWE Raw have declined markedly over the last three years. Spike TV's entire primetime schedule has suffered as a result. The network is coming off one of its worst summers ever, down by double digits in total viewers and all of its key adult demos, 18 to 34, 18 to 49, 25 to 54. Particularly nettlesome is the aging of the WWE Raw viewers. Wrestling's most rabid fans are teenagers in men 18 to 34, and the median age of, w of the WWE Raw audience during the first quarter of 2001 was around 26.7. To Spike's dismay, that figure has advanced steadily to a median of about 33.4 last month, a 25% bump. In WWE terms, that's bordering on geriatric. But the real story's in the ratings numbers. Since the beginning of 2001, a double-digit decline has pounded WWE Raw like an incessant drumbeat. The few quarterly gains among people 12 to 17 and men 1834 throughout that last three and a half years have remained stuck in the low single digits. Um, so, let's see. Uh, instead of sharing the same wrestling stars McMahon decreed that Spike and UPN will have their own he's talking about they're talking about the brand split and blah 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 uh 
And then we skip ahead. You know, they talk to some analysts and stuff, but okay, so here we have some more numbers. Uh, looking again at the wrong num- raw numbers. Raw is in raw numbers, not as in Monday Night Raw. The Nielsen losses of UPN's two-hour SmackDown mirror those of Spike. During the second and third quarters, the ratings of three of WWE's key demos, men 18 to 24, 18 to 34, and 18 to 49, skated by double digits, and after rising 2% in the second quarter, the person's 12 to 17 number SmackDown fell by 11% in the third quarter. And there's also a chart comparing third quarter across 01, 02, 03, and 04. Um, so this is, I guess, overall viewership. Oh, no, the, excuse me. This is May 1834. So SmackDown, third quarter, year over year, went from averaging a 1.4 in 1834 to 1.0 in 02 to a 0.9 in 03 to a 0.8 in 04. SmackDown went from a 1.6 in 01 to a 1.3 in 02 to a 1.2 in 03 to a 0.7 in 04. So, yeah, they need to get those casual fans back, and that's clearly why they feel that way. And that's, that was a problem, been a problem for many years, and it seems like now we're back into a thing where they're getting casual fans because their demographics have dropped tremendously in the last year. Yes, and also a lot of that is Peacock, and I think it's the the casual. What a casual fan is now is someone who watches the YouTube clips, someone who maybe watches the pay per views on Peacock and nothing else, something like that. But yeah, their TV ratings, though. I mean, we've, we're seeing that right are skewing younger than they had. Yes. Definitely, definitely way younger than what they were. And more women. So, yeah. But, I mean, again, it just got, just, it just, the business was changing and people were getting older and they just quit watching wrestling. And the people that were still watching wrestling were growing older. So, they weren't getting younger viewers. <clears throat> there have been some rumors floating around that Randy Orton will defeat Chris Benoit and turn, turn babyface, which happens. The working plan now is for Orton to win the WWE title and defend against Triple H at WrestleMania 21. The sources say the plan is for Hunter to be the babyface during that match. Well, that doesn't happen. There's also been talk that Edge will be involved in a double turn with Orton, perhaps in a SummerSlam. There have been rumors for months now that Edge will turn heel, and some consideration was given to having him feud with Chris Benoit. It's possible that Edge will replace Hunter in Evolution. It doesn't sound like there was anything to the rumors involving the double turn with him and Orton. Oh, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> no, as, no way. So as far as Orton, though, and everything that happens, look, we end up riding the ship and doing what they should have done with Orton with Batista. Do you think there is a, ver- a scenario where they could have done the Batista storyline or something like it with Orton? Or Orton wasn't ready yet to be a, the top babyface. No, he was not. He was not in his skin yet to be a top babyface. He needed more time as a heel for seasoning. It wasn't until that that next heel turn, and then coming back babyface after that, is when he became a strong babyface. Yeah, he wasn't ready. Was not ready at all. No. <clears throat> I mean, it's a horrible time that Triple H should have been the one that got turned. Evolution should have turned on Triple H. Yes. But it didn't happen that way. 
and one thing you can say about Triple H is Orton, Orton is a champion. Orton aces him out. Yes. He's a new leader. Yes. And for all the bullshit, though, you can say for Triple H, though, he did learn from his mistake here. Yes. He did. As, as did Vince, to some degree. Yes. And, and, and I mean... And, 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 and Orton ended up, uh, you know, coming back for himself. Yeah. And then kills career. So, there's that, too. Undertaker's really working with Heinrich of late. That's his plan next program. And Heinrich's under pressure since he's not ready. Everyone knows he's not ready. And he himself, Dave, thinks his natural shot to go along with not being much of a worker, which is something he'll have to overcome because his only chance right now is, a, is as a wild and aggressive heel. And he just never really clicked in the ring. Nope. Just didn't work. Ever since this man praised the town of Hiroko, whose poise behind the mice should be natural as a former television news anchor woman in Japan. The Suzuki family act has been praised by everyone, even to the point of talking about a babyface turn for them, coming off the I Love America stuff. And they do I that see. a little, and then he's gone. I barely remember this but stuff. But the only thing, you know, the only stuff I saw of that shit was whenever they wrestled on pay-per-view. Because you weren't watching SmackDown at the time. Yeah. I was watching SmackDown, yeah. I just, you know, Kenzo being, here's the thing, folks. I mean, at the time, think about this. And I said this before. When Kenzo Suzuki and Hiroshi Tanahashi were, were, were a tag team in Japan, he was the push guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was the guy that thought was going to be the future. Not Tanahashi. I mean, at the beginning, Tanahashi was bet, it was probably was the smoother worker, but the golf wasn't of course huge. He was. The golf wasn't as huge as it would become, though, or anything close to it. Like Kenzo seems like a guy with potential. Yeah. He was fine, but it was the comparison at the time was Shawn Michaels, Kevin Nash. Yeah. That's a tag team. And just getting him away from the guys who knew how to work with him and going to America and Mexico was a problem. No, going to World Japan was the problem. Well, that too, but he still had guys like Hase who could carry him. Hase didn't wrestle that much in World Japan. He was there, but he wasn't. But he was the guy who carried him on the initial shift. He wasn't a regular guy, though. Alright, uh, back to the torch real quick. Rey Mysterio throughout the first pitch of the San Diego Padres home game against Los Angeles Dodgers at Petco Park in San Diego on July 30th. Ray threw a strike, but he was only standing 40 feet from the plate, wore his mask. He was coming to the ballpark by Conan, and the two were featured in newspaper photos the following day. Well, that had to be awesome for both those guys, especially Conan being a huge baseball fan. So, that's good. There was some heat over a misunderstanding with Stacey Keebler at a weekend show. She got to the building, was asked to a meet and greet, and refused, saying she just arrived after a long drive and nobody told her about it. It became something of a big deal in the locker room. This isn't going to be viewed well for her. The problem that a lot of people don't understand about the women is it takes a ton of work to look like that, and part of their aura is if fans see them and they aren't looking good, it ruins what they have. Not that making a fuss over meeting fans ever goes over well. I mean, that's a tough one. Uh, that's clearly one of Stacey's friends, one of the other women, telling Dave that, though, too. To be like, look, she's going to get heat for this, but she shouldn't, and here's why. Yeah. It's a tough situation for everybody involved. So, and it's good to this point now where she's she's not going to be very long for the rest of the business anyway, so. Mm-hmm. And to close out, Danny Williams. The British boxer who knocked out Mike Tyson on July 30th is a huge wrestling fan. 
<laughs> Through intermediaries, he had contacted WWE about involvement in 2002, but was turned down. He's very participating in angle when WWE does television in the UK in October. Not sure how beating Mike Tyson has made him in the UK, but in the US, it was more that Tyson lost to a nobody. That's supposed to Williams become somebody who knocked out Mike Tyson. After beating Tyson, one of the first things on his mind was shooting angle at Randy Orton. We had the idea of his, of a legend killer versus a legend killer. So I forgot about Danny Williams knocking out Mike Tyson. Because <sighs> Williams, okay, he knocks out Tyson. Danny, I mean, he goes and fights Vitaly Klitschko next. And uh, Vitaly wins by TKO. And he fights in Britain. Pretty much, you know, the next Europe, basically. Not just Britain, but all over Europe. Basically, the rest of his career. His record ends up as 55 and 32. Yeah, he just goes and loses a bunch of fights. Because at, when he fights Tyson... Yeah, I'm looking to see what his record was then. He was fi- he was 50 and 4. Oh, no, no, no. That Tyson is 50 and 4. Tyson's 50 and 4. Yeah, where does it show his... I thought Boxerac did show his, does show the record up to that point. I guess if I look at Ty- I need to look at Tyson's to see... What William's record Box was. Rack has really changed. Okay, Will. Okay, I clicked on Tyson's profile. Williams was 31 and 3 at the time. Yeah. So it tells you. I mean, he, he ended up going 19 and what was the losses? No, not 19. He went uh, 24 and 30. 24 and 29 after that. All right, now, the guys that beat him, he lost to Michael Sprott by points before Tyson. That was a British heavyweight title match. He lost to Sinan Samil Sam in a European Union title match. And he had lost to Julius Francis in a British heavyweight title match. So, not no major names he had lost to. I mean, he was just a guy that caught Tyson... With a good shot. I remember, I mean, he was a guy that was supposed to be the big beat. That's a tomato can. Yeah. But he loved him some WWE, though. They never brought him in, but still he loved him some WWE. So there's that. Well, the section isn't quite over, though, because we have OVW with Vince going there. Vince McMahon came last year to OVW, looked over the town, gave a speech, and talked about signing more guys up for developmental and opening up more developmental territories. That's all we have from this? That's it. There was nothing in the torture figure four or anything? Mm Mm-mm. Huh. Okay. That was it. (laughs) I think this is the only time he goes, isn't it? Yeah, that we know of. And OVW still developmental, what, for three more years? About. Yeah. And the the Deep South Adventure opens up, so that happens. They do sign more guys developmental, so that does happen. Yeah. But yeah, this is it. I was like the first television saw high and right to short Robbie Dauber and Benny Dredd, you know, because he's got dreadlocks. Morgan, man, Morgan loaded his elbow pad, took off a 1980 Hogan Andre angle, Larry did high and right and left him laying. Morgan also destroyed four wrestlers who tried to help. They aired a clip of the 1981 match with Lawler and Ter- Terry Funk. There was no wrestling to speak of, but the match was incredible. This may have been the match that clear- created the term five star match. The original system was like movies and newspapers with zero to four stars. Then some matches were so atrocious we had to create negative stars. Jim Cornette and Norm Dooley then saw a Lawler Funk match, which blew away what they had previously considered a four-star match, so they had to go five stars. 
Lawless working punches were just incredible, as was Funk selling. But even more impressive was watching the crowd. They only showed a few minutes, and there were nothing but punches. With Funk taking spectacular bumps when needed, but the bumps were not unbelievable looking. And chair shots and a count finish on Funk. But the crowd response was nothing Dave's seen in a long time. And that match is absolutely fantastic and should be easy to find on YouTube. And again, for folks that was curious about the five-star rating, there it, comes, there it is. But, and, but then, though, later in 81, when... <laughs> excuse me. <coughs> excuse me. Still getting over my uh, cough. Um, when Dooley and Cornette are going to Louisville, and there's the big, you know, Louisville brawl that people remember from TV, and I think there's another one the week before or the week later... Don't they start going to like six and six and a quarter stars? They do, yeah. Yep. And those Louisville Brawl, I mean, again, that's not even, that's not even a wrestling match. It was a post-match, <laughs> that, yeah. That was a post-match, which was so odd at the time that you have post-match stuff, get, get these high, get these big match ratings were not even matches. Well, then there, there was also the way to try to figure that out for the Death Valley Driver Best of the 80s. Were, oh, I've caught some battles on that one. Because <laughs> I remember the decision was made that the two-plow concession stand brawl would count, but that the Louisville brawl would not, even though they're both post-match brawls. And I guess the reasons given were that the two-plow concession stand brawls, the guys in the match, and I also... That, by the way. Well, and also that it had the structure of a match in a way that the Louisville brawl did not. I wasn't for... That because it was not a match, it was the post match. Yeah, it's an angle. You know, well, they fall for, and I was like, whatever, go ahead. I just, I, I mean, it wasn't the match. Nope. What are we doing? You know, it was a post match. But also, I mean, from if I remember right, I argued for the Louisville brawl once it was clear that the Tupelo brawl was going on. So it's like, well, if we're including this. We're opening the door to this, but others did not agree. I think the one I had the biggest uh, argument over was Fabulous Ones, Moon, not not Fabulous One, Moon Dolls versus Stan Lane and Jackie Fargo. That was the one I, had the, I think I had the biggest arguments on because because the match itself only went like three minutes, mm-hmm. three or four minutes, and the post match with Steve Kern getting involved went way longer and was the highlight of the whole deal. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was an, an argument in the in the, uh, in the nomination process. Absolutely. Okay, so I'll say just for example, like just as a comparison before we move on, when people talk about Flair Funk from Bash '89, do you consider the post-match part of the match? <sighs> they just had a big fucking match. So I mean, no, I don't count it because the okay. match the match itself was worthy enough. Yes, it was just added to it. Super Concession Stand Brawl we're talking about is not the famous one, because that was 79. Well, we're talking about the other famous one, Morton and Gilbert against Fucci and Onita. Yes. But anyway. Alright, so back to OVW. Matt Capitelli faced Jerome Crony with Capitelli having one arm tied behind his back. Capitelli won with a one-arm side slam, which meant he got five minutes with Kenny Bowling. The Cornette claim was so fat he had his own gravitational pull. My mom, though, ran in and hit Capitelli with Bowling's briefcase and Bowling pinned him with the elbow drop in seven seconds. The problem was, last time Mondo had Capitelli with a briefcase, he potatoed him and Capitelli needed seven stitches. 
This time he gave him a weak shot to the bat, which Capitola saw like he'd been hit in the head. And these guys had the instincts to improvise, so it wasn't pretty. Seven, the uh, former Mordecai, returned, and you wouldn't even know it's the same guy. He's got ride spiked hair. I don't I know what that's supposed to mean. Red? The ring tricks. I don't know. Shaniqua returned to TV to demand entrance at All Men's Battle Royal. She's got a great look since she's still huge and in shape, but Dave went bet on her seeing the much of the light of day. TV main was Chris Cage and Tank Tola, whose improvements of work are best height is a huge disadvantage. Losing to Joey Matthews and Johnny Nitro. Nova gave uh, Cage a power drive on the floor, so Tank had the worst seven minutes by himself, which was actually pin. The Jersey crew ran in, so it was 5 on 1 until Jeter and Seven ran in with a garbage can lid for the save. Okay, then he's not calling them Eminem, M- and yet means they're not Eminem yet. I mean, he, no mention of Molina, and also, this is early enough that Joey's probably not even under contract yet, right? Yeah. This is Joey moving to Louisville with Mickey and working OVW because he's there. Yeah. Chad Wicks has been in OVW camp for about six weeks, making it a role as a relative of Tank Tolan, because they have such a resemblance. And he does. Aaron Aaron Aguilera probably won't start on TV until October since he's getting married soon. We'll be leaving Louisville for his honeymoon. Gene Snitsky will be the quickest newcomer to make TV in the role of Mike Mondo's little brother who was born premature and will show up at six foot four to earn in 85 pounds. I don't think they end up doing that storyline, right? Gene Mondo, right? They did Gene Mondo. Did they? I think they did. It didn't last long because he went right to he went right to the main roster. I was not watching the TV at this time, but I was reading about it every week. It was very brief. Mm. Yeah, he does do something with my Honda. And by the way, yeah, Snitsky is the real spelling, right? Snitsky is the gimmick name. Yes. That's that's why in MLW and other places now, he's Gene Snitsky. Yes. And to close, there was a major issue during the week at a live amateur class show at Davis Arena on July 31st, injury during the fans. Most TV guys were there cheering their fellow students on. OBW teaches old school ways. Most of them have baby faces and heels should never socialize anywhere people can see them, particularly if they're feuding. A lot of younger wrestlers, if not most, were too young to understand the old ways and don't have the instincts or the wise of this. At the show, Matt Morgan, a heel, and Alexis Lurie, a babyface, me, James, were talking in a hot dog stand and Jim Cornette blew a gasket. He doesn't like that they would be in the same nightclub because of the possibility a fan might see them, let alone talking to Davis Arena, filled with nothing but the weekly regular fans. He didn't even like the TV regulars were in the stands watching the matches with the fans. Finish this separation of wrestlers from fans. He told Morgan, who would be OVW's biggest star right now, that he's the big star. And if he went to a Rolling Stones concert, it's not unlikely the fans see Mick Jagger in line to buy hot dogs because he's a star. And Morgan should, Morgan should act like a star. He also didn't like Morgan being around with all the guys he abused weekly on television where fans could see it, with him just acting like a fan. <laughs> Boy, it is amazing how Jim Cornette's head hasn't exploded in today's wrestling world. <laughs> it really is. No, I mean, you're like speaking seriously, it is like knowing his anger issues and knowing what sets him off, it is kind of amazing that he has not given himself a heart attack. Like, and I don't, again, I'm not joking when I say that. Like, because of how he, how he felt about the business. And I mean, that's just what it is. It's how he felt about how the business should be and how things are supposed to be done. He's so old school in that way that that stuff's been just shattered. Yeah. In the social media area, social media era. So, 
Yeah, I mean, just saying, it's just it's good that he doesn't let it let it get to him like that, like he used to. Right. I don't think he's overturning furniture. Over, I mean, OVW was different because he was co-owner still, but like, I don't think he'd get to the point of overturning furniture in his house over a bad segment anymore. But just the fact that you know, talent is hanging out with talent, heels and babyface hanging out with each other, you know. Okay, so there's a few things to go over here, and we need to divorce it from the context of Cornette's reaction. Um, The Beginner's Class shows and the other wrestlers who train with them showing up in the crowd. I can see it both ways. Especially... The, you know, the Beginner's Class is largely the people who are paying... Or Amateur Class, or whatever they call it. It's the people who are paying for the wrestling school... And the greenest people that WWE signed. And I can see not wanting to feel like you come off above it all and wanting to be supportive. You know? I, like, I can see why Mickey and Matt Morgan and people like that would want to show support and show that they're not feeling all high and mighty because they're the ones with contracts, you know? I feel like it's a coming from a good place, certainly. Um, as far as the socializing, that I think, knowing the rules they're working under, they need to be a little more careful, though. I mean, yeah. You, I mean, they sh- they should know what to expect by them from Jim. Yeah. That that was not going to fly. Yeah. Um, you know, now as far as the being a star part, you know, you hear people who are old school sometimes talking about it today and not liking everyone coming out and selling their gimmicks, especially before the show. But it's such a different world on indies now where the gimmicks are so much of what you're making that you have to just do what you can to maximize it. This is not that, but it's still part of the same conversation. Like, What do you feel as far as that? I mean, the rest have been selling gimmicks as shows for, for a long time. They've been coming to the gimmick tables for a long time. Um, but there was a point though when there was no such thing as a gimmick table. Right. You know? So there's that, too. Um, I feel like it's context-dependent. I, I mean, I saw... I saw Cody Rhodes work a gimmick table like no other at the Bulletproof shows here in Boston. Mm-hmm. I mean, that dude was all over the place, you know, before the show, during the show, after the show. That dude was all about, you know, making the fans experience be an experience. Like a Terry Funk. Yeah. Oh, different. Way different. Okay. Way different. Terry Funk was not as, Terry Funk would have never been as big a babyface as Cody Rhodes was. Never. Okay. But I mean yeah. in terms of wanting to give the fans an experience when they're buying an autograph from you and all that. I mean, I mean, Cody had, I mean, he brought the dog. I mean, you were doing meet and greets with the dog. <laughs> I mean, the second show, they did a cookout for the fans that showed up. He cooked out. I mean, he stayed, I mean, after his match was over with, he would stay up to an hour after the show talking to the fans. You know, I mean, he just, and he's the biggest star in the building at that time. 
Yeah. And that's and that's how he was. I mean, well, okay, so even still today, I mean, they talk about him at the, at the WWE shows that he stays now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now let me ask you this though, and then I guess that'll close out the segment. How do you feel at least about the idea of even now? Make it that your match is the first time they see you. You can sell gimmicks, but don't sell gimmicks before your match. What if you're in the main event? You mean, like, if you're enough of a name to be in the main event, but, right, you want to be able to sell during intermission. Yeah, that's the thing. Or before it, the show. Or see, both, that's, yeah. That's, that's what I would see. I mean, some of those names would, that came here to do that, they would sell before the show. They wouldn't come out for intermission. Interesting. They'd have somebody at their table. Right, right, But right. they wouldn't be out there for intermission. Hmm. Yeah, I absolutely saw that. And then you have, like, um, some of them would get their match on before intermission. Oh, yeah. If you're in the, pre- the pre-intermission slot, it's so good if you're someone who's selling KMX. That's what Jaff did when Jaff was here. He got that, that spot right for intermission. I mean, last year at uh, ETU, um, when it was the first uh, Shaz mckenzie danny DeManto match, I don't, I mean, the crowd was into her some going to match, but, like, I don't know how many of those people would have been inclined to buy stuff from her otherwise, but she had the, she was in that pre-intermission spot, and she was selling a shit ton of stuff after that match. But another thing, too, is, though, is that, we I mean you talked about this before, you know, off the air. It's way different at a Northeast show than it's in a Southern show when it comes to selling gimmicks. It's more unpredictable. Uh, the I mean, certainly at Northeast shows, the I mean, the women are going to be more inclined to get a certain amount of a bump, but that's not always reliable either. It it can vary a lot. It's it's very unpredictable on Northeast shows. Yeah, but if you, you optimize it, then you can benefit it. If you're in that good spot, you have this great performance right before intermission, that's certainly going to help. All right. Well, that is it for the first half. The show is halftime. So oh, it is? 2004 commercials. We'll pivot to the halftime segment where we'll talk about Patreon, we'll hit the plugs, and then we'll come back and go to Japan. So, uh, yeah. Should be interesting as we talk about uh, New Japan having some major problems. And we got Noah running a couple big shows, including help from Neo Ladies Pro Rest no. and the Fire Festival in Zero One. All that and more after the break. Those eyes, those lips, that shake. All irresistible. All on Spike 52 Most Irresistible Women. A two-hour festival of hotties counting down the women you can't get enough of. Spike 52 Most Irresistible Women. Premieres Wednesday, August 11th at 9. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Before the story you know is the legend of how it began. Father Merit. How do you know my name? On August 20th. No, do not abandon me now. Oh, it's not here today. A new chapter begins. Joseph, run. Exorcist, the beginning. Rated R. Starts August 20th. Thank you very much. 
See the rainbow. Taste the rainbow. So, Bentley, what's the job? Well, Clockworks Parts have been stolen, and we are the prime suspects on Inspector Fox's list. Ah, she's really quite lovely when she's angry. Sly, we've got to clear our date. Oh, sorry. And the Murinator's got you covered. This is our biggest job yet, so we really have to work together. But the whole job is blown if we don't have someone at the controls. So, are you in? Rated E for everyone. Spidey Sense game at Burger King. Every game piece can win. Use your Spidey Sense to choose which web to scratch off and win stuff like a Sony Plasma TV, family of Saturn cars, even a million dollars. Look at him. He thinks this is his truck, but he's wrong. This is my truck. Eight years I've sat here. 130,000 miles of wind have passed through this nose. This truck is mine, but he does protect it. Help extend the life of your engine with Castrol GTX High Mileage, specially formulated to protect against oil burn-off better than competitive leading oils. Nice man. Nice man. Help older cars feel young again with Castrol GTX High Mileage. It's cool with your freak to the beat. are in and now one dream has come to an end you are eliminated only nine sexy ladies remain who will be the next raw diva it's up to you tune into raw tomorrow at 9 8 central on spike tv to see if your favorite diva makes the cut How'd you like to guard these bodies? It's Spike TV's Viva La Diva Sleepstakes, where you and a buddy get to be WWE Diva bodyguards for a day. Fly to Seattle courtesy of Orbitz and sit ringside at Raw September 13th as the new quarter million dollar Raw Diva is crowned. It's SpikeTV.com to enter. The critics are slobbing over Joe Schmo, too, and a slobbering critic is always a good thing. TV's funniest faux show, In Touch Weekly. The holy grail of unscripted shows, sharp, hugely entertaining, Chicago Tribune. She's low. The ultimate reality show parody, New York Daily News. Lick it, lick it, lick it. Funny, funny stuff. One of the most honest reality shows on the air, Los Angeles Daily News. God, I hate this book. Joe Schmo 2, tomorrow at 11.05 after Raw. The critics are drooling. You will be, too. All right, we're back. Hope you enjoyed all great 2004 commercials. This is the halftime seven to show. We'll begin talking about our Patreon, and yes, from the beginning of the show, we have a new show out. Part one of our look at uh, WCW's uh, racial discrimination lawsuit, patreon.com slash twin sheets, is where you go to listen to that. And, um, of course, like I said, we did the big plug at the beginning of the show, so we'll touch on uh, the beginnings of the lawsuits. We have... um, some interesting interviews, especially with Vince Russo. And then Ben Miller, the same guy did the Vince Russo interview, doing an interview with uh, Sonny Ono and Kerry Hector. We have Ole Anderson's uh, whatever you want to call it. And uh, 1992. Law firm interview, yes. Yeah. And then uh, just a lot of other stuff. So uh, sets, the, sets the table for part two where we'll get into the meteor side of the uh, legal case. 
as it finally it goes to court. So we'll have this is the this is the uh, the preamble, and then we'll get to the big deal on part two. But still, hell of a show. Five dollars a month gets you access. Listen to that and all the other shows that we've done in our almost seven complete years of the Patreon. Patreon.com slash Twin Sheets. So a lot of audio for your buck. Dollar month gets you access to the Discord and thanks in this segment. $25 as you pick a show for the week. Now I have a couple shows in your mind just in case a show that you might want to do might be something that we may have already done in the past or could be something that somebody has already picked on the calendar for another year. Ask Bix or myself about that. Let us know why you want to do your show, and then we'll get back with you and uh, make sure that you get your show on the air. So follow the protocol on the Patreon website. Regarding that, remember the 30-day rules in effect. Get this information in before 30 days of the show you want to do. 10-year rules in effect. 10 years from this year or next year. Wednesday, Tuesday, in the timeline. All that, and then some. Get you follow the rules, and you should be able to get your show on the air. Fifty dollars for a segment of the show if you choose, and a hundred for the whole show if you choose. That too is part of the perk. Patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, big that This week is our new and/or returning patrons. All right. Well, I, I put up the new episode today as we're recording this, so we haven't had the uh, full deluge of new patrons yet, but we got a few. So we'd like to thank Ash Preston. Thanks, Ash. Will Mullins. Thanks, Will. And Sean Arden. Thanks, Sean. So we thank you new patrons, old patrons, patrons that have left, came back, patrons been from the beginning. We thank everyone for your support at patreon.com slash between the sheets. And again, tell people about these WCW racial discrimination shows. A learning experience for all. You will not believe some of the stuff you'll hear. So get on that. All right, Bix is in a better uh, way this week, so he's back to talk about what's going on in the streaming services this week on IWTV or Fight TV. So, Bix, go at it. Well, on IWTV, to start off with on on demand, uh, and they're going up on YouTube as well, but also going up on IWTV, uh, more Wild Side TV shows finally being added. Well, good. That's good. That... Oh, go ahead. I said, that's good that they're getting getting back going with that again, because you have Bill Barron's been putting them on YouTube, so it makes sense to get them on IWTV as well, if you're going to do it that way. You have both of them. Yeah, they're now into uh, early May 02, is what they're up to. Uh, and maybe one of these days I'll bring back Exile, if I feel like it. just been in a funk, where the only thing I've wanted to do, basically podcast-wise, is this show and stuff involving this show. Yeah. But uh, the uh, the... The newest episode that is up is May 4th, Star Wars Day of 2002, featuring uh, Tony Mameluke versus Jeremy V, The Rage, I don't remember who they were, versus The Lost Boys, Bart Sawyer versus Scotty Wren, four touchdowns in one game, Crew Jones and Adam Jacobs against Onyx and Caprice Coleman, and a main event of David Young versus Elix Skipper. All right. So that's on demand, besides, of course, all the various shows that have gone up, uh, you know, on demand that had live streamed and stuff, of course, recently. And, okay, this was something I had missed. I'm curious to check it out, because I saw on the thumbnail, so I'll mention it. Uh, New Texas Pro on their indie show, Texas Indie Showcase 3 show, 
on July 22nd. It's up on demand. Has a main event of Brian Keith versus Rocky Romero. That sounds like a hell of a match that's worth checking out. I think I talked about that last week. Oh, the live air live. Yes. The live stream, yes. Yes, yes. yes. But that's up on demand now. And now coming up this week, as far as live streams, we start Friday night, 9 Eastern, Dreamwave Wrestling in LaSalle, Illinois. For should I start from the bottom or the top, relatively speaking? I'm not gonna read every match, of course. Well You're not gonna do what I did, I guess. No, 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 no. But uh got a show that includes Christian Rose defending the Dreamwave title against Matt Cardona, who uh had quite the trip to Japan uh for for DDT Peter Pan. I, I particularly liked him and Steph Delander going to the Mr. Danger Steakhouse and taking a photo with Matsunaga and calling themselves three deathmatch legends. Yeah. Uh, Dreamwave Alternative Championship, Gringo Loco defending against El Iho del Vikingo. Uh, tag titles, Wasted Youth of Marcus Mathers and Dylan McKay defending against Flamita and Aramis. Baby Bear Alex Shelley taking on Nick Aldis in a rematch of their uh, Impact, I almost said TNA Slammiversary match. Uh, in a match with wrestlers in it, Luigi Primo, Colt Cabana, and Bobby Orlando against Florida Man, Nacho Iginella, Warhorse, and Dan the Dead. There's a, uh, what is this? Is it a, uh, yeah, six-way where the winner is in a match, I think, the following month for the, to crown the first women's champion with Zeta Steel versus Becca versus Shaz McKenzie versus Kai McKenna versus Maki Ito versus Brittany Brooks. Uh, Brian Keith in action against Harton Tower, Mike Bennett on the card, Vic Capri on the card, and more. ICW No Holds Barred shockingly has a show. Can you believe it, Chris? I said that last week. Say that every week, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Um. So that is Saturday at 4 Eastern, includes... Hoodfoot defending the American Deathmatch Championship against Randy West. I'm not going to make the same joke you did last week. Uh, Matt Tremont against MM3. I believe that's Malcolm Monroe the third. Uh, John Wayne Murdoch on the card and more. Dreamwave comes back for a uh, second of two nights in a row on Saturday. At, let me make sure I'm reading the time right. 7 Eastern. For a show that, at least right now on IWTV, is listed as including Ultimo Dragon versus Matt Cross and Masha Slamovich versus Brian Keith. So, two very solid-looking shows from what's announced from Dreamwave uh, this coming weekend. Uh, DOA Wrestling has their Queen of Thorns tournament. And I'm assuming, yeah, they're running in Portland, so of course. The Rose City, Queen of Thorns, etc., uh, that is Saturday at 10.30 Eastern, so 7.30 local start time. Uh, non-tournament match with Rebel Kell defending against Shaz McKenzie. And your first round tournament match is Madsen versus Nicole Matthews, Amira versus Bambi Hall, Abigail Warren versus Tara Zepp, and Liza Hall versus Izzy McQueen. So, showcase for all of the women of the Northwest. Pretty cool idea. Yeah. So... There's that, and then the other notable show of the week is Sunday at 7 Eastern, Inspire AD, for a show headlined by Brian Keith against Francesco Kira, Semi, Gary J versus Uremora, and uh, Matt Cross in action, and more. So, 
If you're not already an IWTV subscriber, use code BTSPOD when you sign up, and we will get a referral fee for as long as you stay a paid subscriber. So that's independentwrestling.tv, code BTSPOD. Fight TV? Yes. So, Fight, uh, from what I could find between looking at their website and Twitter, and did I close the tweet I had up? Yes, I did. Give me one second. Did I open another window with this? Oh, come on. Vamp for a second while I figure out where the hell I put this. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All I right. thought I had the thing. I thought I had the tweet with the GCW open, and I somehow closed it without realizing it. So that's why I'm asking you to kill time for a second as I just search from GC Wrestling underscore Detroit. I wasn't prepared for this. All right, let me see what I can find here. All I'm right, pulling it up, uh, too. We're looking for it at the same time. I just wanted to filter some time while I was doing the search. Now I found it. Okay. So, yeah, so the... Let me make sure. Is this the late? No, this is not the latest. Let me make sure I have the latest. All right, so the latest update includes uh, Cole Radrick versus Crazy King in a death match. Uh, Blake Christian defending the GCW title against Speedball Mike Bailey. Commander versus Bad Boy Joe Janela. More friends of the show, as we've got Los Macizos taking on the, I believe, debuting on a strict... As far as the first time they've been on a strictly GCW show, Dominic Garini and Kevin Koo, Violence is Forever. Second Gear Crew taking on the Rejects. Uh, appearance by Nick Gage, Masha Slamovich in action, Bussy in action, and also an appearance by Jeff Hardy, who has his separate concert after, which I don't think is streaming on fight. So that that is the big show of the week on there. Um, I did check out some of the GCW Japan stuff, not everything. Um, and I would say if you like death matches, definitely check out the Janela Masashi Takeda match. I haven't watched uh, Masha Slamovich to Katie yet, but I heard that was also really good. But just, they're always fun shows. They're fairly short. You get to see wrestlers you don't normally see in GCW. So, all worth checking out if you have the time. So, if you're not already a Fight Plus subscriber or you want to order one of the Fight TV pay-per-views, go to tinyurl.com slash btsfight. That's B-T-S-F-I-T-E. And we will get a referral from uh, your subscription or your buy pay per view purchase or whatever. So tinyurl.com slash BTSFITE. And uh, there's something I may have watched uh, on Fight last week too, with potentially some help from uh, someone else you can use to support our show. Um, let's see. I'm looking at. Isn't there shows that you miss? I did not see anything particularly notable. At least looking, at least looking through the fight, te- fight plus specific schedule, there wasn't. Well, there is a Pro Wrestling Revolver show that's live on August third. Okay, from Dayton at the Calumet Center. Yeah, I did not see that on the schedule I was where looking John, at. But their website is a fucking mess. So, where John Moxley's going to be on that? John Moxley will be there. Oh, that's the no one. That's Moxley and no, I think they did announce it's Moxley and oh god, I forgot who it is. Well, it's not on this, but uh, Jake Chris defending the Revolver title against Matt Cardona. Alex Shelley defending the Revolver remix title against Trey Miguel, against Ace Austin, against Gringo Loco, against Damian Chambers, against Jordan Oliver. Then the uh, second gear crew defending the tag, world tag titles against TBA. Jessica against Maxi and Paler in a dream match. Okay, I have go- a... Uh... 
I, I have the full lineup. I found the tweet. Leo Rush against Myron Ree, Masha Slamovich against JT Dunn, Ali Catch against Rachel Armstrong, plus Sammy Callahan, Matt Raywald, Fulton, Crash Jackson, Phil Stamper, and more to be announced. Okay, so from what was not included on your thing, uh, Moxley's opponent is Ringo Loco in a loot, what's being billed at least as a Lucha Street fight. Uh, all three members of Second Gear crew are taking on Alpha Sigma Sigma. I'm not sure I know who any of them are. Uh, yeah, Alex Shelley opened challenge for his Remax Championship. I think you covered just about everything else. Other than, did you mention Ace Austin in action? I had the all of them in that one match. A whole bunch of people in, in the same match. Okay, yeah, I'm looking. The thing I'm looking at doesn't have that, but that was posted today. Well. So maybe that got changed. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. The whatchamacallit. Yeah, the tweet under the matches says Ace Austin, Trey Miguel, Jordan Oliver, and more. Uh, maybe they change. But that's what the Fight TV website had, and it's the card. It's a who knows. I guess you'll find out when you watch the show. I mean, I would assume that what they're tweeting on the promotion account is the most current well, I would, lineup. I guess I would hope so. I guess things had to be rebooked. But anyway. Today's episode between the Chiefs is sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. Even if you use incognito mode, your internet service provider storing your browsing data and meantime is even selling it. But Private Internet Access can help. Private Internet Access encrypts and routes your internet tra- traffic through one of its own servers, hiding your data from your internet service provider or network administrator. And with servers in over 75 different countries, you can get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private Internet Access comes easy to use ads, browser extensions of all devices, rock-solid privacy policy, open-source security, advanced customization settings, and it's just ranked the fastest VPN in the world by PC Mag. And if you sign up on Private Internet Access right now, you can take advantage of a special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners. we got three plans we offer. we got a regular monthly plan, $11.95 a month. Yearly plan, we get you down to $3.33 a month for $39.95 a year. And the number one plan, three years plus four free months, $1.98 a month, 83% off, $79 for first three years. Really thereafter, the best deal on the market. Why is that? Because it's so much more expensive than virtually every other VPN on the market. If you get it right now, you can take advantage of private internet access, 30-day risk-free challenge. Try it out for 30 days. See if you like it. If not, just return for a full refund. How you get that, you ask? Well, you go to privateinternetaccess.com. And try the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk-free. Now, by the way, actually, did you see any of the uh, Ring of Honor pay-per-view? Uh, n- no. Okay. I thought it was a very enjoyable show to talk about. So, but nothing to really talk about if you didn't see it. So, uh, yeah, I guess, wait, well, yeah, I guess we got to do the next week plug before we talk about Darkside or whatever. Though. Yes. All right. So next week on Between the Sheets, we go back to 1996. Where we'll talk about uh, WCW and how the, they're running high and W Angles high. So we'll have news on that. There's all kinds of other stuff going on there. Then we got Dave Meltzer in Japan. And this is going to be a lengthy, lengthy part of the show. As Dave Meltzer goes to New Japan for the G1 Climax. And also goes to All Japan Women's Show while he's there. So uh, lots of in-depth discussion about uh, Japanese wrestling from 1996, also including the J-Crown tournament. So, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty notable stuff. So if you're a fan of that era of Japanese wrestling, then this show's for you. Then we have uh, ECW losing television in New York. What a shock. 
And uh, we got uh, WF where uh, morale is down for many, many reasons. And uh, Ahmed Johnson gets a serious injury. We'll talk about that and more next week on Between the Sheets. Are right, you following me on Twitter at Chris Zellner? K R I S Z E K R I S S S K R I S Z E L O N E R. Show proper at BT She's Pod. Big Set David Bix. And yes, Dark Side of the Rain this week featured Bam Bam Bigelow. And um, yeah, I mean, it was an extremely tight episode. You had Bam Bam's entire family, basically, all of his kids, his ex wife. You had Shane Douglas, Taz, DDP. So a pretty strong representation of talking heads on this episode. And, uh, you know, basically hit the stories, told the Andre MSG story, which I was glad they did that. Um, this was an episode that suffered from the time constraints. But um, because it's something they didn't touch on probably as they should have, like Japan. But um, I thought they did a great job in balancing everything around the family. And, um, yeah, I mean, another episode they got sat at the end, you know, but this time it's, they put the heat on the, on, the, on the doctors and how these doctors were just feeding these wrestlers with fucking drugs. Mm-hmm. And it's just a damn shame. A damn shame that we had all these doctors out there that was doing that. And they do it today. With, with common people, still do. And it's just sad. That's one of the reasons why this country is like it is. It's because so many people are fucking medicated all the time and high and geeked up on prescription drugs and other hard drugs. Yeah, I mean, look, a lot of it was also the pharmaceutical companies, especially Purdue and how they were trying to whitewash painkillers as not being what they are. Um, and also just, yeah, there were a lot, I mean, they had gotten some of the existing restrictions relaxed. That's, besides the introduction of OxyContin, that's another part of why everything came to a head when it did. It's not like it was just OxyContin, it was, uh, I, I always try to remember to make sure I say this right. It ain't just OxyContin, you say it's all of them, it's perks, it's spikes. But the, it's well, that's Oxycontin. what I'm saying, like, the, the restrictions got relaxed to where... I think you could only prescribe opiates, or at least most opiates, for moderate to extreme pain, but they started allowing them for a certain opiates for mild to moderate pain. So that that opened the doors as well. And, you know, you, you have bullshit like Purdue saying, oh, if there's a time release, you can't get addicted, and all that bullshit. You know, which, doubly so, because the time release didn't really work on OxyContin and most of the others. You know, it was just a load of bullshit. It, it wasn't real. And, you know, then these wrestlers also have, you know, in Bam Bam's case, it was his endocrinologist who he saw for his diabetes, who was just also a fucking mark. Yeah. And just gave him whatever he wanted. Yeah. It's just just terrible. Dr. Joel Hackett. Yeah. People people like that. Just terrible. Zahorian. uh, Oh, what's his face? Benoit's doctor. Why am I forgetting his name? Uh, Oh, Phil Aston. Yeah. So, but but other than that, I mean, it was a good episode. Like I said, it touched on it touched on WrestleMania and LT and 
think that's ECW, and I thought the Taz stuff about the uh, the spot going through the ring was interesting. I you really know, how like, was, yeah, how in-depth he went with that, yes. And he seemed like he was feeling dirty as he did. He needed a shower afterwards. Yes, for, I, he was for like, oh, I can't believe inside. I'm, yeah, I'm sure I'm explaining this much, yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, I like the stories about Bam Bam before he was in wrestling that they were telling, that DDP was telling. I mean, it, it, it was good stuff. It's really, really, it was a good show. Yeah, I had no idea he and DDP knew each other before wrestling. It, it makes mm-hmm. sense, but yeah, yeah. So you know that was that was interesting to learn about. But too. but the one thing, but the one thing is, is this, it's been yet another like it was another show of a wrestler with major drug problems. But that will change next week. As yes, we find we we will finally get a dark side of the rain that would be a lighthearted show. As we talk about Bash of the Beach 2000, Bix finally gets his uh, moment in the sun on this one. And well, uh, uh, yeah, well no, I'm not going to be on Pollock and Thurston next week because next week's the WWE quarterly report. Well, this coming week now that it's coming out, the WWE quarterly report. So I'm going to be they're going to have me on uh, next week after the finale to talk. Well, whatever, about whatever. Yeah. But still, but still. A, uh, a show where there's going to be a whole bunch of liars on there, and so he's going to tell the biggest lie. <laughs> yeah. So it should be quite the show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, of the talking heads who we've seen, yeah, I'm just kind of assuming at this point that Jeff is going to be the most honest. So, yeah, it should be Cer- quite the show. I mean, certainly based on their recent histories, I would I would think that Jeff would be the uh, the most honest of the people you'd expect. That of the th- of the three key people that we know are in the episode, as far as him, Russo, and Bischoff. Yeah. So, we'll see how that is, and it's gonna be a nice break. Just because, like, yeah, the show's depressing a lot of the time anyway. But I mean, this this season has been so much. Here are how drugs destroyed this person and their family's life. And, and I think a lot of it's because there's been so much family involvement in this season, more than there's ever been. Yes. It makes it more personal that way. You know, and then Janetti obviously is going to have drugs, but it's going to be a different kind of. Well, he's still story. alive. <laughs> well, that too. He's still alive. So yeah, that should be quite the show when that comes out as well. But anyway, all right, that's it for this segment. Let's get back to the rest of the show. Let's go to Japan now. Land of the Rising Sun. We start in New Japan Pro Wrestling, and it ain't good. More bad news for this promotion as their July 26th show at Cork and Hall drew 900 fans. Announced at 1219. The smallest announced crowd Dave's ever heard for this promotion in the building. It never fails to amaze Dave the excuses promotions come up with. So the one that, for this one is G1's coming up and their fans are saving money for the August shows. As if somehow they never run Cork and Hall late July before. Tenuganichiro team with all Japan's Masafuchi as the world's oldest tag champions, keeping the all Asian belts over Masuki Naruse and Masuya Nagai in 1817 when Tenru pinned Naruse with his 53 year old, even though he's 54. Name and hold, a combination jackhammer and brainbuster stayed the same. The main event that people didn't want to see was pushing the young guys on top, so it's directly investment. With Hiroshi Tanahashi and Koji Kanemoto, who isn't young, over Shinsuke Nakamura and Rusuke Taguchi. Manama Nakanishi and Ultima Dragon also debuted their outsider tag team, beating Yuji Nagata and Takashi Azuka. After the win, Nakanishi and Ultima challenged Nagata and Kendo Kashin for All Japan's world tag titles. 23-year-old Yujiro Takahashi debuted on the show, losing to Nafumi Yamamoto. 
Takahashi was a national collegiate champion at 185 pounds last season for Nihon College in Tokyo. He's five foot seven and a half, 225 pounds, so it sounds like he's Takashi Segura type. Because his background's a real wrestler, they're already grooming him. He is a guy that I remember at this time when he debuted. Young Lion running down the ramp. I mean, well, I wasn't going that. He was a guy that people thought was going to be by the 2010s, the ace of the company. I can never figure out what the, what people saw on him though. His real background. They thought Besides he's going to be. Ka- they thought he was going to be Kazuki Fujita, yeah. but staying in New Japan, not leaving. That's what they thought. If the MMA boom doesn't die. That dude probably starts. That dude probably does MMA fights and becomes a big star if he wins. Yeah. But you know he 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 had a, he's had a good career, but he's never been he's never been what they thought he was going to be. Well, and past a certain point, they were clearly resigned to that. You know, like yes. Clearly, they were kind of trying to groom him and Naito at the same time, and then. It's like he was, cut bait and made him this comedy-ish prelim guy. Yeah, Naito, you know, who wasn't too long after you drove. I mean, he was well, he was nowhere team, near. They? Yeah, they became a tag team, yes, but he was nowhere near what they thought you know, he was going to be. You know, I mean, Yujiro was the guy who and Takashi Segura thing. That was a thought he was going to be New Japan's Takashi Segura, but. It didn't work out that way. Much like, hey, people forget Toriano when he first debuted as a serious wrestler, you know, with his size and everything. People thought he was going, you know, be a big deal. And he'd be in a big deal just for completely different reasons. <laughs> so, all right, let's look at the results of this show. What an opening match we have American Dragon over Stampede Kid. Brian Danielson over TJ Wilson, Tyson Kid. Yes. That's your opening match. Then we have Naoyama, the Fumiyamoto over Yujiro Takahashi. Went to a 15-minute draw with Osama Nishimura. Hiroshi Tenzan beats Scott Norton. CTU, Justin Liger, Jado, Ghetto, and Kasushi Takamura over Hito, Winoru Tanaka, Masiru Kagihara, Wataru Inoue, and Hiroki Goto. Benama Nakanishi, Ultimate Dragon, and Yuji Nagan, Takashizuka. Yutaki Yoshie over Shinya Makabe. All these tag titles, Tenru and Fuchi retain over the guy in the Rusei, and Tanahashi Kanemoto over Nakamura and Taguchi. You know, it's really impressive how good Hiroki Goto has stayed without piling up any real major injuries that seem to hamper him. Yeah? I mean, especially given the style he works. Like, you compare him to some of his contemporaries, and, you know, granted, Tanahashi's doing a lot more main events, but still... Compared to the shape Tanahashi's in right now in terms of being broken down to the shape that Goto's in. And the thing, too, is that, um, I mean, he's been going at it for 20 years now, basically. Yeah. All these guys now, I mean, they, they, were, they were young back then. Tanahashi's closing, closing on 25 years. So, they're getting older. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, they've been going at it for a long fucking time. Yeah. Now, in a different time, where it's not this promotion collapsing and all the Enochism bullshit and stuff, what do you think that Harry Smith and TJ Wilson mean to this company? 
it's hard to say because I mean you can blame the Nokiaism stuff, but there was so much other turnaround in this company, multiple ownership changes, yeah. leadership changes across the top. It's hard to say. I mean, because you don't not, have that stead- steadiness. If nothing else, I think they stick with Harry as a project a lot longer in this era. That, Maybe. I mean, people forget, like, he was considered a New Japan dojo-trained guy. Like, they were pushing him as, like, the big young lion for a brief spell long before he came back with the push, you know, as a tag team in Suzuki Gun with Archer. Yeah, I mean... It's hard to say. Who knows? Because of all the uneasiness in that promotion. So much of it. They probably are in a better spot. But who's to say that they wouldn't have left for WWE anyway? True. There would have been that interest regardless. So. But yeah, I mean, tough times here. For New Japan. Tough, tough times. I mean, honestly, given the state of the company at the time and how they were handling the women and everything, I mean, I hate to say it because especially with how good she was for experience at the time, she should have gotten there on her own. But, like, Natty probably benefited a lot from them all coming in as a group. Yes. And another thing, too, is Tokyo became... New Japan's worst city. Yes. That's the problem. Oh, as far as the the draw here, yes. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem. When your worst city is the number one city in the country, that's not good. So. But, it was never their strongest city. It was Osaka was always their strongest city. Yeah, but Tokyo was always great for them. Yeah. Tokyo is always their main city. It's always, I mean, this is the way it is. Osaka was the strongest city, but Tokyo was always the main city. Just like in wrestling today, Chicago is always usually the strongest city, but it's not New York's always going to be the main city, no matter what. No matter what. Yeah. All right, Pearl Wilson Noah. Biggest show of the week was August the 1st in Nagoya, which is a disappointment. We've only 33,000 fans announced 4,800 for a car. We announced all the top names will have blind lottery matches. So it's possible dream matches like Mr. Masao against Kino Kabashi would take place. Dave guessed people didn't think it would happen, and they were right. They pulled Junakayama out of the lottery and announced he would defend his hardcore title against his usual tag partner, Akito Saito, who is from Nagoya, in a match that usually wouldn't be booked. Akiyama won by pin at the two high knees at 7.05. Rick Steiner also won Harley Race's WLW title as expected from Daisuke Ikeda with a Death Ballet bomb in 11.12. And other an unannounced singles matches, Yoshinarigawa pinned Timon Honda with a cradle on 4.15. Yoshiro Takayama pinned his normal tag partner, Takuma Sano, in 10.45 after German suplex. Kenikabashi pinned Bison Smith in 17.04 after a brain buster. And Mitsuharu Masawa went to a 30-minute Thailand draw with Akira Tawe. Tawe has best match in a long time. It was said, doing a lot of new moves such as Dragon Screws and a figure four. He needed this as they're building for a shot at Kabashi's GSC title on September 10th at Budokan. The premise behind trying to sell Tawe as a challenger at this point is that he and Kabashi have wrestled 18 times singles matches, and Kabashi only has four wins, six draws, Eight Taue wins since both started. Taue was a bigger star since he had a name, and Sumo whilst Kobashi was just a young guy with no name coming in. They both basically started at the same time, too. They're still talking about Sawa Nogawa versus Takayama Minoru Suzuki in the GAC IWGP tag title match, although there are major political ramifications putting that one together. 
There's also talk of Suzuki against Naobichi Marafuji in a singles match, which will eliminate the Marafuji Kenta match that often steals the show at the Budokan. Results Jun Yuzumita and Sushi Kikuchi and Kishikawabata over Masao Inoue, Makoto Hashi, and Koro Suzuki. Namucha Marafuji and Kenta over Mahamayone and Goshiyazaki. Takeshi Rikio, Yoshinobu Kanamaru, Takashi Segura, Masashi Oyanya, Richard Slinger, Humitu Guerrero, Ricky Marvin, and Trevor Rhodes. That's a group. Then we have Agawa over Honda, Takayama over Sano, Steiner over Ikeda, Kawashi over Bison, Akiyama over Saito, and Taiwei going 30 minutes with Masawa. I mean, Noah doing basically their version of a Mystery Vortex or Battle Bowl or whatever you want to call it here. Interesting. Yeah, and they did this other times too. Um, I'm trying to remember, did the GHC Hardcore Openweight title, did that eventually turn into the national title or did it get retired and now the current national title just fills a similar role? I think whatever you're saying, yes. That it didn't, it did. Like, the hardcore title stopped existing at some point, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, they're the top company at this time, and it's clear why. Yeah, they are. Even if there's a weird mix of talent in some of these matches. It's about to get real weird. July 3rd, Phoenicia Kawa, which just uh, 2400, had the first women's match in the history of the promotion. As they contracted with Neo Ladies Pro Rest. Why? And had Kyoko Inoue and Yoshiko Tamura over Yuki Miyazaki and Etsuko Mita. Well, at least Masai Genki was not in the match. All the wrestlers watched the match from the dressing room. Kyoko Inoue was a huge Noah fan, has been in just about every Budokan Hall show main appearance on No Show last June as a second in Junakiyama. That opened the show. They went 16 15. Yeah, they should have put Tanny Mouse and Masai Genki in that match, made it a, a six-woman match. That'd have been even better, Bix. You know, I know you know you agree. Uh, Kenta over Goshiyazaki. Miss Omoto and Trevor Rhodes over Junior Zemina Hurricane. Why are you like this? Rick Steiner, Hubitu Gerrera, and Ricky Marvin <laughs> over Daisuke Akeda, Mamayone, and Kishin Kawabata. Takeshi Rikio and Namichi Marafuji over Yoshinarigawa and Shoshikuchi. Kanakabashi, Timon Honda, Makoto Hashi over Akatoshi Saido, Masa Anoue, and Masashi Oyagi in 23 minutes. Junakiyama, Yoshinobu Kanamaru, Mitsuharu Masawa, and Kuro Suzuki. And Akira Tawe, Takuma Sano, and Takashi Segura over Yoshio Takayama, Bison Smith, and Richard Slinger in your main event. So there is that. Now, the big uh, stuff in Japan during our week is in 0-1. But before we get to the Fire Festival, we have this. Shane Hashimoto will be undergoing right shoulder surgery in early September. We have his final match on August 30th. Hashimoto injured his shoulder one year ago and re-injured in February. He was told if he continued working on it and the pain worsened, he'd be forced to retire. He's done so much damage to his shoulder by continuing working on it that there's only a 50% chance the surgery can repair the shoulder. And even with surgery, he could be as long, out as long as 12 to 18 months. He kept pushing on because of feeling that zero one wouldn't be able to draw without him. Well, now they're going to have to survive months without him. Masato Tanaka also has a shoulder injury, while Noyo Ogawa has been out of action because he's training for pride. Hashimoto said with Shinjiro Tani, Tatsuya Takiwa, and Koya Sato, who was put over in the Fire Festival this past week because he needed to create another star, doing so well of late, the company could survive with himself on the sidelines for a few months. Well, little does everybody know what's coming soon. But yeah, Ashimoto, man. 
he's just he's beat broken down in this time period but he just keeps on keeping on and that's what a lot of these wrestlers did you know all the all Japan guys I mean it's just that was their mentality you know well also the promotions have splintered so much that each promotion has like this one overwhelming top star who's this aging beat up guy mm-hmm and who especially is going to draw more on spot shows than the others. You know, that, it was Bob in All Japan. It became Masawa and Noah. But Bob brought down for different reasons. He did, but still, you get what I'm saying, though. Like, like not that they were... Not that they died the same way, but there are parallels between Masawa and Hashimoto's deaths. Some, yeah. Both were clearly not wanting to deal with the realities of their health while having to be the face of their companies and carry their companies and all that. You know, with Hashimoto, it seemingly aggravated the stress side of things a lot, too. And it just was a recipe for disaster. And, you know, Masawa, you know, you throw in all the head drop bullshit, and there's that with him. Yeah, sadly. So, because Zero One, I mean, you could already tell in 2004 that they were not anywhere near the level they were in 2001, 2002. Or even where they were a year earlier. Or even 2003. I mean, but definitely 2001, 2002. I mean, they, they had become a glorified indie promotion by this point in time. Because the people they're using are basically indie guys, you know, as their as their main people. It's not like Which they changed I mean, that much who was on the roster or even the Americans they used, but we'll get into Fire Festival results and we'll, we'll you know, yeah, sure, we'll see. But you know, I mean, it's just it's just different. All right, the Fire Festival, which included three shows in Tokyo and the John Cell, two thousand and five, the Cork and Hall, with a surprise winner in Koei Sato. Saw an awesome match last year with Satoshi Kojima, and this year Pentakyle Moore in a major upset in 2204 with the German suplex. Shijiro Tati led to go to the finals, but was upset in his round round match with Kentaro Kanemura. Moore and Kojima were both tied with five points with the wins over Hirotaka Yokoi and Wataru Sakana, respectively, but Moore advanced as he pinned Kojima in their match. The show was a pay per view, which also included Riki Choshu and Shinyashimoto beating Jason the Legend and Steve Karina. I always forget who's Jason the Legend. Oh fuck! I'm looking. Um, that is uh, George King. Yes, thank you. George King, who once worked as Monsieur de Barbarossa. Yeah, Alexander the Great, Jason X. Yes. Well, what else would he be best known as besides this? Nothing. It was pretty much just this. So where was where was he from? He was, just was a guy. I mean, he was. Uh, was he? He UCW was American. Or? He was American, dude. He just didn't. I mean, no. The the only non zero one and non WWE tryout dates for him are Western Canada, and then yeah, actually the the WWE tryout is Western Canada too. Well, maybe it was Canadian. I don't know. Yeah. Um, defeating Harry Smith on May thirty first oh five in uh, Edmonton. Hmm. All right. So the Fire Festival. 
which included uh, three shows Tokyo. I already read them. All right, so the results of the Cork and Hall show for the finals. We'll just start with that first. Kirogi Waguda over Fugo Fugo Yumeji. Oh, that is definitely a zero one opener comedy match. Yoshida Sasaki over Shinsuke Z Yamagasa. Then in uh, five wrestle matches, Koi Sato Masato Tanaka, Satoshi Kojima Hirotaka Yokoi, Takamori over Torskata, and Katar Kanemura over Shinjiro Tani in 78 seconds. Hmm. Then we have Ryuji Sai and Osamu Namaguchi over Junka Sai and Nakashi Tiger. Hashimoto and Choshu over Karino and Jason the Legend. Taichizaki Iwatomohiro Ishii and Nakoda Daka over Leonardo Spanky, Super Crazy, and Josh Daniels. And then Koi Sato over to Kalamore in the finals. Now, we have the other shows. We have the entire run here. So we'll start with July 27th at Iwaki City Gym, number two, from 1800. Psycho Simpson and Josh Daniels over Yoshida Sasaki and the Summer Namaguchi. Jason the Legend over Akashi Tiger. Then we got uh, Hirotaka Yokoi going to a 30-minute draw with Kawamori. This tournament match. Shiro over Koi Sato. Non-tournament, Shinjiro Tani and Ryuji Sai over Riki Choshu and Tomihiro Ishii. Then back to the tournament, Sushikajima and Tetsuro Kuroda went to a double countout. Masan Tanaka over Kentaro Kanemura. And then our main event, Shin Yashimoto, Tatsuto Takeiwa, and Jun Kasai over Steve Carino, Leonardo Spanky, and Super Crazy. Does anything sum up the appeal of Zero One more than that main event? Yeah. yeah. That's a group of wrestlers. All right, July 29th was Cork and Hall in front of 1500. We're here. Taka Yokoi beat uh, Tetsuya Kuroda with an, the Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira spinning choke. So the the uh, Anaconda, presumably. Yeah. Koi Sato over Kanemura with a German suplex. Satoshi Satoshi Kojima over Wataru Sakata with a lariat. And Shinjiro Tani over Shiro Koshinaka with a German suplex. Non-tournament matches. Akashi Tiger over Sama Namaguchi. Ruji Sai and Junkasai over Kirogu Guda and Josh Daniels. That is a tag team. Leonardo Spanky and Super Crazy over Masato Tanaka and Yoshida Sasaki. And Shinyashimoto and Tatsutake Iwa over Steve Carino and Psycho Simpson. Then we get to uh, Osaka Professional Gen number two on July 30th for 700 fans. Non tournament matches Masakariso and Shinsuke Z Yamagasa over Kiryu Yuta and Nakash Tiger. Psycho Simpson and Josh Daniels over Tatsutake Iwa and Osama Namaguchi. Shinyashimoto and Koi Sato over Steve Carino and Jason the Legend. And Satoshi Kojima, Leonardo Spanky, and Super Crazy over Shinjiro Otani, Jun Kasai, and Ryuji Sai. Sure. Tournament matches, Shinjiro Otani over Masato Tanaka. Tetsuya Kuroda over Takao Mori. Katara Kanemura going to double count with Shiro Koshinaka. And Wataru Sakata over Hirotaka Yokoi. 30, July 31st, different Ariaki. This is the last uh, show before the finals. Which only drew 900 fans. So Otani beat Sato by submission with a triangle. Amori being Kojima with the axe driver. That's a sick finisher where you put the guy on your back and sit down and get him a pile driver. And Sakata over Kuroda. Highlight of the show said it been an awesome junior title match where Tachi Taki would have been super crazy in 1428 with Death Bomb off the top rope. Crazy was said to have been fantastic in this match. After, fan, after losing, fans gave him a major stand innovation. All right, non tournament matches. Yasuda Sasaki over Samanamaguchi. Ikoto Adaka, Ruji Sai, and Kirigo Iguda over Jun Kasai, Shinsuke Zinamigasa, and Akashi Tiger. Steve Carino, Leonardo Spanky over Jason the Legend and Josh Daniels. Shinoshimoto and Jun Kasai over Shiro Koshinaka and Psycho Simpson. And then the title match where Takiwa retained the NWA UPW 01 International Junior title over Super Crazy. Bix. 
thoughts? I always loved how the uh, junior title had the three uh, sanctioning bodies. Well, they all work together, yes. Yes. Um, Fire Festival was always fun. Always had a bit of a different energy from the other tournaments. Uh, trying to think anything else really to add here. Um, for those not aware, the Leonardo Spanky gimmick was basically that Hashimoto thought that Brian Kendrick looked like Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Yeah, he came in. Did, he came into a dance version of "My Heart Will Go On" by Celine Dion and did the old Titanic uh, pose on the ropes. Yes, yes. And what else here? Um, I don't know if I have too much more to add at this point. I guess that the uh, the Omori finish. I mean, it's similar to the watch his face to the Tremperetta move, among other things. If people have never seen it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I have too much more to add. And All just, right. I mean, you know, no rowdy tag matches, so. No. Even if they're wrestling in the tournament. Big Japan Pro Wrestling. Fitrio Grand Hamada captured his first heavyweight title of his Japanese career. At one point, when title still meant something 10 years back, he held more lighterweight titles than just by any other wrestler in history. He won August the 1st in Osaka when he beat Men's Teo for the Big Japan Heavyweight title for a Pat Crowd 1300 an outdoor show. Hamada briefly uh, held the America's Heavyweight in Los Angeles in 1981. Huh. And had no results to this show, so there's that. Oh, that's interesting. Huh? Sounds like a fun match. Um, although, Big Japan men's Teo was kind of hit or miss. Yeah, but it's, te- it's Hamada. I'm pretty sure they probably did some Michinoku Pro type shit. Yeah. So, there is that. Yes. DDT ran at Cork and Hall and doubled New Japan's attendance with 17.94, basically. Daichi Kikamoto, Kenshin, and Riki Sinchu over Masa Takanashi, Maneo Fujita, and Kota Ibushi in your opening match. Very young Kota Ibushi. Muscle Sakai made his debut, losing the Super Uchu Power. And then we had this insanity. Shoichi Chimiya, doing his Hollywood Hulk Hogan gimmick, wrestled all kinds of people. A high school judoka beat, th- beat them. Masaru Shimada, Nagao Kimi, Shimon Nagao beat Hogan. Then Hogan beat Shimon Nagao. And then Hogan beat Kusano. And these are non-wrestlers. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know who they are. Don't remember. Then we have Hiro Kudo, Fatoshi Miwa and Showako over Boyan Sawada Julie, Gordis Matsuno, Inokuma Sentoin Kumachari, and Giant. In a handicap match, Tomiko Hashimoto and Sayamura Hashi beat Mikami. And in our main event, a three way for the KOD tag titles, Dan Shoko Dino and Glenn Spector, Q, defeated Takashi Saki and Hitaro and President Sancho Takagi and Ryuji Ito to win the championships. As I guess Shirley Doe was not the only uh, Pittsburgh-based indie wrestler in this era to get a tour with the DDT and some of its friendlies, like fighting Ultimate Crazy Kings. No, Glenn Spector. How about that? Any old title and everything. Yeah. I can only imagine what his nickname being Q here, teaming with Dino, means, though. 
Well, <laughs> you know. Speaking of these leaves, though, we got Kageki. Yes, we do. For Russ Kageki, August 1st in Nagoya Wonder City. For 244 fans, we have Nasty Black Panther and Dragon Yuki over Kurokaji and Yosuke Hidaka. Tyra over Kaze. Garuda over Uma. In Diablo's 10th anniversary match, Takamishinoku beat him by disqualification. And then Cosmo Soldier won the Hakana City Lightweight title, beating Azteca in your main event. A true Kakegi show. Osaka Pro ran Cork and Hall on July 30th from 1568. So they heavily out during each man. We have Dagoro Kashiwa and Yutaka over Grand Hamada Masada Matoba. Men's Tail over Black Buffalo. Daioqual and Onro over Miracle Man and Tiger's Mask. Goa over Billy Kincaid. And Denson Man, Ebison, and Gamma over Kishiba Kamen, Pero, and Super Dolphin in your main event. Yes. Denson Man, Bixis, or Tortuga. Okay. And just remember, everyone, this ain't their home area either. That they're out there no, they would, they, they would, yeah, they would run Cork and on occasion. Yes. And uh, Ebison is still Kikazawa here, right? Uh, yes. Well, all Japan whip. Yeah, I was just gonna say now all Japan women to close out the Japan part here as it's on its list. All Japan, all Japan women's annual Grand Prix tournament used to be a two-month major round robin deal. This year's cut the one night single elimination at Cork and Hall. And they drew 900 fans on August 1st. Kamiko Mikawa won a tournament for the first time with wins over Amazing Kong, Tomoko Watanabe, Takako Inoue, and Hikaru. The win gives her a shot at the Triple WA champion Ayako Amada on August 29th, also at Cork and Hall. Yeah. <laughs> the tale of two promotions, New Japan and All Japan Women. Yeah, one of these days I'd love to know more about why... Why the bigger Joshi promotions just all collapse around the same time? That, you know, All Japan Women and Gaia both close within a few months of each other in 05, and then the following year, A to Z, the remnants of Arsian also folds. So, I'm assuming there's a reason that affected everyone, I just don't know what it is. I guess it become passe? I guess. I don't know. You know, and again, I mean, all of pro wrestling in J- Japan in general was was uh, struggling, basically, except for Dragon Gate and maybe a couple of the promo- indie promotions. DDT, obviously, but well, just, and Noah, of course, and Noah, but Noah wasn't always. I mean, they had their run, but they would fall too. So, all right, Lucha, we're making all this one session because we have a small amount of. Uh, of Lucha. We start with AAA. There's more told that Latin Lover, who's AAA's biggest draws, are going to get it out as he's realized that the Garza has upped his income working independently. Lover's re- real name, Victor Resendez, has stuck around. Yeah, he was talking about leaving in June when Garza did, because Antonio Pena's gotten him several soap opera gigs. He also has a size stripper business. Another issue is Pena is now pushing Randy, who plays a similar role Latin Lover played. The Pretty Boy Stripper Dancer deal ahead of Latin Lover. Randy is younger. He's a younger worker, he's cheaper, and he's easier to manipulate. To, to draw your own conclusions there. Randy, of course, being Intocable. Oh, that's right. I thought he was originally... Uh... Oh, God. Of all of all the uh, Barrio boys' names to have, he's Randy. 
<laughs> yes. You forgot we're taping this out of order, Bex. No, I didn't. (laughs) More on that later in the show. Uh, Gronda has been back in action for AAA. Oh, speaking of... uh... I didn't rewind (laughs) it, but whatever. That's all right. Let's not beat this in the ground yet. Uh, the AAA team is August 1st in Guadalupe. Charlie Manson, or it's just a Carly Manson, regained the UWA lightweight title beating Zorro. Zorro then came back in the next match to win the uh, PAP lightweight title. Promotionis and Antonio Pena. Yeah. yeah, beating Mr. Aguila due to the interference by Minis Otagoncito and Mascarilla Sagrada. Early in the show, Aguila helped mini, mini Mr. Aguila and Mini Bisonegro win the tag match from Otagoncito and Mascarilla Sagrada. They also had a four-way to crown the mixed tag champions with Granapachi and his daughter Fabia Pachi beating Chessman and Tiffany, Electro Shulk, uh, Granapachi's son-in-law, and Lady Apache, his daughter, and Oriental and Cinta Moreno. So there's Triple A. Similar, Paraguay Jr. Pinfolino in 721 July 30th in Rio at their spear to win the Leyenda de Plata Trofeo, the Santo Trophy, when Artagarza gave Felino a low blow and Perito had distracted referee. Big angle took place after the match. You know, the Santo came out to present Perito with the trophy. Perito started bad-mouthing the original Santo, saying he was not a great wrestler. It was only a big deal in the movies and fake fights with vampires and mummies, but that his father, Paraguay Sr., was in the front row, was the, really the greatest wrestler in the history of Lucha Libre. Perito then broke the trophy, Santo attacked Perito until Garza jumped back in. Negro Costas made the save, which sets up uh, Santo Costas and Atlantis against Garza, Perito, and Tarzan Boy. And this is about to really bust CMLL wide open. Which comes at an interesting time, because this is the time the Olympics are going on, and this stuff's not on television. But this is when Mystico starts uh, getting in the mix. Yes, although we do eventually get a tape of the uh, Santo... Perito singles because it was being sold outside of Arena Mexico when Phil Schneider went there on one of his mysterious. Well, they also did year in review where they aired some some of this stuff. Yeah. Speaking of Santo, there was a statue made in the original Santo in Tulancingo where he was born. That was the butt of jokes because it was such a bad statue. After all the bad publicity, the city constructed a new statue that was unveiled on July 31st, which is the exact opposite. The new one is seven feet tall, weighs three thousand pounds, showing a Herculean guy. Herculean looking guy under a silver mask. <laughs> See, you can't contract your uh, national hero luchador statues outside out to the guys who do the Confederate statues. <laughs> well, there's no Confederacy in Mexico, Banks. No, but I'm talking about how when people started pulling down the Confederate statues a few years ago, remember how it like it was shocking how easily some of them were coming down. It turned out a bunch of them were like tin, just stuck together. They're old. No, but they weren't like actual robust, solid statues. They were just a bunch of pieces of tin glued together. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. Oh, we've got a follow up on the gloss discussion from a few weeks ago. No, no I'm not there yet. Oh, it sorry. I scrolled too far. Yeah. It looks like Ciencaras, Camilo Reyes, is going, really going to retire by the end of this year. He slowed down his wrestling a lot. He first talked about retiring in September, the anniversario, but of late. The word is he'll do so in December. Reyes turns 55 on October 18th. He has been wrestling for almost 31 years. And he does and he pretty does. much retire. Yeah. He does pretty much retire. Yeah. Yes. He comes back for some matches, but yeah, he retires. 
I still want to know why uh, Christian Casanova's WWE name is a Brazilian person saying Cienacaris' real name. <laughs> Carmelo Hayes. Yes. Carmelo Reyes. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure the Hayes comes from Michael Hayes. Toot, toot, toot. I mean, I gotta think. Let, let's hope he's not drinking when he's uh, giving any advice to Car- Carmelo Hayes. Well, he's not He's not around him, is he? I, I mean, I would hope not. It used to be in NXT. Some, I see him, you see him around, but I don't know. But anyway. Fishman is 53 years old, is completely bankrupt. It's so bad he gave out his home phone number to see Juarez and he sent all of his trophies, belts, masks, and other memorabilia to anyone who wanted them for a good price. Fishman was a huge star in the 80s for UWA, best known for his feud with Pedro Aguayo Sr. His mask would have brought 20 grand at one point, but when he lost in 2000 for the, the Guas promotion, they went bankrupt and he never got a dime. He wrestled regularly for nearly 30 years. Some of his problems date back to his divorce in the mid-90s from Lola Gonzalez, who got almost everything in the split. I gotta think he found a collector in Japan who gave him decent money for that stuff, right? I kind of doubt it. I hate it. You think he's not a big enough name to where... No, I just think he just... He probably didn't wait on that. He needed money. Oh, yeah, because the Japanese collectors of Lucha Stuff Boom hadn't quite started yet, right? Yeah. It was like a year or two away. Yeah. Just unfortunate. Yeah, a lot of a lot of a lot of hard luck here. A lot of hard luck. Yeah. Pato Sombrado, a contestant on the Mexican version of Big Brother, did a celebrity pro wrestling stint on August first at Arena Colosseum Monterrey, doing a hair excuse me, Habillera Cachabillera match against local star Conan Plus. Has anyone ever held a we- grudge in for longer and weirder ways than uh, Elizondo did against Conan? <laughs> Conan has a lot of these grudges against him. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, there is also Paco, but still, Paco didn't come up, you know, start having Conan Plus, Conan 2000, Mega Conan, Conan Gay. No, he didn't do that, but still. Well, speaking of boys. <sighs> Let's go to IWF with Rico. Where they ran uh, what was called the Ring of Honor Invasion over the weekend with Homicide, BJ Whitmer, and Dan Moff in, although all only were mid-card matches. On July 30th in Cuomo, before 500 fans, Homicide and Bad Boy Bradley, Jeff Bradley from Florida, lost to Ricky Banderas and New Jack, while Chicano and Slash Venom, Flash Flanagan, went to a draw with Dan Moff and BJ Whitmer. On July 31st in Yalco, before 1,000, Chicano and Venom beat Homicide and Whitmer and Bad Darius from Homicide. So that been a great match. Man, then the show was Apollo and Savio Vega over Bradley and Ray Gonzalez. And Savio and Ray Gonzalez will headline August 7th in Bayamon. Yeah. So, uh, I'm trying to figure out if I should s- s- tell the story of why Homicide never goes back on the air or not. I think it's out there. So you know what? Just look it up. Well, there you go. Do a little homework. Yes. So, yeah, what an invasion, huh? <laughs> uh, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah, Mop double and double BJ probably should have just stayed there. Double Double C also drew a thousand fans for the big weekend show on July 31st in Carolina, which is a great crowd for them. The big angle was an Uracan Castillo technical turn. It was a deal where fans could hear screaming and fighting from the Rudo dressing room. And all the hills came out in front of the public beating on Castillo with a nightstick. stick. 
Castillo's wife and son both tried to help him, but were held back to give it a ring of authenticity. El Bronco, the top Rudo, said he'd been humiliated a few times by Castillo, and Castillo and, and Bronco will be on the Anniversario show. Wait, I thought Ring of Authenticity is doing the invasion angle in IWA, not Double <laughs> Ring of Authenticity. <laughs> so. Yeah, that, that, that's, the, that's the ROH knockoff that'll be in Heels Season 5. <laughs> yeah. The pure wrestling uh, startup. That says arrival to the Duffy Wrestling League and whatever the hell. Uh, oh, what is it? Duffy Re- and uh, was it Florida Wrestling Wasteland? Never watched that show. Never will watch that show. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to either, even though uh, uh, Mac Griffin does have his cameos as referee in season two. Well, let's go back to, well, let's go to the U.S. indie scene now. And uh, all kinds of little different things in this section this week we start with uh the nostalgia pay-per-views that are in demand are project of todd oakland gene side they're doing ten thousand to fifteen thousand buys per show which is actually well ahead of what tna does which is scary the decade of the 70s special the glow shows have done the best of late they'll be doing classic 70s and 80s change wrestling florida shows in october november and december so this is stuff that we didn't get on DirecTV. What we had gotten on DirecTV in the early part of the decade was all those AWA shows. And I always bought them. I thought, that, I mean, I thought they were great pay-per-views. I mean, they were $10 pay-per-views. They had old shit that just wasn't really circulating around at the mm-hmm. time. And great quality. And um, extreme, I thought they were extremely well done. Mean Gene was on there, too. I mean... They put out a good production on those shows. Yes, yes. And I did not realize that DirecTV didn't have the post-AWA ones, though. That's interesting. As far as I know, remember, they didn't because I would have bought them. Is it possible you wouldn't have bought the ones that were PM Film stuff, knowing it was already out there, maybe? No. I just don't remember remember it on DirecTV. I think they were on in-demand exclusive. Hmm, okay. Well, yeah, so for those who don't know, yeah, they started as this. This is the company Classic Wrestling that's... You know, owned by Todd Okerlund and Polish Joe Chupik. And these shows were always, like, weirdly successful. Like, I guess the AWA marketing especially got them a good head start. And, you know, it's a recognizable name. They got recognizable wrestlers. They're charging a reasonable price. Like, those, those AWA shows went on for a while, and they only stopped because Vince bought the library. Yeah. And then they started, you know... Making the deal with PM Film, we can get to more on that in a second, with uh, Ursula Hayden for the Glow stuff, with Al Burke for the Herb Abrams EWF, with, uh, I guess, Mike Graham for some Florida stuff. I don't remember those. And it all worked out pretty well. Um, and now the P- the one side note with the PM Film stuff is um, there's certainly a distinct, well, you can't defame the dead, but it's true anyway. There's certainly a distinct possibility that Ron Martinez completely carnied and ripped them off, though. Oh, yes. Because, I mean, I think you remember this. It never ended up happening, but I was working on an article for Slam Wrestling about wrestling video libraries. And I want to say, I think I, I talked to Joe first. And then later I'm talking to Ron Martinez, because I figure at least he'll have background info. Joe had said to me, though, they had completely bought out Ron and gotten all of his masters and had them all converted to Jijibate. but that, And then Ron's telling me that he still has everything. 
Yeah. Something hinky went down, clearly. And then, you know, these days we have, you know, uh, what's his face? Um, you know, uh, Rock Parsons claiming that he somehow made a deal for this stuff, even though it's pretty clear he didn't, and he's not using master tapes. The stuff that Rob Parsons has, that'd be... Actual master tapes is George Indies, yeah. Which he doesn't really do nothing with. But we've seen when he puts it on YouTube, he does actually have some nice tapes of that. Well, yes. It's a damn shame. (laughs) They don't get more of that shit out there. Yes, but, yeah, these shows are fun. I mean, I... (sighs) I want to say at some point that WWE ended up with the rights to the packaged AWA shows and maybe even put one or two on Classics On Demand. It's possible. But yeah, if you can find these, they're a lot of fun. And then this also leads to them... They're on YouTube. Oh, they are? Okay. Yeah, but they also also made a deal with ESPN Classics Canada, which they weren't the only ones, but, you know, that led to, like, full AWA super shows that were not previously available being available. Yeah. Yeah. All right, and sudden of surprise, Chris Canyon is talking about retiring from wrestling with his last match against Domino's Page on August 28th in Wayne, New Jersey. Canyon, 34, ever since he was cut by WWE earlier this year, had thought about getting a non-wrestling job as he felt he was at a time in his life that he didn't want to trust his future to such an unstable business. He had talked about perhaps doing a little wrestling and not getting out completely, but not wanting to make it his primary income. <clears throat> I mean, he's got all of his issues going on at this point in terms of not medicating and all that. Um, yeah. But, I mean, he hadn't even... Well, actually, wait, at this point, has he even been diagnosed yet? Because he got diagnosed really late. Uh, as bipolar. Sure. Um, let me check real quick. I think I tweeted about it once. But, yeah, I mean, he's... Yeah, he's only just been diagnosed as bipolar within the last year or so. Yeah, things are really going on in his life. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's a shame he couldn't just get it together and go back to doing physical therapy. Yeah. Because, I I mean, he was apparently good at it, and, you know, we've certainly seen with Crowbar, you can make good money at that. Yeah. Absolutely. It's also just a shame you see his age here. He's only 34, and he's done. His 34 is different than other people 34, 34, you know. There's different kinds of mileage and stuff, yes. Oh, boy, I see what we're getting uh, next, though, with ROA. Even if Ring of Honor gets the okay from TNA to use Christopher Daniels and AJ Styles, they wouldn't be able to for a while because they're both already booked solidly every weekend. Teddy Hart's been claiming he had an impersonal angle worked out with Gabe Sapolsky for H2 Wrestling. But from all accounts, that's more fantasy. Hart's been constantly trying to get back in the Ring of Honor, but the feeling is, once he starts no-showing dates, they're working his own angles. Who needs the headaches? Sapolsky was never hot on bringing him back in the Ring of Honor after the first incident, and it's really Rob Feinstein who was high on using him because of Hart's knack for publicity, although most people seem bored by it at this point. Also at this point, there's no deal for TNA to allow his contract wrestlers to be Ring of Honor, but they also haven't done anything to stop Alex Shelley from coming in. Ring of Honor isn't even interested in many guys for TNA because of the feeling they could always be pulled, and they have enough guys that could fill the role of, say, Chris Saban. There's some indi- Daniels and Styles, and there's no deal as of yet for them to come back. Scorpio from Noah will be doing a one-time appearance on August 7th in Philadelphia on a four-way against A. Steel, Jay Lethal, the former Hydro, and Alex Shelley. Scorpio, who lives in Germany, is in the U.S. this week on vacation. It was in Philadelphia doing a video interview for Ring of Honor's new company, and they coincided with a show. 
Okay. Probably worth giving a little ba- bit of background before we discuss this, right? Well, H2 Wrestling... Well, on a few things, yes. H2 Wrestling had just had their deal happen here. With well, Court uh, Powers Company, yeah. It was Court Powers Company after he claimed to have sold uh, MLW to a company in Hong Kong, which was obviously not real. And... I mean, the, the logos were in the same font and everything. The website was basically the same design, but it was like, how do I put it? The plan was for, like, a work-rate indie, but character-heavy and also a working relationship with T2P was basically the idea. And they had a show scheduled in Boston. There was some hype. The character stuff on the website was honestly kind of interesting. With, you know, Chris Hero as L. Ron Hubbard, uh, Matt Stryker as Party Boy, Matt Martell, uh, the alienist Alex Shelley, all that shit. And then Teddy starts doing interviews online where he basically insinuates that as a surprise on the first show, he's going to bring Rob Feinstein in to cut a shoot promo. And they lose the venue, and that's the end of that. And H2 never runs a show. Never. (sighs) It's court. Who knows what would have happened? But like he did, it seems like he did get dealt a de- dealt a bad hand. But he also decided to use Teddy. So there's that. Um, and of course, this is you know just a few months from the Feinstein perverted justice bust as well. Yeah. Yeah. So as far as ROH and TNA and the ownership and stuff, so what happened was the bust goes down. ROH and RF Video say that Jug Dentry is now the owner. They won't say how it happened. He's clearly just holding it for fine stuff. But it turned out that Carrie, or Carrie Silken already had majority ownership of ROH stemming from when they couldn't make payroll and he promised to put a certain amount of money in only if he got majority ownership. That's what it turned out it happened. So Feinstein was never the full o- was never even the majority owner of ROH. When then TNA, you know, finds out that Feinstein's still involved somehow and pulls out because of concerns over that, pulls their talent out and concerns over that, because then they, like, they wanted Doug to sign something he was willing to. They didn't want, they wanted Carrie to as well, but they're at the time they're playing Carrie's a silent investor, but he's not. He owns the company. Yeah. So it was just a mess. It was just a mess. You can see where TNA's coming from. And it eventually gets resolved, but it took a lot of time. Yeah. H2, what a story. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the week for our week, basically. Was oh, the was. whole thing blowing up with Teddy and Feinstein? Just the whole H2 falling apart. Yeah. All right, now let's go to HCW, Hardcore Championship Wrestling, where they had the Incredible 8 tournament. Ooh. On July 31st in the Davey Rodeo Arena in Davey, Florida. What a crew this is. Round one matches saw Sean Tempers beat Luther Jackson. Headbanger Mosh beat Ace Rockwell. Dagon Briggs beat Roderick Strong. And Jimmy Ray beat Jeff Brooks. In non turn match, we had Don Montoya beating Kid Romeo. And in semifinal matches, saw Dagon Briggs over Headbanger Mosh. Jimmy Ray over Don Montoya. Which, why is he working Kid Romeo in a non-tournament match, but he's in the semifinals of the tournament? I'm guessing he replaced Sean Tempers, who's not in, who's not listed here. And then we had Dagon Briggs beating Jimmy Rave in the finals of the tournament. So you got Florida guys, you got Wildside, 
You got Headbanger Mahash. Weird. Yeah. I forget, I forget. Before he was in Wildside and teaming with Matt, where where was Dagan Briggs working? Was he a Florida guy? He had more Florida, yes. Okay. It's an interesting looking show. Yeah, it's a tournament. In the mid-2000s, love them tournaments. I mean, Roddy being the standout local at the time going out in the first round is a little weird. Yes. But, uh, yeah, interesting. The Midnight Express at Dennis Conjure Bobby Eaton, who turns 46 this week, are getting back together working Indies in the Southeast. The duo who was as good as tag team as there ever was in the ring in the past 20 years in North America, Taft from 84 to 87. Condry, 52, has been working some legend shows in Alabama, 90s with the Pensacola, and he and Jim Cornette have totally buried the hatchet. Cornette is looking to manage them on a few shows, including most likely an October 23rd match in Indianapolis against the Rock and Roll Express, their most famous rivals, and a show at Indiana State Fairgrounds Expo Hall. Cornette wants to make the reunion as a unit, a special deal that only happened a few times. Stan Lane, 51, will join them as a four-man unit for some fan conventions, but Lane has retired as a wrestler. Well, and the then, only wrestler trained by Ric Flair would never go back on a retirement. <laughs> and they did that. They would do that a lot in this era. They would all four be together, and that was cool. Yeah. Um. God, how about Bobby only being 46 here? I know. <laughs> I know. Everyone ages <laughs> differently. Yeah. Um, well, he'd been in the business since he was, what, 15? Yeah, and when they would work a smart match, it's not like Bobby and Dennis were having bad matches, though. No. They were working Southern-style tags. You put them in with the rock and rolls, you put them even in with Hamrick and Smothers. They were capable of having good matches at this time. It's got to be with the right opponents, yes. Yeah. All right, IW Mid-South. They ran a show at the Lincoln Center in Highland, Indiana, styling in the summertime on July 31st. No more contender three-way for the IW Mid-South heavyweight title. Jimmy Jacobs beat Mark Wolf and Nate Webb. Trick Davis beat Steve Stone by disqualification. Tracy Brooks won a four-way over Daisy Hayes, Mickey Knuckles, and Mischief. Delirious retained IW Mid-South heavyweight title, beating AJ Styles. Brad Bradley and Ryan Boz retained the tag titles, beating Chad Collier and Nigel McGinnis. CM Punk beat Matt Seidel. Sabu won a three-way over Danny Daniels and Kid Cash. Eric Cannon beat Brian Danielson. Pete Williams won, uh, retained the IWMS off hitway title in a 2-3 falls match over Alex Shelley. In the Barbar Tables match, Mr. Insanity Toby Klein beat Man Man Ponda. God, how much money did Ian lose on this one? It's a lot of names on this show. A lot of big names on this show. I mean, let's see. I mean, you have AJ Styles working fourth of ten matches. Losing to Delirious, no no less. You have Punk at a time where he's clearly commanding more money on the indies and is living in Philly, so he's a fly-in. Sabu. Sabu is going to cost some money. Uh, Danielson's probably costing some decent money and would be a fly-in. Shelley's... I mean, Al is kind of still local, I guess. Yeah, he's probably not. He's probably driving in from Detroit area, and probably so is Petey. But still, I, I don't see how you could make money on this. Um, but it's a it's a good looking show. I don't know if I ever saw this one. Uh, 
Cannon versus Danielson is interesting, especially with Cannon going over. Well, yeah. I mean, Eric Cannon was starting to come on in that era. Yeah. And also, these days, you know, I feel like he doesn't get enough credit for it because he's not live-streaming. You know, low-key, one of the best indie promoters in the country. Yeah. With first wrestling, which, it, you know, when he does the Ball of America stuff, it seems like he gets some attention. But still, like, he, you know, he uses indie names and stuff, but he draw, he draws a lot better than a lot of promotions that get more coverage. Yeah. All right, NWA No Limits. They're in Rock Island, Illinois on July 30th. Eric Cam won a battle royal. And then we have the NWA Iowa Heavyweight Title Tournament. Semifinal matches. Nate Webb beat Brad Bradley. Ryan Boss beat Jimmy Jacobs. Danny Daniels beat Ace Steep. Then we have non-tournament matches. Three-way. Daisy Hayes or Mickey Knuckles and Tracy Brooks. Bryce Benjamin and Chandler McClure over Mark Wolf and Trick Davis. Ian Rotten over Delirious. Matt Seidel won the NWA Midwest X Division title beating Justin Cage. And then our... Finals three-way for the tournament, NWA Iowa Heavyweight title. Ryan Boz defeated Danny Daniels and Nate Webb. And then our main event, a 30-minute Iron Man match, CM Punk over Eric Cannon. So, oh yeah. That's also an interesting main event because obviously Eric would grow as a wrestler, but isn't this the era where Punk is like loudly publicly shitting on Eric Cannon for just trying to cosplay as Chris Hero? <laughs> And here he is in a 30-minute Iron Man match. That's what I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is a time when that Chicago wrestling scene was pretty fruitful. Um, well, I, I mean, this is more Iowa, though, Rock Island. Yeah, but they're part of that Chicago wrestling message board scene. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Mid NW Midwest, all that stuff, so... Yeah, I know what you're saying. Al, Al Legatola, or however you said his name, was would probably be posting results from this. Yes, Chicago Wrestling Message Board was. I go there all the time and get all kind of stuff off of there. You know, back in the day. So, yeah, very fruitful place. This was a big story at the time, of course, and looks more interesting now. After an impressive 45 minute workout on July 27th, the Minnesota Vikings signed Brock Lesnar to a contract. It'll start with them at training camp on July 30th. The one-year contract for the NFL rookie minimum salary of $230,000 is dependent upon him making the main roster, which is still a long shot. It's more likely he would get placed on the team's developmental roster at this season, which would pay him $85,000. He could possibly make the regular roster this season if he shows great potential in preseason games, because a player put on developmental is free game for any other team in the league to sign on waivers. Lesnar is being paid as a defensive tackle. The Vikings were not high on Lester at his first workout with the team, but he was recovering from several injuries, most notably a groin injury suffering a motorcycle accident. At the time, head coach Mike Tice told him to work less on the athletic skills, as his numbers in that regard were exceedingly impressive when it came to speed, straight fast, close to power for a 285-pound man, and more on his football skills, which were below par. At the team workout, he did no athletic drills as far as speed, strength, or explosiveness, and only tested him on football skills. And apparently, we were impressed enough with his improvement to bring him to camp. Many of his skeptical with Lester's chances in the NFL simply because he had not had a full season of football since his junior year of high school at the small town of Webster, South Dakota, back in 1995. Others who have worked with him claim his athletic ability and aggressiveness is enough that he could play special teams this season with probably a year or two of football experience to play on the line. There was a good deal of national media publicity, and even more in the Minnesota area, obviously, regarding Lester signing with the Vikings. He was covering ESPN News, talked about it on their talk shows, and many sports talk shows. 
when I was about the pay cut, going from an estimated $1.5 million per year guaranteed for seven years to maybe $85,000 this year, this is most likely went up this season with no guarantees of anything. He said, money is just money. It doesn't make you happy. I've been on both spectrums. A poor dairy farmer in Western South Dakota, and I've been a millionaire. One doesn't make you happier than the other. Lesnar says the team suggested he'd be willing to play next season in NFL Europe for experience, which is what Vikings coach Mike Tice says most likely scenario. Lesnar is currently earning $750 per week in camp. Lesnar also apologized for the anti-gay remarks he made in the ESPN interview a few months back. Says it reserves as an issue when he signs. I'm sorry for my statement. He said, I'm sorry for anybody's feelings getting hurt. Lesnar, when interviewed by ESPN's Wayne Drez in June, had a woman come up to him and say that a guy with her thinks, you're kind of cute. Lesnar responded with a curse-laden outburst and told the reporter, I don't like gays. Write that down in your little notebook. I don't like gays. Lesnar's appearance in camp is in the major story out of the Vikings camp with daily coverage so far. ESPN Sports Center covered it with interviews with Tony Dungy and The Rock. The Rock said the chance are slim he'll make it, but he'll put it over Lesnar's a great athlete who has a chance. Dungy talked about how Lesnar has this great body has never used steroids. Lesnar did his bring me your pee cup line and said it was a big mistake to go to WWE. Three years ago, he told, told Dave it was the greatest job in the world. He said the travel and fame were too much. If he doesn't like fame, the NFL may not be the place to go. Sable, who is still Brock's girlfriend, accompanied Lester to his first day of practice on July 30th. Lester, who swamped by autograph seekers, says football fans were a lot more polite than wrestling fans, that's for sure. He'll be rooming in camp with Chris Hovan, the Vikings starting defensive tackle. Two of them each other for several years. Plus, it'll be better for Lester to learn that position. I was telling my girlfriend, Rena Marrow, on the way down that I finally started to feel like a competitor again. It kind of went away from me for a little bit in the entertainment business. This is a good feeling. I miss this feeling. Lester's agent has claimed when, that when Vince Man found out Brock was serious about leaving and trying football, he wanted to call a big press conference and make a big deal out of it. Brock refused, thinking nobody would take him seriously at that point, figuring it's just a WWE publicity stunt. On the first day, he worked out one-on-one with coaches as they didn't want him to be embarrassed against football players for, for several days. As it turned out, by Monday, he was in there as part of the third-string defense against third-string offense, and he was stood up at the line and pushed down the field several times, but did get one tackle. I mean, Brock was this serious about this. This was not a, a, you know, a publicity stunt. He was dead serious about trying this out. It wasn't, but he only came up with the idea as an excuse to get the release from his contract. Yes, I mean that was that. Yes, like he's he's admitted that he admitted that in his book. Yeah, of course he did that, but still he was once he got in it he got serious. Yes, of course he didn't make the team. No. And then when the chance to play in NFL Europe actually came, he turned to ten. Yes. I think by that point in time, though, he knew he would get back in the wrestling in Japan. Yeah. Um. So as far as his whole I don't like gays thing. Yeah. He is so lucky that the ESPN reporter elected not to quote what he actually said before that. Yes. I forgot that he made this sort of apology, though. That doesn't really ever get talked about when this is brought up. He pretty much knew he had to. Yeah. But but the thing is, when you're so, you know, direct and saying, put that in your little notebook. (laughs) Oh, to actually say, we are clearly on the record, write down that I don't like gays. Yeah. He's basically apologizing for getting in trouble for saying it. Yes. So. Never did steroids, huh? 
Yeah, Tony Dungy co-signed him on that one. Sure. So. <laughs> Do you think he even thinks this is a thing to try, if not for Stephen Neal being the contemporary of his? <sighs> probably not. That probably planted the seed, right? Yeah, I think so. The Joni Lauer Sean Waltman sex tape is out there, and they have someone marketing it and looking for distribution. She's wearing different outfits, including a black vinyl outfit with a cape and a leather outfit while twirling swords out of Xena. Okay. You may remember this better than me. Did they ever even claim it was stolen at any point? Yes. In that era? Yes. Is there? Did that ever get determined whether that was true? No. Like, Sean's an open book. I'm sure if I asked him, he would tell me. But the reason I bring it up is that at the end of the day, they both made a deal with the distributor to put it out. Absolutely, they did. Yes. And, you know, Which when... Which a lot of that happened with those sex tapes in that era. Right. And you also got to bring it up, though, because there ended up being that whole China thing when she was in a bad way. And well, claimed... the Stern interview happened right before our week. <clears throat> so anyway. All right, Speaking of Joni Lauer, UPW, Rip Asterman, ran a show uh, with Drew and 800 fans and about 550 paid to the Grove in Anaheim. This was uh, during our week. Don't have the day here for some reason. Why are, uh, you, for, why, are you, why are you doing that many comps in an indie show? What's going on? For a show that included major names like Rikishi, Joni Lauer, DDP, Conan, uh, the original Psychosis, Sean O'Hare, and Japanese stars like Sukulu, King Adamo, Predator, Tom Howard. In a major league building, Lara was there with her strange honorage, which included weather-beaten porn star Tabitha Steve. Jesus Christ. <laughs> what Dave means by that. <laughs> Tabitha Stevens had a... She had a lot of plastic surgery done, and she just did not look like a real person. Her skin was like leather. Um... Her breast implants were too big for her body. She just did not look like a real person. Um, and was openly talking about trying to push a sex tape with Sean Waltman backstage. She sang one song. Yes. The stern appearance she had to do with the guitar and she sang. And at first, some of the fans were starting to turn on her, but Ramona Rip Bass and managed to send some pretty girls out dancing that quelled it. But after one song, when she started to do a second song, you could see, and she could see they were about to turn on her, so she stopped. Rikishi, when his trademark spots, which is trademark spots recent WWE exposure, got the best reaction on anyone following uh, followed by Conan and DDP. So, yes, yeah, she sang at an independent wrestling show. Okay. Yeah, she does have her band at this time. So. Yeah, the guitar dude was on Stern. Yeah. He was on Stern for the 2005 interview, too. Okay. But he didn't play guitar. You know, had the guitar with him. This is the point where she's calling herself China Doll. And the band is also China Doll, right? Yes. It's that era. Yes. Well, speaking of Sean O'Hare. Sean O'Hare. Real name? Sean Hare. 33 was arrested on July 27th on charges of assault and battery, as well as a violation of conditions of, of a bond. It was taken to the Beaufort County Detention Center. He was later released and wrestled over the weekend for UPW Anaheim. Oh, there you go. The arrest stemmed from a June 12th incident involving two women at about 2.30 a.m. that night at a club hypnotic in his hometown of Hilton Head, South Carolina. A lovely place. Hare was accused of punching Ivy Rowland with a cut to the face that knocked her hat off her head and then shoving her to the floor. 
Hare was also accused of punching Deidre Clancy in her face, knocking her to the ground, and kicking her both in the head and the back when she was down. The six foot six, two hundred sixty five pound Hare told the Carolina Morning News he was acting in self defense. He said he was in the club's VIP room when one of the women started dancing with him and he blew her off. He said she then pushed him and he told a bouncer to get this stupid bitch away from me and flicked off her hat. He claimed three men and another woman all started throwing punches at him. He said his shirt was ripped and one of the punches was by one of the women split his lip. Unprofessional fighter, said Hare, who had a kickboxing background for going to pro wrestling. If I was going to assault these people, they'd be in the hospital. Clancy was taken to the emergency room of a local hospital after the incident. The violation of bond was from a prior assault battery charge with another woman, Tamara Coleman, 26, stemming from an alleged incident at Club Insomnia in Hilton Head. A condition of his bond on that charge that he would have no contact with her. According to police report on July 24, 4.15 p.m., Coleman received the phone call from Hare's cell phone, the number which came up on her call ID. She recognized the number, and he didn't leave a message. Coleman was with Tara Norman, who was an ex-girlfriend of Hare's. When the call came in, she also recognized the number as his current cell phone number. Deputy Shane Clevenger of the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office was called, and then dialed the number Coleman gave him, and Hare answered. He denied making the call, said he was in Charlotte. Hare is well known to law enforcement officials in Beaufort County, which is spelled differently here, uh, with series of different some incidents. He described as someone whose name is well-known, is never in big trouble, but is constantly in little trouble, frequently getting the problems that someone with a cooler head would be able to avoid. He has a reputation in the city of having anger management issues. Although a sheriff's department spokesman downplayed his recent troubles, saying that if he wasn't a pro wrestler, the recent arrest would be something that nobody would be talking about. Yeah... A lot of common stuff here. Strip clubs, strippers, um, Sean O'Hare being a hothead. Uh, definitely not, not good. Not a good combination. He was a troubled guy. Yes. And that specific thing, though, and I'm surprised Dave doesn't actually say it here, since it's kind of the thing he'd still say in this era. Frequently getting into problems that someone with a cooler head would be able to avoid. Chris, what does that sound like to you? Somebody that's on uh, steroids. Yep. It was fresh on my mind, too, from watching the American Gladiators documentaries, because in the Netflix one, they have Nitro and Laser, I think, in particular, talking about how... It like just the oh, I forget I forget the exact way they put put it. I think it was Nitro, but it was like thing that might bother you a little suddenly pisses you off, and a thing that might piss you off just drives you insane into violence. And like how they got into like a brutal fight over who would be able to change the station on the radio on a car trip. Yeah, sounds like road rage. Yep. So. Now, speaking of K-1 foreigners. Bob Sapp was added to the cast of The Longest Yard. Dave saw a photo of Sapp and Goldberg together in uniform pose with Kevin Nash and Steve Austin. So Austin's still in the movie, even with his hamstring injury. When the word about the four hit Japan, already it's a big deal among Japanese wrestling fans. Sapp will be filming another movie in late August in Vancouver called Kumite, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. I don't think that happens, does it? Not under that title. Longest Yard, of course, comes out. Oh, well, yes. 
Obviously. Yeah, does this movie exist in some form? Is there is there a movie with these two in it? Far as I know, there ain't. Yeah, I'm not seeing anything. Oh, wait, blo- is this it? Wait, wait, Blood and Bone movie? Let's see. Okay, I don't think... No. Maybe one of them in it. It's a Michael J. White movie that Bob Sapp is in. I'm going to double-check Van Damme's not also in it, but I don't think he is. Uh, Nope. Well, it didn't happen, so... There you go. Yeah. All right, let's close out with total nonstop action. NWA TNA, as a matter of fact. Yeah, in 04, they're still NWA TNA. <laughs> yep. There's a lot more talk of switching to a monthly Sunday pay-per-view format, particularly there's a TV time slot upgrade. None of those things is official, but both are being talked about. That'd been interesting if they would have went to a, the Sunday monthly show instead of the Wednesday monthly show, because let's go to this. There's been no new talk of moving Wednesdays out of Nashville, probably because there's no point until decisions made whether to keep doing the weekly Wednesday shows. For the long haul, going to a monthly three-hour format on Sunday seems like the best for all concerned. If the buys go up, it'll greatly cut losses. If the buys stay the same, it'll greatly cut losses. It also gives them four weeks to run a show, and they can put all the stars on the show, as opposed to the current format where you're always holding back because you need to make it next week. There's been talk of a price, about a price structure. Dave suggested it would be twenty four ninety five. You aren't getting any more buyers at nineteen ninety five, but Dave thinks until they establish themselves with a string of strong shows at twenty nine ninety five is too much to start out with. Because wrestlers are paid per appearance, even though many can see it's probably the right thing for business, it's not something they want because they'll be going for eight to nine dates a month down to six, five to six. If there are guys booked on every show and cut back worse, if they're hit and miss. There's been talk of doing house shows make up for the missed dates. WWE does roughly 30 times more pay-per-view buys TNA, and Ross Madden had 15 times viewership of impact. And WWE struggles to draw the house shows. It is possible to select market with a great local promoter such as Shane Douglas in Pittsburgh. It's worth a try, but they didn't see how house show touring can be in TNA's best interest in any fashion, any time, and in the near future, even with a time slot upgrade. TNA's never been successful, even in Nashville for big shows, and selling house show tickets. House show will lose far less money than a pay-per-view. If they can do a monthly pay-per-view for $100,000 budget and charge $24.95, they can break even on the show with 10000 buys, and that is not at all inconceivable. As a company, they need considerably more because maybe we would have to pay for the production of the TV show, to pay for everyone who works the TV show, since TV show doesn't generate any money, and travel expenses. Dave doesn't know what that figure would be total, but educated guests would say they need 50000 buys per show, since maybe is really the only major source of revenue coming in, and that's inconceivable. Ultimately, they're going to probably need revenue coming in for television. Getting paid to produce TV is something the sports networks, for the most part, aren't even doing for boxing any longer. It's better lose money slower, and switching in the long run is going to have to be done. As far as their current situation making it profitable, they doesn't have a clue other than if they get a primetime TV show on FX, which is certainly a long shot, that totally changes everything. The Sunday morning negotiations, which are going to improve on Friday afternoon, but a .05 rating, if, if they can't get it, doesn't change the big picture much from a point three. So, I spot, I mean, we're three years in. We're on yeah. a third year, actually. Two years in. Yeah, and by the and, way, uh, just for the record, we're about two months into Impact on Fox Sports now, just to make that clear. 
the time had come to get rid of the weekly Wednesday pay-per-views. Yes. I mean, we're it's time. Now, were they ready for a monthly pay-per-view? <laughs> I don't know about that. But it was time for them to get off the Wednesday. Every Wednesday deal. Yes. Especially because you're asking people to pay for a sh- weekly show that looks ma- less major league than the free weekly show. Uh, yes. By this one time, yes. It's one thing to have that when you're not on television. Yeah, but when Impact looks so much nicer, and granted, they really did do an amazing job of making the fairgrounds look presentable, but still, the Impact Zone blew away the, uh, the asylum, so to speak, in terms of presentation and coming off Major League and everything, so... I mean, that was a problem that you're asking people to pay ten dollars a month for I mean ten dollars a week for that, even if it's twice as long and has longer matches to a degree and all that. But it gets to the point though, in my opinion, that once they got a television deal, I mean that's it. That's the end. Right. The whole point of having weekly pay per view was you did not have a TV deal. Yeah, that was your television. Now you have we now you have weekly television. How much of it do you think is that they only have an hour on TV? <sighs> And they've been I'm sure that, filling the two-hour shows. I mean, I'm definitely sure that's probably the reason. But still, you, you passed that point. Well, speaking of television, the TV shows moved to an all-squash format except for main event looking main, main event. It's an old-school mentality where you put the stars over and get the finish moves over, and the people pay to see the stars versus stars. The only competitive match on July 30th was primetime either Skipper and Chris Daniels against Michael Shane and Frank Kazarian, and that had no winner due to the run-ins. Well, that well, here, well, if you're going to do week, just weekly television of interviews, this, and you're not running house shows... Then you can't then do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. Well, also, you need to change the format of the weekly pay-per-views to be a little less TV-ish, too. Yes. It's, I mean, it's 2004. Uh, you know, WWE is not doing squashes on TV, very rarely. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can't put that genie back on the bottle if you're TNA and try to do that and do that. Again, because you're not promoting anything as a house show. This isn't the territories where your television was a advertising vehicle for your house shows. But exactly. you, just, you just can't, can't do that here with them. They're pushing a few between Dusty Rhodes and Vince Russo on TV as the biggest deal on the show. Storyline hasn't really been explained, but it goes something like Rhodes promised Jeff Hardy an NWA title shot if he signed. Hardy then beat Monty Brown on July 28th on the shot, which is probably going to be on August 11th. Russo came out, and while he's never said Hardy isn't getting the shot, he and Dusty continue to fight over mysterious reasons revealed only as Dusty gave his word to Jeff, and Russo's making him look bad. Okay. Well, let's get into that. The TNA pay-per-view from July 28th, report by Dr. Keith Lipinski to the Figure Four Weekly, our dear friend. Show began with an unnamed cameraman asking people not to steal the show as they were taking money out of his pocket. He looked down his luck and destitute. Dr. Keith guessed the damage has already been done. Note for Brian. Please tell me this didn't really air. <laughs> I guess it did. Dr. Keith saw it. 
You know, it, uh, <laughs> this makes me want to put down the ten dollars for Impact Plus right now. <laughs> I mean, what the fuck? I mean, I, I guess I thought that was a cute way of doing that announcement. Sure. But, yeah. <laughs> All right. America's most wanted to defeat Bobby Roode and Petey Williams. Our first match. This match is based on Scott Demore, costing America's most one of the tag titles last week. Speaking of the coach, he started shouting into the camera and then began squawking like a chicken. This is perversely entertaining. AMW busted out the heart attack, which they keep on doing it. will never draw them a dime in the business. Rude went for a Canadian bomb on Harris, but Storm came in his super kick and Harris rolled up Rude for the win. Excellent match. Afterwards, all team counted the attack, but Triple X made the save. Crowd was extremely alive and bouncy here. Therefore, Dr. Keiko and wonder how long we would be for a buzzkill. No, not Brad Armstrong. Hits TNA. As Dot wrote this, Jeff Jarrett came on the scene. This week, Jeff could care less about wrestling. The charismatic enigma, yes, he actually said this, Jeff Hardy or Monty Brown. Scott Hudson went into shock and really interrupted the King on the Mountain, which caused Jarrett to remove his sunglasses to call Hudson a psychic and a know-it-all. He mentioned issues between Vince Russo and Dusty Rhodes. These two gentlemen are having personal issues and they need to get on their, get their own house in order. Who want to live in a house with Dusty and Russo besides Dr. Keith himself and Derek Bergen? Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. You have to interject the charismatic enigma when you're talking about Jeff Hardy. Oh, and TNA, certainly. And TNA, no less. Got to hit that branding. <laughs> is it, is he friends with the phenom of the World Wrestling Federation? <laughs> I said, you expect that in WWE, but come on. <sighs> All right. Next, we have Abyss and Baby Bear. Bix. Baby Bear, Alex Shelley, which is his nickname because he is in a storyline relationship with manager Goldilocks. Yes, because. Uh, well, they defeated D-Ray 3000 and Sharp Boy in a Goldilocks challenge to win their contracts. The match furthered the business jealousy of Goldilocks' attention towards her baby bear. Speaking of jealous, Abyss seemed to be jealous of D-Ray's afro and afro pick. Abyss went for a chop, but then started rubbing the fro. How about this for an idea? Have someone give D-Ray the claw, and he won't sell it because of all the hair that will protect him. <laughs> The crowd was dead for this one. Match so unexciting that the announcer talked about Vince Russo's stress taking toll as he's lost weight. Welcome to the TNA diet. As Baby Bear was in the ring, Abyss was sitting in the corner looking Chris crestfallen and someone with a mask and long hair, which blots off facial expressions can look. Abyss didn't impress Goldie with a black hole slam on D-Ray for the win. As Goldie lost, was celebrating being rich and having the contracts of Eric Watts, Sharp Boy, and D-Ray 3000. Wow, what a stable. Desire viciously attacked on the rampway, and they had to pull apart brawl. Mike today wasn't sure why this was happening, but he was really enjoying it. Oh man, could there be a feud that Dr. Keefe would less want to see? Besides Dusty against Russo, that is. Alright, so Goldilocks... Alright, how did she get money again? You expect me to know this? <laughs> I wasn't watching TNA. Uh, see if she has a Wikipedia that explains this. I'm pretty sure she does. All right. Uh, the, uh, 
Okay. Goldilocks broke up with Watts and Abyss became her protector. Goldilocks had Abyss wrestle Watts, announcing her money was up for grabs against Watts' contracts. Okay, so not even explaining the money in the Wikipedia article. Outstanding. Um, or does it? Wait. Backstage interviewer, valet. Yeah, she just had a rich girl gimmick, it says. It doesn't at least explain on Wikipedia why she was suddenly a rich girl. Um, also, she's a rich girl, and she's gone too far, but she knows it don't matter anyway. She's a rich girl. Um, oh, and at, there's a note, of course, at the top of a Wikipedia page that says, For the fairy tale about Goldilocks and the three, pair, three bears, see the story of the three bears. Well, of course. Now, by the way, you know what her real name is, right? Uh, I used to, but I forgot. Moon Shadow. That's right, yes. She was, like, born with some hippie parents. She's from Minneapolis. Yeah. Oh, gee, I wonder who got her into TNA. <laughs> uh, so there you go. So who really knows? Baby Bear. And Desire was Kim Nielsen, right? That sounds right, yeah. Sonny Siaki's uh, lady. Yes. Now, I forget, was Kim Nielsen also the nature toy? Uh, yeah, she was. In Turnbuckle? Yes. Wasn't she aligned with fake gold dust at some point there? Uh, I think so, yes. David O and 88 Young was hanging out with Johnny Swinger with New Coconut Bra and Scott okay. Hudson. Young said if he couldn't be at a periphery, he could get a, go get a job at a 7-Eleven, as he doesn't deserve to be a wrestler. Dr. Keefe had asked his girlfriend, Ryan, who just took the Illinois State Bar exam last week, if this was a legal binding contract. Sadly, it wasn't. Which leads to referee Mike Posey handing David Young his 89th loss. Do you like run, punch, kick, broom shot? Then this match is for you. Posey uses referee speed and several broom shots, which didn't merit a DQ. I guess Leprechaun was right about there being a referee conspiracy against Young. Finish came when Posey uses lethal yet awful referee skills to drop Kit Young into the Leprechaun and the school boy him for the win. The high of the match was a nice 0-88 graphic. The referee of the match held Posey above his shoulders, proving Disco's conspiracy. In a funny moment, Posey tried to start a loser chant in the crowd. The announcers paused to hear the crowd. Let's just say it wasn't deafening. Hula Swinger came down with the leprechaun and with leprechaun they double teamed on the guy who has never won a match and stuffed the gut chest list in his mouth. Doc bet it tastes delicious. I think Holy shit to be gut check. It does. Also, uh yes, that is oh, Keith's uh, eventual life. Holy shit. And David Young doing a losing streak gimmick naturally because no just look at him. Uh sure. Boy, just Russo all over this. God almighty. I mean, I'm I'm just thrown by the most relevant person in pro wrestling in this match being Mike Posey. And 19 years later. <laughs> Backstage, Scott Hudson interviewed Goldie and her baby bear. Goldie taunted Desire with the following. Desire, ha ha ha. That sounds like more of a cheap designer imposter spray than a name. Okay, that was amusing. She blamed Eric Watts and his wife, or she called her hoochie mama, wifey wife, Georgie Watts, for the attack by Desire. Goldie challenged Desire anytime, any place. Yet somehow they end up setting up Sunny Siaki versus Abyss with the money against contract. Fantastic. Our kids need the money, Siaki told Desire. What kids? What money? The name called escalated Siaki, Siaki called Goldie Goofy Locks. 
Goofy Lots called Siaki Kaki and Desire Ho Child. Ho Child? Ooh. Ugh. Oh my God. This is horrible. Well, bro, you know why. Jesus Christ. Ugh. Mike Tanay in Men Ring announced Sabu has finally said the Ravens challenge and they will break Uncle Sheik's promise and fight next week. Apparently, this will be a one night only match. With the build up of the last few months, it better deliver. Raven came through the crowd with a garbage can trying to keep the asylum clean. He was wearing the Sheik's turban and robe with the words Die Sabu written on his chest. Why would why, why would Raven have made an assurance not to fight to, to Uncle Sheik at any point? What did he have to do with his career? Beats me. Raven wanted Sabu now, and on his terms, he put Uncle Sheik's gear in a garbage can, poured gasoline, and held up a huge match. This looks straight out of the acne products from the Roadrunner cartoons. When Sabu didn't show, Raven went in the ring and pulled out a black body bag containing Sabu's Arabian friend, Sanjay Dutt. I mean, if you put it that way, sure. He stuffed Sanjay in the garbage can and gave Sabu 10 seconds. Yes, he was going to burn someone. Yeah, Dr. Keith couldn't stop thinking how bizarre Raven's big match looked. The lights went out. Sabu was in the ring. Crowd was still dead, even for the pull apart. Seriously, they build this up with mannequins, promos, a big match, and at least to no one caring. Oof. <laughs> and it's two guys who never crossed paths in ECW. No. So. Which is something to think about, isn't it? Yes. Never faced off in ECW. As far as I know, they, de- they definitely didn't need to be arena. That is for sure. Yeah. All right, let me see here. I- I'm checking. All right, so Raven Sabu. All right. Uh, no, the first time they ever faced off in the ring was Ballpark Brawl 1 in Buffalo in 2003. Jeff Jarrett and Sabu against Disco Inferno and Raven. Yeah, there was a three-way with Sandman at a 3PW show a few months later. There was a tag at an MLW show in January. Their first singles match was August 4th, which is what this building took. Yeah. August 4th, 2004. Hmm. That's crazy. Like, you would have thought they would have worked each other at, like, a Jim Thorpe show or something like that. Yeah. But no, didn't do it. The Naturals are backstage with their tag titles and a calculator. Not since your foundation's laptop has wrestling and technology been so nicely intertwined. Apparently, they beat Americans once one three out of four times, whereas the calculator noticed 75%. <laughs> one of the Naturals noted that's like winning six out of eight. And these boys need a calculator? They mentioned how Americans want to beat Triple X. They beat Americans once one, so therefore the Naturals are superior to all the tag teams in TNA. Of course, mathematics. See, Scott Steiner was derivative. It was. Irish Pat Kinney oh, came good out Lord. Trinity around. Apparently, she tried to beat on the Irish this week, which is an upsetting theme in TNA lately. Why are they even doing this, by the way, when he had already secured the trademark for the gimmick? For the Simon Diamond gimmick. Kenny challenged v- Big Vito to a Luck of the Irish weapons match next week. Can't wait. Now look at Scott Hudson look blankly on as Kenny noted. Scott Hudson, look how excited you are. 
Kenny let Trinity go, pushed her, and she just stood there. She might have had Irish lust in her eyes. What? The Naturals defeated Triple X. Crowd was still dead. Stevens and Douglas showed their greenness here. Lots of mat wrestling early. Heat on primetime fight forever. Led to a lukewarm tag on Daniels. Skipper hit an awesome tornado dive as Daniels was hitting the Angels' wings. Scott Demore came out again. The fear of the whip of the stick distracted Daniels as he got caught in the natural disaster. Double team stunner for the pin. Tubboat, I mean Typhoon, and Canadian Earthquake would be proud. Seeing so yeah, Canadians. Team Canada came out to no heat to beat on Triple X. Americans was wanted made to say Triple X showed their appreciation by challenging Americans was wanted to a match. Sportsmanship. Yay. James Storm knew that Triple X was just two boys. Oh, great. More TNA math. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Oh, the charismatic enigma, Jeff Hardy, defeated Monty Brown to become the number one contender. Hardy got decent reaction, especially from the lovely ladies in Nashville, but his ring work left a lot to be desired. I like how you specifically changed it to to be desired, since it's written as to desire, so no one could thought you were making a reference to desire. <laughs> and this is 2004. Jeff Hardy is about to compete on Rampage, AEW show, the Friday after we record this. Jeff Hardy's offense uh, consists of standing switches and taking his mesh shirt off. He's really gone to shit since that time he was just strumming the guitar a few years ago. Oh, man. I just realized that Monty fucking Brown's carrying this match. The man who two years ago was just a former footballer now is sniffing animals carrying Jeff Hardy. Hardy, you hit a twist of fate, which was not identified by Wes or Tanae. Hardy was on the top rope for a swan time when Jeff Jarrett came out and pulled, pulled Brown out of the ring. Monty did not appreciate this good gesture. He got back in the ring and tended the pounce, but got rolled up for the pin. Don West seemed sad that Monty Brown didn't get the pounce. Hardy and Jarrett fought afterwards, and Hardy got a guitar and started strumming it. Brown hit the pounce as Hardy tried to cabal on Jarrett. Jarrett went for the hustle guitar weapon on Hardy when... 3LK, 3 Life Crew, and Don Harris came out for the save, along with Dusty Rose. That's a group. <laughs> Dusty proclaimed that Jeff Hardy would be the next World Heavyweight Champion. None of that match you won't. Who is missing? Oh, yes. Vince Russo. While Dusty was on the mic, without a doubt, we running and we did it. Russo whispered sweet nothings into Dusty's ear. Apparently, something upsetting as Dusty wasn't happy. He threw his hat down and started shoving Russo. Hudson interviewed a crestfallen Russo backstage. Wait, Rhodes this keeps came going? Out. Yeah. Rhodes came out and was so upset he threw his hat down again and used vulgar language. I brought him back for you. Get your goddamn hands off of me. I gave him my word. Dusty was so pissed off here, he wasn't just yelling. He was delirious. Of course, the point of contention was never mentioned. Apparently, it has to do with Jeff Hardy in the world title and Dusty's word. He mentioned his word was Bond in Texas, but he didn't know that being, that being the case in New York City. Aren't they in Nashville? What? 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 Do we think Don Harris told uh, Ron Killings and Conan that they're two of the good ones? I don't know. How do you even put that group of people together on the same side? Uh, They all have a common affinity for Jeff Jarrett, I guess. I don't know, but my goodness. What a train wreck segment. Well, at least we and, have the and, X Division. And we have no idea what the hell Dusty is upset about. Bro. Main event, Kazarian and Michael Shane defeated 
AJ Styles and Ultimate X match become co X Division champions. Huh? TNA really did a great job of selling how Shay won the first Ultimate X match and had the longest X Division championship ring, along with the fact that Styles had never been in the Ultimate X match. Borash announced that Styles weighed in this morning 215 pounds. Dot didn't know why he found that so funny. It was basically a handicap match, and I was exciting as previous exhibition matches because of that fact. Shane and Kazarian did their cool choreographed handshake. A few minutes later, they blew a spot and started yelling at each other. Styles made a comeback, went to grab the belt, but was powerbombed off the rope wires by Kazarian. Styles hit Kazarian with a sloppy yet awesome Styles clash and the rope wires above complete with crash landing. Even though this wasn't as good as the other Ultimate X match, this was an excellent title match. Styles hit the Styles clash on Shane, went for the belt, but Tracy Brooks... Grabbed his legs and pulled him down. Styles rewarded her with a Pele kick. Styles went back to get the belt and was this close when Kid Cash, complete with, a, with his crutch, came down, hit him in the back with, with a bad knee. Kazarian and Shane got opposite sides of the X and both came down with the title, so the ref told Boris that both dudes would be co-holders of the X title. Let's say about the last set of co-champions in wrestling. One of the most hysterical crowd on the Howard Stern show, rambling on about fighting lions and tigers in Japan and trying to sell a six tape with, with six pock. The other one's in... Fozzie. Needless to say, I greatly feel for Kazarian and Shane's future, Doc. Keith said. Overall, an okay show with some good moments of high comedy. <laughs> oh, boy. Actually, wait a second. So we were wrong about the China thing. It was the July 04 appearance that's the fighting the liars and tigers in Japan then. Well, maybe that is, but she's not naked. You're, so you're... I thought... Okay, we thought... We, okay, I get what you're saying. So... That part you're must have been wrong. separate. Okay. Yes. This one, she's just very intoxicated. Yes. What a fucking show, promotion, whatever. This was the pay-per-view as well. Yeah, and yeah, we got to talk about Impact, which I guess this is Brian reviewing. This is Alvarez, yes. Okay. So Brian Alvarez is now reviewing Impact on July 29th, so a day later. Jeff Jarrett versus Lex Lover for the NWA World Title. I could have sworn they said this was a title match, but then today talked about how Jeff Hardy was no one contender. Lover almost killed himself early, taking a crazy bump over the top. There's apparently a big secret storyline involving Vince Russo. You see, he's mad that Dusty Rose said Jeff was going to be the next NBA champion. Oh, yay! After two years, we can finally get the long awaited Vince Russo Jeff Jarrett heel tandem. Lover took a scary bad drop just prior to making his comeback. Said comeback was short lived. Jarrett got the pin with the stroke. Total squash. Jarrett was trashed like a Monty Brown as he did his finisher. Strange. They seemingly unaware that Hardy beat Monty to become the one contender. How did he miss this best Wednesday show? Maybe he has direct TV or something. <laughs> yeah, that's how. Kid Cash versus Mikey Bats. This was not good. Bats tried to dive and Dallas caught him. The ref told him to put Mikey down. So Dallas slammed him so hard on the cement that Brian Cringe, uh, Dallas picks. Who's Dallas here? That's uh, Lance Archer. That's right. Looks like he's earned a, learned a lot from Cash. Russo was shown watching on. Then Dusty came out and they argued. Yawn. Bats at Cash, meanwhile, were missing spots left and right. Cash finally hit him with a double on the hook for the pin. That move needs to be banned right now before someone dies. Way too dangerous, especially when the guy delivering it is as small as Kid Cash. Well, Mikey Bats at least is someone who he, even Kid Cash is much taller than. Yeah, there is that. Um, Mikey Bats was good, you know. I mean, very tiny man, though. Yes. He was, what, like five feet and a quarter or something like that? Yes. 
And then he had that weird WWE developmental run where he signed for the juniors division and that got fired for mysterious reasons that we probably shouldn't get into. <laughs> yes, probably right. Raven versus Rod Steele. How many Rod Steels are there? At least two. This is not the HWA version. It's the Florida version. Yeah. In, in fact, last Brian heard, that version quit the business, and believe, Brian believed went to MMA. Also, he wasn't an HWA guy. He was an OVW guy. Yes. Before the match, they cut backstage where Russo and Dusty were still arguing. Uh... Okay. We get the fucking point. Raven came out wearing Sabu's outfit. They're strongly plugging that this Wednesday. It would be Sabu versus Raven for the only time ever. And then once the pinfall was counted, that would end the feud. Brian strongly suspects they are lying. Raven won in like a minute with a DDT. Sabu hit the ring afterwards. And they got into a quick brawl, which Sabu got the better of. There was surprisingly little reaction for this. It was made worse by Mike Tanay screaming that match was a decade in the making. Before security broke it up, Sabu did a crazy dive and Raven was out of position. So he crashed and burned hard. Brian can't believe nobody's killed themselves in this company yet with all this craziness. Maybe they need some rules and some road agents that people will listen to. <laughs> well, one of those rules was broken the day we recorded this. So, that's another thing. Which one are you thinking of? The band, when the band moves was, was used. Which one? When the, the Swerve Darby thing with the apron. No, apron stuff wasn't banned, though. Apron that's stuff not, was that's just... That's not what people were saying on Twitter as the match was going on, Biggs. No, apron stuff was not outright banned. Apron stuff was just, you need to run it by the agent. Well, I'm just going no, to... Get, no, the only things that were outright banned were the blind bumps into the turnbuckles, chairs to the head, and maybe like one other thing. Okay. Martin Larnoff and Jarrell Clark, Mr. 630, uh, went, went up against Bobby Roode and Petey Williams. Who's Larnoff Mark Larnoff? He looked like nothing special, but Clark does some awesome stuff, including the 630 splash. He goddamn near killed Petey with it, and the worst part was it wasn't even the finish. They just had to make sure they got all their shit in. And all their shit included a move even dumber than the Canadian Destroyer. A wacky move by Petey that started out like a reverse TDT and ended up at a flapjack. You ever see those old 3D drawings are actually a physical impossibilities? If you look at them closely enough, such as much as Petey Williams' offense. These are moves that wouldn't even work on the moon, where gravity is totally different, and you'll be able to perform amazing gymnastics maneuvers. So anyway, the bad guys got the double pinfall. During the post-match celebration, Russo came out and told the announcer to stop talking about Dusty Rhodes. This brought Dusty off for yet another argument. I hate this show, and we're only a half hour in. Uh, uh, you know who uh, Mark Lornoff is? Who's Mark Lornoff? Scott Hotshot. Oh, okay. From Florida and briefly Wildside. Oh, okay. Well, there we go. Jeff Hardy against Kid Romeo. Well, disregard what I wrote last week because Romeo did not look good here. He did quite possibly the worst submission Brian has seen all year, maybe all of his life. Jeff seemed embarrassed to be even in it. Jeff hit his twist of fate and then the senton for the pen. Jimmy Borash announced that he had won and he was the charismatic enigma that upset Brian for some reason. It appeared Jeff was trying to do Matt's V1 hand signal afterwards, but couldn't figure it out. <laughs> God am I. Jeff Hammond interviewed Moxie Brown. Brian would not miss this for the world. 
On the bright side, as I say as this was, Monty was way more lucid than Brian had ever seen him before. If you're ever wondering what the tilde bang means, watch this interview and listen to him. Say, pounce! Well, the tilde bangs from Dean Rasmussen. Yes. Jeff Hammond, of course, being the uh, NASCAR guy on Fox, also cr- crew chief for many years in NASCAR, Daryl Waltram. So uh, he was involved in TNA a lot in this era. Yes, not to be confused with Hermie Sadler. Who, well, yeah, both in NASCAR, yes. Uh, Shane Douglas interviewed Vince Russo. Brian loves Shane Douglas. He noticed wrong of him. Russo said he had a bunch of announcements he was going to make on Wednesday. Yay! Dusty walked up and went ballistic on Russo. This is what, the fourth time in the last 45 minutes? Do they actually think that countless fans are going to buy the pay-per-view to see what will become of this angle? Brian's question is, will one, if anything, uh, the four conversations in 45 minutes, perhaps eight or more in 120 minutes, if anything would convince Brian not to buy a pay-per-view, that's it. Which leads to Michael Shane versus Kazarian, Michael Shane and Kazarian, excuse me, versus Triple X. Shane and Kazarian are co-owners of the X title, and boy, is that ever done. Lead analyst Jeff Hammond came out, predicted that before all, all was said and done, Shane and Kazarian would be fighting amongst themselves. Bad guys got the heat on Daniels. Oh, let's see. There's 10 minutes on the clock and 11 minutes left on the show. Brian suspects we might be seeing a draw here. Skip got a hot tag and damn near killed poor Kazarian with a horrific backdrop. Then he tried a Goldberg-style backdrop into a power slam. As you might have noticed, either Skipper is not Bill Goldberg. Damn near killed the guy there, too. Everyone hit a move for their falls. This is five minutes to the match, by the way. Good guys hit top right Frankenstein and Roy Walt leg drop combo, but Tracy's at the ref. AJ in the ring for the cheap DQ, loud AJ chant. Kid Cash is out next to attack AJ. We have four minutes left, which means on one ungodly annoying schmoz. Team Canada was out next. Brian was right, this is a mess. Oh, wait, there's more. America's Most Wanted came out next. Show fun anyway, everyone in the brawling, everyone else. Oh, impact. <laughs> the show would get better. During the Fox run. Well, it's just... Mm. I mean, you're getting you're getting the Russo, you're getting Russo stuff. Well, less Russo is the reason it gets better. Well, yes, that helps. Always helps. All right, uh, Jim Mitchell was at the uh, July 29 show in Orlando. They're talking about bringing him back. One idea is for him to reform the new church using Slash and Lex Lovett. Use the job guy on TV this week, but somebody liked him as a team. There have also been other ideas discussed for his return. He's in and out. I mean, you just all, a lot. So he's always somewhere around TNA for a while. So Rikishi is interesting going to TNA. He was apparently told when he was that when he was cut, as long as he doesn't go TNA, they'll bring him back at some point. He had intermediaries and field feel his TNA a month or two back when he was expected to be cut after getting the nasal surgery and taking more time off without letting the company know ahead of time. He's planning on cutting a record with Christian the Christian record company. He's already talking about, besides all Japan, going to Metsco for CMLL. His price right now for dates is pretty high. And what ends up being his priority is Italy. Yep. New Wrestle Evolution. Yep. And the Italy boom, where I believe he was the booker, right? He was. <laughs> With that came basically every Samoan not under contract to a major wrestling promotion at the time. Yeah, imagine uh, the bloodline story there. It would have been the whole show. Yeah. 
Kid Cash and AJ Styles continue their food on IW Mid-South show in Highland, Indiana on July 31st, which we talked about. We're, we're interviewing each other's matches. Petey Williams holds that promotion as world title. Yes. All right, now we go to the torch. Ken Shamrock was not using either show last week. He has custody of his children, has made it known to TNA officials that he can't work more than one show per week because he's a single parent. Shamrock's also been telling friends he's not Im- impressed with the company. <laughs> you think? He sees him as minor league. You got that right. And isn't on the best terms with Jeff Jarrett. Shamrock's still a few people that he's completely aware of the fact that he's just the latest big name who's brought in for Jarrett to defeat. Well, at least he's self-aware. Yes. Oh, that reminds me. I, I did see someone mention something um, recently, and it is worth noting in terms of talking about the Jeff title reigns here. Once they had the money coming in and were get, get, be able to afford bigger names, and I mean more so once they were able to actually lock people down under contracts, Jeff never held the title again. No. Like, if that doesn't say that the whole point was, you know, who can we trust, what does? Once they got, could sign people to contracts, he never held the title again. No. That's all you need to know. The mid-card wrestler complaining about the wrestlers the company's pushing and their reasons for pushing those wrestlers. The drum perception in the locker room is that AJ Styles is Dixie Carter's favorite. Oh, you think? The Naturals in America's most wonder are Bob Ryder's boys. No <sighs> comment. No comment. And Abyss and Monty Brown are Dutch Mantel's favorites. Oh, wait. Why are the Naturals in America's most wanted the only ones referred to as someone's boys? And Bob Ryder's boys, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Well... You know not, not to be confused with Bob Ryder's guys. <laughs> you know why. The first show wrestlers say they can understand why the company is pushing some of those wrestlers, particularly Styles. But also for the TNAs, all about who you know and not how much money you can draw. Uh, read between the lines, brother. <laughs> yep. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I'm trying to remember what the most overt this ever got in one of the newsletters was. Um, this is close. <laughs> boys his boys Jesus <laughs> Christ some wrestlers were chucking and naturals in America's most wonderful walking through their entire cage match prior to the show however one wrestler defended the teams they don't know any better they said they no one taught them and there's nowhere for them to learn well there's a point I just I keep hearing it just as far as just calling them their boys it just it keeps going through my head like boys Yes, no summertime love. Monty Brown is showing signs his push is going to his head. In addition to the fifty three on the bus because Jeff Hardy was late, Brown has also wrestled Russell the wrong way. Others said they aren't the best, least bit surprised that Monty's push is going to his head, nor should anyone else be. Too much too soon, one wrestler observed. The wrestler went on to say that same attitude that Brock Lesnar, Bill Goldberg, and other wrestlers didn't pay their dues before receiving big pushes developed. Business is changing, brother. Yeah, I also feel like it doesn't really fit the personality we have heard of him having otherwise, though. The story. Like, it seems like he was a fairly level-headed, grounded guy. Well, who knows? This week's heat on Big Vito comes from the office rather than the wrestlers. He was called on July 25th and told there was a change of plans. He wasn't needed for July 28th show. So he made it a plans, apparently for an indie show. 
When he's about to leave the day of the show, TNA called and told him they changed his plans and need him for the show. He said he had another booking and wasn't going to no show it. TNA was not happy. Most of the wrestlers were 100% behind Vita, which was saying some, considering he's not exactly the most popular wrestler there. And they had the, quote, Bellers watch, unquote. How long will Tiffany be gone on him? Stephanie, Stephanie Bellers. Stephanie Bellers was in TNA. That shows, that shows you. She wasn't there long. <laughs> the Bellers watch. So would Vic Vito be one of Vince Russo's guys or one of his boys? <laughs> oh, he ain't his boys. Because Russo, well. He's know. one of his guys, yes. He's one of his guys, yes. yes. And to close out with a torch, Conan has lived up to his reputation for being outspoken since the WCW, at least until Wednesday night. After being informed that he and the other members of Three Life Crew weren't booked for an impact match, Conan asked someone in management, how is it possible that we don't have a storyline, but Goldilocks has, Goldilocks has one every week? In a lighter moment, Conan also told us some, one of the wrestlers about his mustache. I thought Al Snow had invaded TNA. Conan told us some wrestlers, but upon further inspection, it was Raven. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Oh, gee, I wonder who should refer to them as Bob Ryder's boys to the newsletters. <laughs> You're fixated on that. It's just so glaring. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, and we're also just a few months away from the Death Valley Driver sleaze threat, too. Well, there you go. All right. That's it for this week's show. Next week on Between the Sheets, we get a 90s show. As we go to 1996, World Championship Wrestling. Well, they're riding high right now. NWO is hot. TV's uh, getting hotter. So we'll have uh, stuff on that. And because um, all this stuff is uh, being pretty much taped in Orlando due to the Olympics. So we'll talk about that. We got uh, news on uh, comings and goings. In fact, one uh, coming that doesn't happen and other uh, stuff going on, including Bret Hart rumors in WCW. Dave Meltzer's in Japan for the G1 Climax. So we'll we'll have a detailed rundown of the G1 Climax, which also included Ultimo Dragon versus Great Sasuke. Well, the, I mean, the, the, the J-Crown, yeah. The J-Crown. So how much so of I, the two tournaments take place during our week? The whole shebang. Oh, so both tournaments, okay. The G1 Climax. No, but I'm saying the the J-Crown is also across the whole G1, so... Yeah, yeah it's, it's the whole shebang. Yeah. All right, so we'll have that. And Dave also attends the Ultraman Women's Show, the big show that week. So we'll have uh, his thoughts on that. Plus other uh, sort of indie scum, of course, that date doesn't go to. So we'll have that. Uh, of course, we have Lucha stuff. Oh, ECW losing a TV time slot in New York. What a shock. And we have The Doctor is in at the ECW Arena. We'll talk about that show. Dr. Steve Williams makes his ECW debut. Jeff Jarrett quits USWA. We'll have news on that. And in the World Wrestling Federation, morale's pretty low. Inside and outside the ring, so we'll talk about that. WF, are they going to get? Is, are they going to get Bret Hart back? We'll have that. And Monday Night Raw featuring Ahmed Johnson 
injuring himself severely. Well, that's not the way to put it. Uh, uh, Ron Simmons injuring him. Well, either way, he gets injured severely. Yes. So all that more next week on Between the Sheets. No guest. All right. Thanks as always to the Rockless Show. This is Chris and so long from the Peach State of Georgia. Boys. 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 Patreon special edition number 82. I'm your host Chris Zellner, joined as always by my host David Bix and Span. And Bix, this is one of those times where we're going deep in your wheelhouse on a Patreon show. And uh, these next couple of shows is perfect for you. Why? Well, I mean, just look at what we're, what we're dealing with here. I mean, we have... Uh, all sorts of stuff that you get uh, Freedom of Information Acts on. We got uh, all kinds of court documents. We got racial discrimination. We got WCW involved. I mean, there's a lot here that goes up your alley. 
Yes, we got magazine articles. We've got your uh, dear friends at the Atlanta Urinal and Constipation. That's right. Thanks, Kimmer. Yeah, I've got some Mike Moodyam, I think. But yes, uh, this month, July, is the 20th anniversary of the settlement of the famous WCW racial discrimination lawsuits. The group that was kind of put together by Sonny Ono, and they're all technically different lawsuits, but with shared discovery and all that. And yeah, settled 20 years ago this month for what is believed to be at least a million dollars per plaintiff. You know, and I've read stuff that I was able to pull, you know, from the federal court website over the years, so I have a pretty good understanding of this, at least better than most, but still was, you know, refamiliarizing myself with it and finding the newsletter stuff and, <clears throat> excuse me, all that. And, I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, it's interesting kind of to contrast the newsletter writer reactions with what eventually comes out. You know, which I'm sure we'll get into. But, you know, there's a lot going on there. And, you know, it's a bunch of people that, you know, those that those lawsuits at the end. You know, Sonny Ono, Bobby Walker, um, various power plants, power plant students, at least, uh, Thunderbolt Patterson, at least one or two wrestlers who never actually worked for WCW, as we'll get to. Uh, Rasta the Voodoo Man, Lester Spite. Uh... Stevie Ray ends up filing a lawsuit, and I don't think it even ever, ever even goes to Discovery, but apparently he got a settlement as well. I think Ernest Miller might have filed one too. I don't have anything from it, but I believe he did. And, you know, and more that I'm forgetting off the top of my head. But, you know, they had had lawsuits of this nature going back to very early in their existence. Now, one that we're not going to talk about, but I have some documentation from because it got filed in the later lawsuits, is Ranger Ross. And the reason we're not going to talk about that, because there's nothing really there. Like, he he got EEOC certification to sue and stuff, but he never, he never alleged anything specific. So there's nothing really to glean from it. And then, like, they point out how in his deposition, like, they got him to admit he didn't really pull, like, all the pay information he would need to try to allege that he was unfairly paid low because he was black and the stuff that they did have showed that he was paid more than like the other wrestlers who got let go at the same time as him. So there's nothing really to look at there, but where we're going to start is that Thunderbolt Patterson was pursuing something circa 91, 92. When is it not pursuing something? <laughs> Well, I mean, Thunderbolt Patterson is always pursuing something. Yes. And it was in that context that there's this, which was filed as an exhibit that we're going to start off with. And this was filed as an exhibit in various things in those lawsuits at the end of WCW and beyond. Uh, January 13th, 1992, an interview at the offices of the law firm Bentley and Bentley with one Ole Anderson. So yeah, this is this is right here at the time where Kip Fry has just now taken over as the boss of WCW. Yes. So keep that in your mind too. All right. Um, I'll be Oli. You be the uh, lawyers, I guess. Mm-hmm. We'll handle that. All right, and you have not read this, so you, you are not knowing. I read nothing. Yeah, I know. I'm just reminding everyone, so you don't know what to expect here. 
No. So I will start as the uh, fused-together version of Randall Bentley and Ronald J. Freeman here at uh, 9.55 a.m. on... Uh, there's a typo there where I somehow typed January 23rd, which is Jan- all January 13th. Um, so yeah, some kind of Thunderbolt-Patterson lawsuit. So we start here. And these are all excerpts, because there's a lot of stuff that's just background information that we don't need. Now, once you became Booker, you said you signed Junkyard Dog. Were there any other blacks that you signed? Well, no. I said, I don't know about a contract, because I didn't personally negotiate a contract. I negotiated a verbal commitment on my part. Whether that translated to a written contract later on or even at the time, I don't know. But I brought in JYD, and I tried to bring in Tony Atlas. What happened when you tried to bring in Tony Atlas? Everybody just nixed the idea. He'd been in a lot of trouble. He was another unpredictable commodity. And I think the comment again was something like, what do you owe these people anyway? He was just, he was, I thought, an outstanding individual. And he would contribute an awful lot to wrestling. At that point, the argument couldn't be made, like Junkyard Dog, that he was heavy because he wasn't. They couldn't make the argument that he was old because he wasn't. They couldn't make the argument that he would go against him, so I can only draw my own conclusion, and that was just they didn't want Tony Atlas. And I guess I can go further and say that I would assume that it had to be because he was black. If there was another reason, I don't know what that would be, but in any event, we never got Tony Atlas. Were there any other blacks that you attempted to introduce? Thunderbolt Patterson. What happened with Thunderbolt Patterson? I just ran into a lot of crap all the time. I had Thunderbolt show up every week, I think for three months. I hope you'll remember better than I do. I'm not quite certain for the length of time. For somewhere in the middle of like three or four, maybe four months, I had Thunderbolt Patterson come to the TV tapings, and I'm on occasion to interview or two. Every time I did that, where I got back to the office, Jim heard in such a way that it was brought to me the next day or whatever, wanting to know what in the world I intend to do with the guy and so forth and so on. And I just made it very low key then for Thunderbolt, and I explained to him many times it's real tough. I said, just take it easy. Maybe we can work this doggone thing out. Maybe I can finally get you in a position where you can try and draw some money with you, either by having you in the ring or by having you manage somebody in the ring, which was a choice, or by having you in a position, which I said several times, where you would be involved directly in our management in a way where we could help promote wrestling through the black community. And that Thunderbolt Patterson was well-known in the black community in cities all over the country, work in that capacity to encourage black participation. We had a deal set up for him to go to the, or should I say idea set up, for Thunderbolt to attend the Black Tenants Association, which was taking place in Washington, D.C., and it would have cost WCW, say, $1,000. That would have been way more than was necessary for the plane ticket, hotel, the whole world, to attend this meeting, which I think lasted two or three days, which I thought would have done a lot of elbow rubbing, etc. We had intention to follow that up by going to black mayors around the country and black officials, politicians, or whatever, and try to put wrestling back on the map and try to get communities and those people interested in wrestling again through black participation by bringing blacks in, not only to wrestle, but by having blacks in management, and to show that things have changed. That Turner, who is the humanitarian as we now know now, the man of the decade, was trying to change things that happened in the past to include segregation, to include the Ku Klux Klan, all that crap. Thunderbolt, you say it's a new day. It's a new day. And we try to expound on that to show that this is a new day, and that was our idea. That was our theory that we would be able to go to the fish at WCW, Jim Hurd, let's say in this case, and convince them that would be something that would be on paper to sell and would, in fact, become reality. It could make a significant change. Whether Hurd actually felt that way or anybody else felt that way, or for that matter, whether I felt that way in terms of making some kind of sociable economic change, I'm not trying to be that damn goody goody. 
but I could see where a person could make money out of it. I could see where business could be improved, and I was all for it. So when the idea was presented, the same thing. What do you owe the guy? His comments indicated I was treading on thin ice. Ooh. All right. Okay, you okay. want to stop oh, no, no, no. Yes. yes. That just laid it out as Jim Barnett to me. So about all this worrying about the herd in the office and her coming back to me, you know, that tells me Jim Barnett either has some, you know, has his stooges, you know, going to him, then he goes to her. That's what it sounds like to me. Well, because also, here's why this makes perfect sense. Your theory here, when Thunderbolt would be working with Jim Wilson and trying to drum up support, where would Thunderbolt go? Black religious leaders, black community organizers, black politicians. Barnett probably sees this and is like, oh, God, it's happening again. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and... And, and, and Oli's idea here, I mean, to send Thunderbolt to Washington, D.C., to the Black Tent Association, pl- trying to plan meetings with black mayors and everything. I mean, this is interesting stuff. Yep. I mean, he's really trying, he really wanted to make an effort of trying to build this bridge between WCW and the black community. Now, I'm not saying Ole Anderson's this, you know, <laughs> great humanitarian. No, he's not I either. Mean, he's just he's trying to do trying to make money. I mean, and he's admitting that he's saying I want yeah. I'm doing it because I think it's a way that we will, in the long run, draw black fan, a lot more black fans with a relatively minimal financial investment. Yeah. So, I mean, you know what, you know what he sounds like here, and you, to bring this into like you know 2023. It's a, it sounds like a lot of the it, almost the reasoning that you know is behind a lot of like the empty Pride Month stuff that we see every June now. For in terms of corporate Pride stuff, you know, like the obvious example being how Budweiser kind of handled everything going into June, um, where they ended up just pissing off everyone after the whole Dylan Mulvaney thing. Well, that's all that all that stuff. I mean. Let's be honest. I mean, look, look at look at all the businesses and how they, you know, are going out there and doing all this stuff for Pride Month and whatever, it, it, whatever you know, Black History Month. I mean, you know, it, it, you know that type of stuff. You know, it, it's just listen. We know what I mean. We know what the deal is. <laughs> I mean, yes. you're just you're you're trying to placate this group of people, so so you can keep their business. Exactly. And the thing is, here's the thing, here's the thing. A majority of people like that don't give a shit. You know? You don't have to do that. They, they like your product because they like your product. Right. You know, and then, and here's the thing, then when you go placate this group of people, you're going to piss off another group of people. That's where Bud Light's at right now. Well, you know, Bud Light, I, do, well, I, Bud I, I deal is- with this shit. Well, I deal with this shit. Okay, our Bud Light sales have dropped. Now I wouldn't say they dropped considerably, but they've dropped as all noticeably. This. And yeah. dude, dude, I've I talked to the Bud guys, the, the the drivers and stuff, and you ought to hear the shit they get from people in stores. Oh, I'm sure. I can't believe I can't believe you still work for that company. You know, and and there's a a 
gas station in my area with a lady that works there told, you know, flat out said this. She said, oh, that Bud Light ain't nothing but queer beer. We don't drink that right here no more. It is it's insane. We should probably explain you know? it actually real quick because it's like you still have to be fairly online to understand this story. So uh, just to give the background real quick. Um, Budweiser will fairly regularly do little influencer campaigns on social media, on Instagram and TikTok especially. And they did a thing, I think it was in, it was Mar right, because it was March Madness related. It was in March where they sent a custom can with her face on it to Dylan Mulvaney, who is a, a trans woman, stage actress, rel very recently out and on hormone therapy and all that. And sent her a can with her face on it. And it was just for this one Instagram video, and that was it. And people went insane, and it was very mask-off, because there's nothing happening here other than they gave this one... They did this one ad, effectively, with the trans woman. And it became this huge culture war thing. But where... But, like... Well, where Anheuser-Busch, or whatever the parent company is now, where they really fucked up... They issued this statement that ended up pissing everyone off and just showed just how empty the whole thing was because it was like, oh, we don't intend to create controversy or divide people. But like when you're being that vague, though, you're pissing off both. You're, you're pissing off everyone. You're pissing off the trans people and other queer people and allies. And you're also pissing off the bigots because they feel like you're placating the other side. So it just fucks it up in general and that's what happened and that's what led to all this weird Bud Light bullshit the last few months and ain't just Bud Light the other shit Target went through well, and yeah, Ford no, well specifically Bud Light though yeah uh, well Ford though Ford's the one that I mean it hasn't really exploded but that thing recently where Ford um, did a rainbow Raptor truck for Pride Month yeah. and People are losing their fucking minds about that. You know, um, there was this guy who he used four trucks for his job and he took a Gatling gun. Yes, a, a man that owned a Gatling gun took his Gatling gun out there and started shooting up his trucks as protest of Ford. You know, I mean, it, it, it is really is insane. I know we're going off base, but it's really insane how the culture wars have switched in this country to where the right-wingers are doing the stuff that the left-wingers used to do, but to a whole nother level. It is insane to watch how that how that's turned. Well, With the right-wingers, the, right, the, the hardcore right-wingers have become the, the big boycotters, the, you know, political statements, all this stuff. That didn't used to be that way. It's insane to watch how that's changed well, in the last few years. Because of, because of Donald Trump and his uh, and his minions. And also, just real quick before we get back to 1992, like, the other thing is, like, the right-wing boycotts usually wouldn't really work and last was the thing. Like, they might they might go on for, like, a week and then people would forget about it, you know, or they'd be really stupid, like, you know, the Keurig thing. I don't even remember what the reason for the Keurig thing was. But, like, where people were destroying the co coffee makers they already bought and stuff. It was just stuff like that. This one, oh, what podcast was it listening to? Oh, I think it was. Um, I think it was if books, if books could kill did a thing about the all the Pride Month backlash, and 
they pointed out probably one of the reasons that the Bud Light boycott has kind of sustained is that even if people don't know much about it, they're like, oh, I hear they're woke now. And it's like, it's Bud Light. You can just buy a Miller and a Coors, or a Coors instead, and it's whatever. So it's just easier to do because it's like you can just pick the other beer that's next to it. And that's what's happened. Yeah. Their sales have gone up since then. Right, proportionally. Yes. So anyway, <laughs> back to 1992. Who made those comments? <laughs> Jim Hurd. Uh, well, kind of general feeling, but probably, primarily be Jim Hurd. Were there any other black wrestlers besides Junkyard Dog, Tony Atlas, and Thunderbolt Patterson that you tried to introduce during that time period of May 90 through November of 90? Yeah, there are quite a few. And I'm sure I could just name about name them. I could think of Abdul the Butcher, who was there before he was there. Pez Watley, who had been in WF, but actually did start doing TV jobs for, for WCW. Ranger Ross, who was, I think, out at the time, and I would see him frequently looking for employment. Something happened in there. I didn't even know what it was. I was really busy, so I can't. I'm not quite sure. But just an overall view of the situation was to promote and utilize black wrestlers because we weren't doing business. Because we didn't have the black wrestlers in the population in terms of the wrestling body that I thought was necessary in order to bring business back to a comfortable level. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.